This lecture is titled Korea's Warring Kingdoms and Flying Dragons. Korean mythology emphasizes the growth of human culture and institutions. There are a few glimmers of origin tales to be found, however, and we'll look at one of them in this lecture. A text from the northern part of the peninsula describes the beginnings of Korean culture and society. It is of unknown authorship and is called the Chang Sega. I translate it as the Book of Beginnings, and it is filled with tales of cultural, if not cosmogonic, origin. And in the Book of Beginnings, a figure named Miduk plays the role of a culture hero in a manner very similar to those found in early Chinese mythology. It is said that Miduk parted the world by erecting four copper pillars, one for each of the four cardinal directions. His work continued when he destroyed a set of extra suns and moons and made them into the myriad stars. Work on the world was underway. Miduk discovered both fire and water. He made and wore the first clothes, crafted from fabric made from vines, and then he created humans from the odd seedlings of five golden and five silver bugs. Just remember that number five. We'll see it again in a few minutes. Miduk, in short, was a creator of humanity. Miduk then sought to protect his creative efforts against the usurpation attempts by a deity named Sogka, who challenged Miduk to three contests. Battles are one thing, and figure prominently in historical texts. Mythology, on the other hand, is often filled with contests between overwhelming powers. Our watery images work deeply into these challenges, too. First, the pair attempted to throw their ropes across the East Sea. Seoka's silver rope broke, but Miduk's golden one prevailed. One-nothing Miduk. From there, they were compelled to make the Songchon River connect to all the other rivers in the world. Seoka, in shamanistic fashion, summoned heavy rains, but it was not enough. The wily Miduk knew a thing or two about cold northern climates, though. He called forth winter ice, which overflowed, froze, and in the end connected all of the rivers. Two-nothing Maruk. This was not the best of three, though. Third contest was pivotal and did not involve water. A magnolia flower was placed between Miduk and Sokka, and whichever deity the flower turned toward as they slept would be declared the winner. Sogka cheated and won. Miduk cursed, creating, in his anger, most of the persistent problems in the world today, including betrayal, disorder, and envy. Creation is not always a positive act, as we shall see again and again. Moreover, Miduk was imprisoned by the illegitimate victor, but then escaped by transforming himself into a musk deer. It was to no avail, however, as Sogka's 3,000 priests hunted down and killed the deer. And then they cooked it, and then they ate it. All but two partook of the flesh, an act that has hints of ritualistic cannibalism. Two priests refused, so Sogka ended their days too. He turned them into a rock and a pine, respectively. And those two priests, the rock and the pine, they are commemorated to this day. It would seem that Miduk had ultimately failed, and yet his creations 
both the positive and the accursed remained. Miduk changed the world, even though he did not live to see it beyond his labors. This tale has all the stuff of mythology, including the circuitous twists and turns of plot that can make the telling and hearing a breathless experience. The lack of a happy ending is, of course, quite common in mythology as well. In fact, the only thing that this story doesn't have much of is accounts of the creation of the world. What it has in full force, though, are details about how that world was peopled and shaped. And remember yin and yang? Two-part divisions of the world, day and night, cold and warm. They are common enough to create powerful comparative themes among all of the world's religions, and every East Asian civilization employs yin and yang as a foundation for a diverse array of doctrines and practices. The concepts are anchors of religious and mythological thought. In Korea, these powerful forces shape the ways that historical works are constructed. There we hear the rising and falling narrative cadences adapted from Chinese history, in which powerful first rulers give way to the darkness of flawed leadership. Yin and yang, rise and fall, light and dark, they shape the very world of Korean and East Asian mythology. But there are more dimensions at work, five more, and they give shape to even richer pictures of East Asian mythology. Beyond that, the fives are a particular tool of the academics who were fond of classifying things into conceptual groups and then writing them down for others to memorize. Rural farmers dancing in rhythmic time were not thinking about five-phase cosmology, nor were shamans as they invited the spirits to communicate. So be wary. If we see fives in a Chinese, Korean, or Japanese myth, we are almost certainly in the realm of literary reconstruction. It is so significant that it cannot be avoided. Here is the key idea, which spread from early China to all of East Asia. A deep understanding of nature and culture depends on careful calculations of how yin and yang interacted with five phases or agents in and beyond the world. If yin and yang can be said both to power and reflect the unerring changes all around us, cold always becoming warm and then cold again, night always becoming day and then night again, the five phases can be seen as a complex series of annotations that gave philosophers and religious thinkers ways of classifying and explaining the world in even greater detail. They took these combinations of twos and fives to staggering levels of complexity that affected every element of religious doctrine, mythology, and ritual practice into and beyond the 20th century. And it has merged with the language of learned mythology, the source of almost every East Asian, and specifically Korean, tale we have. Everything from the happiness of the ancestors to the well-being of the imperial state itself has depended on the sense of yin-yang, five-phase timing in Chinese and Korean history. And it has played a significant role in Japan as well. The deep devotion to classification and categorization has had an insidious effect. It made the ancient, spontaneous, danced, and sung mythology of rural peasants even more vulnerable to scholarly intrusion than in China. In Korea, this five-phase symbolism is often seen in mythical details, 
In one place, we might see it in descriptions of herbs used for medical treatments or the various structures of governmental bureaucracy. In another text, we might encounter a list of five holy sites or five precious gems. Just listen for it. Its presence remains strong. Perhaps the most powerful Korean image of all is the flag of the Republic of South Korea, where four trigrams adapted from Chinese philosophy encircle the yin-yang symbol itself. The very image of today's South Korean state is a product of yin-yang five-phase correlations. And to grasp the deeper structures of Korean mythology, all you have to do is keep looking for the fives. The myth of Miruk and Sogka details some of the foundations of Korean life and serves as a preface to Dangun Wangom's founding of the ancient state of Joseon. A mythical kind of statecraft was at work in Dangun's story because Dangun was said to have ruled the peninsula for almost two millennia. Yes, 20 centuries, 2,000 years. Then he retired to his cave. Remember that he was the offspring of a bear mother turned human. And this is where Korean mythology becomes detailed, with the origins of kingship and politics. It is as though the early myths hit the requisite notes, but little more. Not so with the origins of political life and kingship. This is where the kimchi really hits the bowl in Korean mythology. The 12th century Samguk Yusa, Tales of Three Kingdoms, is by far the richest source of early legends in Korea. And we are both indebted to and frustrated by it. The text contains absolute gems of insight in Korean life and thought, including, as we've seen, the story of the founding of Joseon itself. And yet it is the product of learned scholars writing many hundreds of years after the myths were first told. The text represents the bulk of what we have left today, though. So let's get what we can from it. We will continue to listen for echoes of the shamans and oral tradition, but never forget that political mythology itself is a vital theme in our lives to this day. As we have seen in China, clearly mythical figures quickly give way in the texts to hard-to-define figures who operate in a vague sort of myth-historical middle ground. In time, the stories speak of historically verifiable people, but the boundaries between clearly mythical and verifiably historical are never exact. From my perspective, this in-between, myth-historical ground is the most fascinating in all of mythology. So let's take a look at one of these in-between stories, the kind that dominate Chinese, Korean, and Japanese myth history. It deals with themes as varied as caring for the people, organizing a governing bureaucracy, and commemorating a great leader. In ancient times, life on the Korean peninsula was divided by clans, each of which claimed a divine ancestor. Over the years, the infighting and discord grew so great, and threats from farther afield so intense, that many family groupings sought a solution, a way to come together in a social network larger than a mere clan. Kinship organization has its limits when people must respond to broad social or economic challenges. That's where politics comes in, when people need to organize themselves into broader coalitions. So, in the hopes of coming together for a greater purpose, the people assembled. 
To the top of a high mountain they went and prayed to heaven to deliver them a shining leader. And heaven responded. Lightning flashed. A rainbow appeared. And a great white horse could be seen bowing and facing in the direction of a local mountain they considered holy. When the assemblage ran to the horse, it neighed loudly and ascended toward the heavens on the bands of the rainbow. At the base, the people discovered a red egg. Cracking it, they found a baby boy. The yin-yang and five-phase symbolism develops from there. They bathed the baby in the waters known as the East Stream. In Korea's five-phase symbolism, East represents beginnings. Dancing for joy with the birds and the animals, they circled the boy in social harmony and song. In time, a girl was discovered in a second egg. The animal themes persist because the story relates that she was tender and fair, but had the beak of a little chick. When they washed her in the north stream, however, the beak fell off and revealed round red lips. The people raised the miracle children, and in time, the pair became rulers of what would later be known as Shila, one of the three kingdoms of the peninsula, Goguryeo in the north, Bekche in the south, and Shila in the southeast. These mythical times predate those part mythical and part historical kingdoms, but the fact that these noble children were associated with a later historical state shows again the power of political mythology in Korea. Up they grew into a noble king and queen. And after more than 60 years of virtuous rule, the king, Hyokosa, ascended to heaven. After seven days, his body fell to earth. The queen's soul then rose to heaven, with her body eventually falling as well. Weeping, the people collected the remains and sought to bury them together. But they were prevented by a fearsome snake. What could they do? Well, they divided them into five parts and interred them in the five mausoleums, which became both places of commemoration for their now-deceased leaders and shrines to a new kind of rulership on the Korean peninsula. Never underestimate the power of five-phase symbolism. Anthropologists often note the profound changes that occur when people begin to organize their lives around concepts bigger than kinship. And it often takes a strong and persistent kind of leader to make that transition. The tale of Hyokosa centers on exactly this issue. It is, on the one hand, a story of a society moving from small fragments of family groupings to what would become, in time, one of the glorious states of Korea's three kingdoms, the state of Shila. Shila is several decades older than the other two kingdoms and lasted the longest from the 1st century BCE to the 10th century of the Common Era. On the other hand, the myth describes the kind of ruling figure required to pull people beyond their family boundaries and begin to see themselves as part of a larger social and political group. The tale of Hyokosa describes the integration of small groups of people, all tied by blood and common cause, moving into a much larger political network that broke free of narrow kinship ties. Korean mythology is centered on the creation of a polity and of a people who accept quality, kingly rule. This is where the mythical flashes of lightning, rainbows, and red eggs discovered near sacred mountains comes in. From family to tribe to state, 
The myth of Hyokosa and his queen aided the political development process with a kind of persistent divine intervention. It is the shamanistic seedling in a larger tale of authority over the whole of the Korean peninsula. This divine shamanistic thread in the tale gave legitimacy to the Shilla state as it developed in the beginnings of the Three Kingdoms period. Let's consider another theme, what we might call foreign affairs. Even as Korea's internal political organization and culture took shape, it was subject to powerful influences from abroad. Indeed, from Siberian influences far to the north, to the Mongolian dominance in the 12th century, and even Japanese colonization in the 20th, Korea cannot be understood without the constant trooping of foreign diplomats, traders, and armies across the peninsula. The Samguk Yusa tells that in the 36th year of King Nemol of Shila, in the late 4th century of the Common Era, a Japanese ruler sent a ship to Shila in an offer of alliance. It seemed a welcome opportunity for Shila to strengthen itself with respect to the other kingdoms, and the Shila king greeted the magnanimous gesture warmly. The king then sent his own son to Japan to reciprocate. It seemed to be the very picture of high-minded governmental goodwill. But here is where the story makes a problematic turn. Instead of honoring the diplomatic move, the Japanese held the son hostage. Note here that we only have the Korean perspective on this story. But time passed, and King Namal died. His successor sought the hostage's return, but without success. At length, he turned to plans of intrigue and dispatched a talented magistrate named Bak Chae-sung to secure his release. Bak had already succeeded in rescuing another hostage from the rival Korean state of Koguryo. The king knew that he was the he was the official for this delicate task. And here the recurring East Asian theme of sacrifice for the greater good returns. Immediately, Buck set off for the seacoast, not even stopping to say goodbye to his family. His wife pursued him on horseback, but Buck was sailing to Japan before he could be stalled. Like Yu the Great in early China, his obligation was to the common good. When he arrived in Japan, Buck told the ruler that he had escaped from Shilla. Lying, he said that he deeply resented the Shilla king. The Japanese king readily agreed, saying that, indeed, the Shilla ruler was no good. So Buck was invited to live in Japan thereafter as a guest of the king, a situation that gave him regular access to the hostage, the late King Nemo's son. Taking his time, Buck slowly got to know the Shila hostage, a once young man, now almost 40 years old. In time, they went fishing together every day and routinely presented their catch to the king, who thought that nothing was amiss. And then, one foggy morning, Buck at last told the prince that it was time to flee. The latter insisted that Buck go with him, but Buck told him that it was far too dangerous. At length, they made their farewells and drank their toasts. Soon, the prince was on a sturdy craft, sailed by a trusty boatman. Only Bach remained, and he was able to delay the discovery long enough to assure the escape's success. Back to Shila went the prince. And Bach faced the wrath of the Japanese king, 
who realized that Buck had deceived him and vowed to punish him with the five punishments. Note that number again. Here is a bit of the text from the Samguk Yusa. The Japanese king became angrier still. You became my vassal, and now you refuse to follow our ways. What an insolent fellow you are. And then he softens his tone. But now, if you will become my subject, I will give you big rewards and will make you rich and noble. But Bach could not be persuaded. I would rather be a dog or pig in Shila than a nobleman in Japan. I would rather be beaten with long whips in Shila than receive court titles here. The rest is not at all pretty, and it details the tortures that Bach endured before he died. We will note, though, that the theme of heartless enemies, not to mention a biting brand of Korean xenophobia, here enters the tradition of Korean political mythology. Relations between Japan and Korea have had their harmonious moments over the centuries. For example, Japan and South Korea co-hosted the 2002 World Cup football tournament and have shared many governmental, cultural, and academic exchanges during the last several decades. Even more, however, there has been bitter and lasting enmity. Many Koreans will never forget that Japan led a destructive invasion of Korea in the late 16th century. More recently, Japan's wartime government actually made Korea into a Japanese colony in the first half of the 20th century. Korean resentment over these invasions and occupations runs deep to this day. But, as the myth of Bak shows, a powerful level of distrust was present long before large armies ever went to war representing Japan or Korea. Borrowing from abroad and foreign influence was a constant in Korean history, but that should never fool us into thinking that it was all a smooth matter of accord and harmony. Our last set of Korean tales find us squarely in the middle of myth history. What makes the stories from here on so fascinating is that they merge glimmers of the founding myths, such as the ancient state of Joseon, founded by a bear child, with the kind of facts that legitimately appear in textbooks. Here is a bit of documented historical background to help make the transition. The three kingdoms of Goguryeo, Baekje, and Shila struggled for control for several centuries before Shila, in the mid-7th century, got its finances, its military, and its administration in order, and overwhelmed the other two. With its capital located in the extreme southeast of the peninsula, Shila was perceived by Koreans to the north and west as backward in culture. Shila had for centuries stuck to the traditional animistic cults of its ancestors, even as the other kingdoms had embraced Confucianism and Buddhism. When they ruled the peninsula, though, they merged all three, and it became a syncretic foundation for medieval Korean rule. By the 10th century, however, Shila's hold had weakened. A peasant uprising swept the country, and Wangon, the son of a merchant, seized control. The new state, called Goryeo, became the basis of what we today in the West call Korea. 
Lasting from 918 to 1392, Goryeo established a strong foundation of Chinese-influenced government that introduced civil service examinations, central government schools, and a Chinese-style bureaucracy. Syncretism was still at work, but Confucianism would dominate at least the aristocracy until the 20th century. In the 13th century, the Mongols arrived, as they did practically everywhere else throughout Eastern Europe and Asia, except Japan. Remember, geography matters. But Mongol rule in East Asia was as brief, historically speaking, as it was brutal. By the middle of the 14th century, it had all but collapsed in China and Korea. It was a time of great political confusion all over East Asia. And from that very power vacuum emerged a general named Yi Songye. Yi was sent to attack Chinese forces to the north, but realized that it was an impossible task. Instead, he turned southward and attacked his own leaders, seizing control of the Korean peninsula for himself. The regime Yi Songye founded in 1392 was to last until 1910 a total of more than 500 years, and almost twice as long as any of the dynasties of imperial China. Yi quickly established tributary relations with the new dominant power of China and received from it the ancient name of Joseon for his new kingdom. The dynastic name of Yi is used in most historical writings. We will use Yi and Joseon interchangeably, as do most, most Koreans. Paying tribute to China, Yi's Korean state of Joseon quite proudly spoke of itself as a junior state to the senior China. At other times, Korean scholars describe the relationship between an elder brother and a younger brother. And so, for the next five centuries, the Yi dynasty remained in close contact with China and demonstrated unwavering loyalty to it. They sent tribute missions every third year and gradually increased the number to three a year. The Yi dynasty was also the heyday of Confucianism in Korea. A key reason was the dynasty's success in using the Chinese political pattern, and especially the adoption of the Chinese examination system. The examinations focused the attention of the entire ruling class on Confucian concepts, the texts that contained them, all written in classical Chinese. Since the way to fame and success now was found through the mastery of Confucian scholarship and philosophy, successive generations of Korean children focused upon those writings and spent far less time with other traditions, especially the shamanistic ones. In the process, the older forms of mythology moved even further into the background. But a new kind of legend was created in the process. Yi song was a capable military leader and swept the state clean of his rivals. Moreover, he was a statesman of unusual ability. He redistributed land to his supporters and started to restructure government. By the time he abdicated in 1398, the new regime had a solid foundation, and it was perfected under his son. Effective rule continued with the third king, Taejong, who ruled from 1400 to 1418, and in turn under the latter's son, Sejong, who ruled from 1418 to 1450. And that brings us to one of the most fascinating books in the entire Korean tradition, Songs of Dragons Flying to Heaven. 
The work is generally attributed to King Sejong, the fourth king, and was compiled by a team of scholars at his court in the mid-15th century. It has been translated into English as Songs of Flying Dragons. Although Korea had deep ties to China at this time, as well as Confucianism and Chinese script, Songs of Dragons Flying to Heaven was the very first text ever written in Hangul, the extraordinarily nuanced system of writing now used in Korea. It tells the tale of six dragons who are the ancestors of the new dynasty. As such, the tale echoes themes all the way back to Dangun Wangom. In fact, it really is a kind of latter-day Dangun creates the political world story and a story of dynastic refounding. Let's take a look at the first three of 125 cantos that make up the songs of dragons flying to heaven. Together, these early cantos connected the political and military actions of the dynastic founder, Yi Songye, and his ancestral heritage with dragons and heaven above, Chinese sage kings of early times. Korea's six dragons flew in the sky. Their every deed was blessed by heaven. Their deeds tallied with those of the sage kings. From that auspicious beginning, the next canto gives two images of solidity, equating the new dynasty with deeply rooted trees and gushing streams. The tree that strikes deep root is firm amidst the winds. Its flowers are good, its fruit abundant. The stream whose source is deep gushes forth even in a drought. It forms a river and gains the sea. And by the third canto, Yi Songye's feats are specifically equated with the founding of the ancient Chinese state of Zhou, 25 centuries earlier. This confident new Korean state, with the name of an ancient dynasty, is thoroughly imbued in the Flying Dragons text with the images of powerful rule from China. The great ruler of Zhou lived in the Valley of Bin and began his royal works. Our founder lived in the city of Gyeonghong and began his royal works. Text takes pains to show the talents of the great founder even before he began to make a wider name for himself. Of Yi's shooting ability, the Songs of Flying Dragons tells the following. He hit the back of forty-tailed deer. He shot the mouths and eyes of the rebels. He shot down three mice from the eaves. Were there any in the past even like him? But there was more than raw ability in this story. There is virtue, too. If you remember the tales of China's Yao, Shun, and Yu, you will recognize the power of virtue as an organizing political theme in East Asia. Many could shoot an arrow, but he was aware of his heroic virtue. With this heroic virtue, he saved many. In undoing the wicked reign, as the text sees it, of the last Goryeo king, the people are filled with joy and anticipation. As Yi marched into battle, the text relates, The Goryeo ruler was wicked and oppressive, and therefore awaited Yi Songye's banner of justice. With rice in baskets, wine in bottles, they welcomed him along the roadside. And many years later, as his glorious and foundational rule comes to a close, the people look back at the whole of his accomplishments. He was consistent from beginning to end. Meritorious subjects were loyal to him. 
He secured the throne for myriad years. Would his royal work never cease? The songs of dragons flying to heaven is an elaborate argument for political regeneration, kingly virtue, and the passage to power of a talented new group of leaders. It is political mythology and served to justify the reshaping of an early modern state under a very ancient name. Korean mythology runs the gamut from Siberian forests, holy mountains, and even foreign hostage dramas all the way to brilliant early modern statecraft. As the Songs of Dragons Flying to Heaven shows, Korean state builders just six centuries ago saw their work as part of a vast narrative that linked the Korean peninsula with the great landmass of China. None of China's other tributary partners ever embraced its heritage quite as vigorously as did the Koreans, especially the Joseon dynasty, as recounted in Songs of Dragons Flying to Heaven. And yet, we have seen profound differences too, from the pumpkin treat festivities of the Chilsuk festival in honor of the herd boy and weaving maiden to the secretive shamanistic gut ritual. China casts a large shadow of influence on the Korean peninsula, but it is also clear that Korean mythology, religion, history, and culture are at the same time highly distinctive and vibrant parts of a complex East Asian world. This lecture is titled, Japanese Tales of Purity and Defilement. Unlike the mythologies of China and Korea, which abound with images of rivers, ice, and snow, the mythology of Japan is steeped in ocean brine. The islands of Japan differ markedly from the nation's East Asian peers, and the watery world of the Pacific gives its history religious traditions, and mythology distinctive shapes. We can see this immediately in the powerful focus in Japanese mythology on the origins of the world. Unlike China and Korea, Japan gives a distinctive significance not only to the creation of the cosmos, but also to the birth of the land and the creatures that inhabit it. Let's look at the most famous of Japanese origin myths. It tells of the creative efforts of a pair of deities, and their work creates everything from the islands themselves to further generations of spiritual presences known as kami. These kami are said to be everywhere, and they figure prominently to this day in Shinto ritual, ranging from temple ceremonies to sumo wrestling matches. In temples all over Japan, it is required to give two distinct claps to signal one's presence before the kami. The earliest Japanese creation stories refer to seven generations of kami spirit forces, but it is only in the last of those seven generations that we enter the very heart of the rich Japanese mythological tradition. This is where the account given in the Kojiki, or Record of Ancient Matters, begins. It is a work of myth and history compiled in the early 8th century and is the oldest and still one of the best sources that exists for Japanese mythology. Izanagi and Izanami, the two deities I mentioned, are linchpins of all the tales that follow. In the Kojiki, they are called He Who Beckons and She Who Beckons, and you will see several ways in which their mutual beckoning works. 
Izanagi and Izanami were entrusted by the spirits of heaven, those kami from the earlier mythical generations, with the task of making firm the drifting land and fashioning it into final form. Before them, the world was a vague mixture of soil and water. After they were done, life on the islands began to take shape. And to help them in their labors, the heavenly spirits gave them a magnificent jeweled spear. Off they went to a place called the Floating Bridge of Heaven. Over the centuries, many artists painted the Floating Bridge, and it has become over time perhaps the dominant image in all of Japanese mythology. And on that bridge, Izanagi and Izanami dipped the heavenly bejeweled spear into the brine below. Vigorously, they churned together the waters beneath them. It does not take a Freudian obsession with sexual imagery to catch at least part of what is going on here. The act of creation is immediately recognizable, even if the progeny, as we shall see, reflect a divine world of land and water. As they lifted the spear from the sea, droplets fell, creating the island of Onogoro, which means coming into being of its own accord. They climbed down from the floating bridge and went to live on the island they had created. There, they became deeply attached to one another and eventually wished to consummate their union in a way that went far beyond the heavenly work of the jeweled spear. Echoing several traditions in East Asia and Oceania, they built a pillar from the earth to the sky. Following a loosely defined ritual, each circled the pillar in opposite directions. When they faced each other, Izanami greeted her beloved Izanagi, who was surprised that she had spoken first. Despite what he perceived to be an impropriety, they mated. The fruits of their union were two less than developed children. Izanagi and Izanami, this is mythology, remember, they sent the ill-formed children packing to sea on a small boat, not to be heard from again. They then turned to the heavenly spirits for guidance. The answer came back with certainty. Izanami should not have spoken first. That was the reason for their shoddy offspring. They were encouraged to proceed to a kind of deific do-over. Once more round the pillar they circled, and Izanagi greeted Izanami. The results were abundance beyond any mammalian standards. The eight islands of the Japanese archipelago, including those we know today as Honshu, the main island, Kyushu to the south, and Shikoku lying snugly between them. The large northern island of Hokkaido was not a major part of Japanese geography, imaginative or otherwise, until the 19th century. So in several flurries of land birth, Izanagi and Izanami created most of the land masses that would figure in all subsequent Japanese mythology and history. Only later, while giving birth to a deity associated with fire, Izanami died and was buried in the heart of a sacred mountain on the main island of Honshu. In a fit of rage, Izanagi killed this newborn deity which resulted in the birth of many more deities. And this is where the creative process ends, for the most part, and the endless tales of conflict, purity, and defilement among the assorted deities begins. From here, the story becomes less about joint labors and more about internecine conflict in the god world.
So here, with the world created and the islands in place, let's pause to consider where these myths fit into the East Asian tradition. Although these early tales of island building were told long before China or even Korea had profound influences on Japan, the ways in which the myths were eventually written down and passed on to later generations cannot be separated from a Chinese tradition of historical writing. Most of what we know about Japanese mythology comes from the Kojiki we have just encountered, and another work, the Nihongi, sometimes called the Nihon Shoki, a compilation that has great, a great deal of overlap with the Kojiki, but differs in several details. Like the Kojiki, the Nihongi dates to the early 8th century. They were written in 712 and 720 of the Common Era, respectively, and both works were thoroughly influenced by several broad waves of cultural borrowing from China. As in the case of Korean myth, the enormous amount of time that elapsed between the original telling of the myths and when they were first recorded, and the fact that they were recorded in Chinese, has had far-reaching implications. And yet, even with all of those layers of change, the early myths themselves in Japan are of a kind that stands apart from the myths of China and Korea. Even Chinese culture heroes and Korean snow kings wearing deer antler crowns can seem tame when the swirling ocean waters of Japanese mythology begin to flow. Japanese mythology does, however, share with its specific island neighbors several themes that more landlocked countries do not possess. Whatever the reason, the islands bring out a special kind of mythology, as we'll soon see. Let's get back to our creative, beckoning pair, Izanagi and Izanami. I first encountered them in earnest many years ago in a faraway world called college, when I sat down to write a midterm assignment for a course in early Japanese literature. We had read a number of fascinating texts, including a poetry collection called the Manyoshu, the Myriad Leaves Compendium, the Issei Monogatari, the Tales of Issei, and the Kojiki, which is the text we are considering in this lecture. That was the one I couldn't put down. I was enthralled with the creation stories we have just discussed, but it was the sections that followed these creations that gave me the idea for the paper I eventually wrote. It allowed me to tie together my budding interests in Japanese literature and anthropology, and it probably did as much to set me on the career path that I have followed as anything else that I have done. My title? Maggots, Filth, and Stench, Antisocial Ritual in the Land of Yomi. It won't take long to see why I chose those words. Izanagi wailed and mourned the death of his beloved Izanami, taken from him during the birth of the fire child. Seeing no other way to tamp down his mournful ardor, he set out to find her in the penumbral world of the dead, called Yomi. At first, Izanagi perceived the underworld as not unlike his own world above, just a bit darker. In time, the unmitigated blackness sapped his energy and his resolve. He craved the vibrant world of the above ground. Nonetheless, he persevered, finding Izanami amidst the various shades of darkness. He asked her to accompany him back to the world of the living. Disgusted, she spat food and told Izanagi that she had already partaken of the cuisine of the dead. Now she was one of them. 
In Japan, in mythical times and today, consumption of foodstuffs and identity remain powerful cultural markers. As the anthropologist Mary Douglas has remarked in her classic work, Purity and Danger, many societies equate certain foods, table manners, and even table mates with impurity, seeing them as beyond the limits of tolerance in proper social life. In Japan, this dynamic can be seen everywhere. Even everyday meals are marked by elaborate etiquette and time-honored rituals. In light of those traditions, it is not hard to see that having eaten of the food of the dead, Izanami was already forever tainted. Izanagi, however, did not immediately grasp this point. He was disappointed by her answer, but continued to coax her to reconsider. At length, Izanami agreed to return to the upper world with him, but insisted that she needed to rest before the journey. She implored him not to disturb her and in no uncertain terms, absolutely not to enter her bedchamber under any circumstances. Izanagi waited, patiently at first, then fitfully. And finally, in keeping with a long line of mythological tales about curiosity and impatience, Westerners often think of Pandora's box here, Izanagi decided to enter the room. And it was utterly dark. Taking his flowing, thick, black hair, he set the ends alight to make a torch to show his way. There, in the sudden brightness, lay Izanami, whom he had loved in a way that only deities can understand. She did not look like she did in those days above soil, though, however. Her visage was horridly pocked, and her body was a crawling infestation of maggots, worms, and insects. Izanagi shrieked and ran. He gave up all thought of bringing his dead mate back and turned tail toward the light. It was a long way off, and what follows is the first chase scene in Japanese mythology. Izanami, for her part, was ashamed and furious, a combination that is challenging enough in the world of beating hearts, but positively vengeful in the land of the dead, where maggots take the place of eyeliner. Izanami gave chase and she had help. She called teams of shikome, befouled maidens, to track him down and keep Izanagi forever in the land of the dead. He ran, throwing obstacles in their way. First, the vine holding up his long hair became black grapes, which they stopped to eat. Next, his comb became bamboo shoots, even as Izanami and the befouled maidens were joined by a force of 1,500 underworld warriors. They stopped to sample the bamboo shoots, too. And even with all of that running and eating, they gained on Izanagi. Finally, almost at the gate, he found a peach tree and plucked three peaches. Peaches are associated in much of East Asia with longevity and even immortality. There he stood in a fierce pose, and the befouled maidens turned and fled. The peaches had saved him in the end. And here is how the Kojiki puts it. And so Izanagi proclaimed to the peaches, As you have helped me, so may you also help any mortals from the islands of Japan who encounter pain or suffering. And with that proclamation, he gave them the title of Mighty and Great Sacred Majesty. But Izanami continued her pursuit, unafraid of sacred peaches. 
Izanagi ducked through the entrance to Yomi, rolled back the boulder that secured it, and listened as Izanami spoke angrily from behind the now-closed barrier. But it was not over, and the world would change again at that very moment. Izanami insisted that he return, and that if he left her, she would kill a thousand people every day. The text calls them green grass mortals. Izanagi, now safe, deific, and fully alive in the world above, refused to go back and insisted that he would arrange for the births of a thousand people to match her daily death toll and then top it with 500 more. It is population growth at the beginning of time, a strange and evocative detail, especially considering the text has not mentioned people at all up until this point. Indeed, it functions as a mythological explanation for birth and death, as the Kojiki makes clear. This is why each and every day 1,000 people die while 1,500 people are born. And here, with birth and death in place, ends the filthy, stench-ridden, maggot-filled journey to the land of the dead. It was time for Izanagi to clean up. Our story will continue from there. But this is a good time to pause and consider the breathless creation, pollution, and reinvigoration at the heart of these myths. What can we make of them? I have been studying Japanese history and political culture for three decades now, and yet I am continually startled and intrigued by the graphic details in these Japanese myths. Japanese mythology is not for the squeamish, and as many parents and teachers have known throughout the centuries, even more difficult to introduce to the young than many Western myths. One way to think about this is through the lens of purity and danger, as anthropologist Mary Douglas has noted. In the land of the dead, purity, good intentions, and bereavement are no match for danger, what Douglas calls the antisocial and polluting elements of death and defilement. Although it is problematic to take direct lessons from mythology, myths are almost always far more complex than stories with clear morals, I do think that we would do well to consider again the significance of cleanliness and purification in Japanese life. Even in the home, it is unthinkable in Japan to wear one's outside shoes beyond the entrance hallway. Slippers abound for the purpose of changing from polluted outside footwear to cleanly indoor varieties. Many homes even have slippers outside the bathrooms so that the indoor footwear will not be tainted by proximity to the toilet. Such purification etiquette is so common that it is intermeshed with every aspect of Japanese society. It also lies at the heart of Shinto religious and ritual practice, and purification plays such a role in temple life that one might well say that the purification and the ritual activity are one and the same. One does not logically precede the other. A wonderful example of purification ritual can be seen in any sumo wrestling match. The actual wrestling usually takes only a few seconds. The purification warm-up takes many minutes, though. So it is all the more striking that Japanese mythology should deal in such graphic detail with issues of purity and impurity. Far from avoiding images of pollution and defilement, the myths embrace them with a gusto that is starkly different from China or Korea, or even Greece or Rome. It seems clear that these themes represent something fundamental to Japanese culture. 
With the perspective of purity and danger in mind, let's go back to the story of the now-widowed Izanagi. After his trip to the land of the dead, he was utterly defiled. As we have seen, it is hard to imagine the levels of ritual pollution that would accumulate in a harried flight from death spirits in the underworld. This level of uncleanliness required more than just a dab of the old washcloth. Izanagi needed to strip down and cleanse himself from the head and that singed shock of torch hair to his fingers and his toes. He needed to purify every last nook and cranny of his heaven-charmed body. And all of these little acts had implications for the world that would follow. Culture creators are like that. Almost everything they do comes with consequences for the future. Izanagi's major bathing was no exception. He dropped his drawers, including various adornments, onto the ground. As each one fell, it formed a new deity. The engenderment process had begun anew. These were not the 1,500 mortals that he vowed to create to outdo Izanami's death charter for 1,000. Those would come later and daily until the end of time. No, these were new deities, and, as it turned out, some of the most important in the entire mythical pantheon. But some parts were more important than others. Nothing compares to the issue that came next. The most significant deities emerged when Izanagi washed his face. From his left eye emerged Amaterasu, the sun goddess. From his right eye came Tsukuyomi, the moon god. And from his nose came Susanoo no Mikoto, the god of storms and seas. Izanagi was overjoyed and proclaimed, after making child after child, I have at last gained three noble children. The rest of our story, and the foundations of an imperial line that has lasted to this very day, begin with these three figures. We might pause again briefly here to consider that, while the birth of the islands and land features was the work of a union of male and female, the key gods and goddesses in Japanese mythology were born asexually from a male god, and, moreover, they were the product of his washing away the uncleanliness of an encounter with his former mate. Nowhere are these matters explained, but we can see a peculiar dynamic at work in which creation is not obviously the result of combined male-female efforts. Of course, it isn't so in Genesis either, but there one god is creating the world and its inhabitants, not other gods. Let's take a closer look at the gods that Izanagi made through his cleansing. Amaterasu, the sun goddess, is the single most important deity in all of Japanese mythology. It can be argued that she is also the most important figure in all of Japanese history. Although she is not worshipped or prayed to in the ordinary sense, she has been one of the key elements of Japanese nation-building up until the present. Her sun power was invoked by early kinship groups who sought to separate themselves from other rivals, and even today, she is the most visible godly connection to the institution of the emperor and the imperial family. Tsukuyomi, the moon god, co-ruled the universe with his sister in the early days. 
An altercation with a food goddess was enough to have him expelled from the top tier of heaven, though, and forever after he would be the lesser light in the heavens. Susa Noo no Makoto was given charge of the seas. Unlike his siblings, though, he did not take up his duties. This caused evil spirits to flourish and calamities to occur. Exasperated, Izanagi asked why he would not rule his realm. I want to go to the land of my mother, answered Susanoo. Note here that he regarded Izanami as his mother, even though he emerged from Izanagi's nostrils. Izanagi was furious and immediately ordered Susanoo indeed to go there, to the land of Yomi, expelling him from the world of the living. And only Izanagi could understand just how harsh a penalty that could be. Instead, Susanoo dallied and insisted that he had to make a proper goodbye to his older sister, the sun goddess. Amaterasu rebuffed him, however. In the world of Japanese mythology, she and the other deities interpreted Susanoo's proposed goodbye as an aggressive move toward usurpation of their own lands, and not a polite taking of leave. Up to heaven, Susanoo tromped, and all of the mountains and rivers shook. Susanoo, ostensibly intending to show his makoto, or sincerity, challenged the sun goddess to an offspring-producing contest. Let us swear sacred oaths and make children, he said. And compete they did, biting jewels and pendants to bits and spitting them into deity offspring, such as Lady Mist, Lady Consecrated Isle, and Lady Seething Torrent, all deities who would look after seaside shrines. Susanoo claimed to have won, but the decision was somewhat in dispute since he engendered the supposedly winning progeny, including one called Little Lad of Heaven, from Amaterasu's own necklace. Nonetheless, Susanoo triumphantly declared himself the victor, and then all little brother bad boy hell broke loose. As the Kojiki states, Susanoo was drunk with victory. We've all seen it before, the celebrant who is just a little too tauntingly joyful. He began by breaking down the ridges of the gods' sacred rice paddies. This is such a serious infraction that anyone today who knows about rice paddy irrigation understands that the ridges are absolutely essential to growing the crop. To break them down is selfish, arrogant, and utterly contemptuous of the needs of others. Susanoo smashed them. Next, he headed to the sacral center. The narrative becomes so strange from here that it is hard to interpret beyond the plain understanding that Susanoo was doing everything he could to surprise, shock, and cause consternation. Take a breath. Here it goes. Susanoo entered the sacred hall of the first fruits, a place where the most important observances of the agricultural cycle took place. Here is where the deities gave thanks to even greater powers for the rich store of agricultural production each year. In a way, it is like thanking the vague collection of original deities for the rice and other bounty that each year brings. It is worth noting that such mythical practices were evoked in real rit rituals in which the Japanese emperor participated. 
It was the solemn role of the emperor, allied with the sun goddess, to praise the heavens every autumn for the fruitful bounty that would sustain human beings for another winter. Emperors are known to have performed this ritual from the very earliest historical records in the 6th century of the Common Era right up to the present. So the sacred nature of the First Fruits Hall would not have been lost on anyone listening to the story of Susanoo's dispute with the other gods. And it is there that he broke in, squatted down, and defecated in the corner. And it gets even worse. He then took his own product and smeared it all over the walls and even into the corners of the rooms, making cleanup a particularly nasty and very possibly fruitless task. And through it all, Amaterasu kept her kind demeanor, saying aloud that there must be several levels of misunderstanding. In this way, she stood by her brother, Paddy Ridge's breakdown, sacred hall feces and all. Believe it or not, the story gets a good deal more graphic from there. But the rice paddies and the polluted hall of the first fruits should be enough to show that this particularly godly degenerate was a real problem. Finally, Amaterasu could take it no more, and she went into hiding. She barred the door and hid her existence from everyone. This was a very serious problem for the world at large. Sun goddesses in dark, locked rooms have consequences for every last being in the universe. She bolted the door and waited. And the world grew dark and cold and fretful. Not only was humankind unable to see even the most basic forms of existence all about them, but the deities themselves found it difficult to claw their ways about the heavens. To solve the problem, a council of 800 deities assembled. They all got together and did some serious hand-wringing about the darkness that plagued land and heaven. Susa Noah would be punished, that was certain. How could they get Amaterasu, she of the shining aura, to come out of her locked room? They pleaded. She ignored all of their petitions. It finally fell upon a hitherto unheralded kami, or spirit being, to set it all aright. She would thereafter have a position in the grand Japanese mythological narrative, for only she was able to craft the plan that coaxed the sun goddess from her shelter. The kami of unbridled joy, Ame no Uzume, set to work. Dancing naked, mirrors, flowers, and falling leaves are all involved. She made the other gods clap with the delight, especially the male ones who are said to have been exceptionally boisterous. And that little click of mythological curiosity engaged again, as it had with Izanagi. Amaterasu peeked outside. Great ray of light followed, and it was the dawn of a new era. The minor gods pulled the prime god from the shadows, and the world was whole again. They also had the good sense to seal her hiding place, negating the possibility that this kind of world-shaking conduct would happen again. Susa Noah was punished and expelled from heaven, but later given a reprieve. He gave his sword as a gift of reconciliation, and the various items from the myth, sacred mirror, sword, and jewels, are said to have become the three regalia at the shrine of Issei, an important Shinto shrine which has been maintained in consummate fashion at the city of Issei since 690 of the Common Era. 
So now we have seen another scatological tale. Indeed, there are more, often with equally graphic details that do not fit into a 30-minute lecture. What can we make of Susanoo's antics here? One persistent theme in mythology all over the world is the trickster, the figure who defies convention and does things his or sometimes her own way. In some senses, Susanoo does play the role of trickster, overturning assumptions and established orders at every corner. Still, I'm inclined to see Susanoo's role more prominently as a deity who hugs the line between purity and impurity, duty and play, oath-taking and cheating. Even his desire to go to the land of Yomi to see his putative mother is something none of his siblings would consider. The Kojiki has no story of him actually going to the land of the dead, but even the willingness to contemplate such an impure area and to equate it with maternal longing strikes many readers as quite jarring. Susanoo plays a significant role with his antics, and they show many of the lines between proper conduct and impropriety. Purity is so significant in Japanese life to this day that Susanoo's very impurity, on numerous occasions, compels listeners to think about their relationship. This is how myth works in many societies. The last thing that we might consider in our everyday lives becomes the very focus of the myth itself. We are, in this way, forced to think about it, whether we like it or not. Mythology often carries this kind of uncomfortable message, and in few places do we see it more clearly than in the stories of Susanoo. This lecture is titled, Gods, Rice, and the Japanese State. Japanese mythology, like Japanese society, reflects a fundamental contradiction. It is both markedly distinctive and deeply indebted to the culture of its neighbors, especially China. In fact, Korea and Japan both bear the enormous influence of Chinese culture. But unlike Korea... Japan was never invaded by Chinese armies, and for this reason, Chinese influences penetrated both more and less conspicuously than they did in Korea. They did not seep across a shared border, as in Korea, but came rather by ship, in the form of trade. They arrived even more prominently with scores of returning Japanese officials and scholars who had been on years-long learning missions to China, in a hive of bustling activity in the 7th, 8th, and 9th centuries. Through what they learned, political thinkers, writers, and religious figures consciously drew on Chinese tradition. The Dean of Japanese Studies in the United States, Edwin Reischauer, spoke to this issue many years ago. Early in their history, the Japanese developed the habit of cataloging foreign influences and contrasting them with native characteristics. One result has been a frequent emphasis in Japanese history on supposedly native Japanese traits. For those of us who love to study Japan, the beauty lies between the two extremes, in the skillful blending of outside influence and native traditions. We first saw this theme in Korea, but China was a world of borrowers too. Indeed, one of the key observations shared by almost all anthropologists and historians is that cultural influence, trade, sharing, and fighting are as old as human societies themselves. 
It is how they borrow and adapt that is interesting, not whether they do so or not. Before we resume our exploration of Japanese myths, it is worth spending a little more time to understand the society and the state in which they developed. As you will see, Japan's mythology was and is closely intertwined with both. The Japan that emerged slowly into the common era was essentially a tribal society, very much like that of early Korea. It was divided into a great number of family groups called Uji, each under a hereditary chief and worshipping its own god, commonly thought of as its ancestor. Japan's first unified political system, the Yamato state, is thought to have been established by roughly 500 BCE. In origin, it was probably an Uji with connections to the sun goddess Amaterasu. It was made up of an elaborate network of great clans and self-consciously focused upon creating a Chinese-style state in central and western Honshu, Japan's largest island as well as the smallest, smaller islands of Kyushu and Shikoku. Once the sun line was established, the effect on subsequent history was distinctive. Even powerful clans that might have taken power for themselves, such as the Soga clan that would vie for power in the late 6th century of the Common Era, instead focused on marriage politics and securing connections to the sun-fueled imperial line with their daughters. In time, their grandsons, too, would be emperors. The growing strength and institutional complexity of the Yamato state were in part the result of continuing contacts with the continent, particularly at this time, Korea. Among the many elements of continental civilization that came to Japan by way of Korea was Buddhism. It in all likelihood drifted, quite literally, to Japan over a rather long period of time, but its official introduction is dated to 552 of the Common Era, when the Korean state of Baekje, one of the three kingdoms, presented a Buddhist image and scriptures to the Yamato court. The new religion was opposed by conservative groups, but was embraced by the Soga Uji, which gained enormous influence at court in the 6th and 7th centuries. They reinvigorated the emperorship and tied it closely to Buddhist ritual and ceremony. From that point on, Buddhism was established in Japanese court life. It would begin to pervade all levels of society from there. And in the syncretic blending of traditions, it is important to understand that Confucian thought, Buddhist thought, and Japan's indigenous Shinto traditions, the ones we have been studying in our myths, merged together over the centuries. In 604, Prince Shotoku issued a set of precepts known as the 17-Article Constitution, which advocated, in heavily Confucian rhetoric mixed with Buddhist strains, such ideas as the complete supremacy of the ruler, the centralization of government, and a bureaucracy staffed by merit-selected group of officials. This, too, was political mythology and of a very important kind. Here are the first words of the opening articles. Harmony is to be valued. Revere the three treasures, Buddha, law and doctrine, and the monastic orders. Obey the imperial command. Even in these tiny snippets, we see a world of borrowing. The harmony is to be valued injunction is character by character straight out of the Chinese tradition. Buddhism had clearly come from abroad, and the imperial command resonates with concepts of a Chinese-style emperor on the dragon throne. This is a syncretic blending of political myth-making. 
from the fragments of other traditions, a ruling order was being solidified. The tales from the Kojiki move almost imperceptibly from a full-blown mythological world in the heavens down to the actions of deities and culture heroes on the earth. It's important to understand that transition in order that transition in order to see how the heavens and Japan's rulers are linked. Ironically enough, Susanoo, the very deity who caused the great heavenly row that temporarily deprived the world of light, figures in the Kojiki's transition to the land below. He left the heavens and went down to make his place in a territory called the land of billowing clouds. It is not the Japanese archipelago that we know today. It is still a place of mythical geography. Still, it is significant that the bad boy of the gods begins the transition out of heaven and slowly leads the way toward myth history. In fact, once out of the heavens, Susanoo becomes something of a culture hero himself. He killed a fearsome dragon that had devoured seven of a family's eight daughters. Using precious sake made from the very best rice, he got the dragon drunk. Then he slew it. And in the dragon's tail, he found a great broadsword, which he presented to Amaterasu, his sister, the sun goddess. In the meantime, an enormous group of 80 brothers, agitated and focused on one goal only, made their cantankerous way across the land. This was not a pleasant group of young men by any means. Each thought to marry the same young woman, Princess Yagami. And it seems that the only way that they worked well together was when they brought harm to others. They were even cruel to their own family. They made another brother, Okuninushi, serve as their porter, and he lagged behind, carrying their bags for them. It is at this juncture that the famous Hare of Inaba comes in. There's a statue to the little guy standing today in Totori City in west-central Japan. Here's what the Kojiki tells. The brothers came across a poor little white hare that had been stripped of all its fur, the result of a close encounter with a sea beast. The hare was weeping. The brothers, feigning compassion, told it to go bathe in the brine below and then climb a hill to dry off. Well, the hare did just that, and the sea salt left him a blistering mess. By the time he emerged from the water, the brothers had moved on, laughing at their little joke. Along came Okuninushi, lugging the bags. Seeing the suffering hare, Okuninushi sought to help. Go down to the estuary and wash in its waters. Then take pollen from the bulrushes growing there, sprinkle it about, and roll around in it. Then your skin will recover. And the hare was quickly good as new, in a kind of mythological medical timetable. It spoke in thanks to Okuninushi and told him that he would be the one to win the princess, not his 80 brothers. And sure enough, the princess rejected all of the brothers, saying that she would only marry the little brother who had once borne the luggage and cared for a suffering animal. Spurned, the brothers now banded together again. Their new task was to kill Okuninushi. And here's a fascinating twist that is possible only in mythology. You see, they killed him and then killed him again. In keeping with a worldwide mythological theme, Okuninushi had to endure multiple deaths in order to complete his quest. In this case, it was his divine mother who brought him back to life and then admonished him that he must flee from his brothers or else they will kill you in the end. And so 
Okuninushi hit the road. In time, he found himself at the household of Susanoo, still a deity of formidable skills. Susanoo's daughter was about that day, and Okuninushi, in spite of the opportunity he had to marry Princess Yagami, fell straight in love with her. Well, Lady Bold, as she was called, reciprocated. In fact, she was quite taken with Okuninushi. They pledged themselves to one another, and Lady Bold ran to tell her father the news. Out came Susanoo. But something odd happened. He invited his new son-in-law to be into his home. Could it be that he had a bit of a soft side? This rule-overturning, dragon-slaying, and now aging bad boy? Nope. Once inside the house, Susanoo tossed Okuninushi into a chamber filled with deadly snakes. The younger culture hero was only saved because his lover had given him a special snake-charming scarf, which he waved three times, taming the snakes. Next night, it was a pit of centipedes and wasps, so she gave him the special centipede and wasp scarf, unscathed again. Later, Susanoo tricked Okuninushi into fetching an arrow he had shot far into the distance. When the dutiful Okuninushi went to get it, Susanoo set a circle of fire certain to burn him to death. But he escaped with divine help. Finally, Okuninushi took matters into his own hands. As Susanoo slept, he carefully tied the great deity's long, flowing hair to the rafters. He took Susanoo's own broadsword, his bow and arrows, and even a gem-studded zither. And then he and Lady Bold fled, quietly, at least at first. Before long, though, the zither brushed against a tree, and the whole earth shook. Up woke the still-powerful Susanoo, and he pulled his own home to the ground with his hair as he gave chase. By the time he had untangled himself, the couple was far away. So Susanoo, passing the torch in a quite profound way, called after them. Pursue your brothers with the broadsword and the bow and arrows that you now bear in your hands. Chase after them and smite them upon the hill spurs. Chase after them and sweep them into the rivers. Then, my boy, you will be called the spirit great landmaster, and you will take my daughter, Lady Bold, as your chief wife. Plant the pillars of your mighty halls into the base of bedrock, raise its roof beams as high as the plains of heaven, and then dwell there, you scoundrel. And so Okuninushi followed Susanoo's advice, swept his brothers into the rivers, and established a new kind of leadership under the heavenly realm. It would still take some time before earthly rule was established, but Okuninushi, the great landmaster, led the way. Remember, all of the foregoing took place in the land of the billowing clouds and other vaguely defined mythical areas, not on the earth as we know it. But slowly, the myths in the Kojiki begin to emphasize affairs under heaven. Even these more earthly themes, however, are often connected to the realm above. One such theme is the growing of that all-important crop, rice, which, according to the Kojiki, is made possible by one of the most formidable acts of the sun goddess to benefit the earth. Amaterasu sent down to earth one of her talented grandsons to cultivate the land, more specifically, to plant rice. His name? Ninigi no Mikoto, 
can be translated as ruling rice ears of heaven. And he set right to work. Why he was chosen is not divulged in the, in the Kojiki's narratives, nor does the Kojiki offer a detailed genealogy of Amaterasu's heirs. But once he was entrusted to this earthly agricultural mission, Ninigi no Mikoto embraced its challenges with energy. Amaterasu herself gave Ninigi no Mikoto rice grains that she had taken from the fields of heaven. From these, Ninigi no Mikoto was able to transform a barren earth of scattered lands into a patterned, flowing, cultured land of rice. The story continues as Ninigi marries a beautiful mortal woman whose name translates as Lady Downward Shining. Two sturdy sons followed, and, in keeping with the island imagery of Japanese mythology, one focused on the sea and the other on the land. In fact, the myth becomes an elaborate struggle between the brothers that in only one respect is about the heavenly genealogy of which line will rule all under heaven. In another fashion, it is a contest between land and sea, which would be ascendant in the lives of the Japanese people. This gets to the very core of mythology in Japan and beyond. Hoderi no Mikoto, the elder brother, spent his time on the seas, fishing. Hori no Mikoto, the younger brother, was a hunter and worked his way across the land. And then, in a plot twist suited beautifully to mythology, the brothers decided to switch both their occupations and the tools of their trades. Hori no Mikoto lost his older brother's fishhook. Hoderi demanded it back, so his younger brother dove to the bottom of the ocean to find it. No luck. What he did find instead was the palace of a great sea deity, whose name can be translated as Ocean Majesty. Even as his more seaworthy older brother waited on land, the young Ho'ori fell in love with the sea deity's daughter, Lady Bountiful Soul. Ocean Majesty was so impressed with young Ho'ori, remember that he is the great-grandson of the sun goddess, that he straightway spread out many layers of sea lion pelts with silk over them and seated Ho'odi on top of them. He prepared hundreds of tables, piled high with wedding gifts, and held a mighty feast, and then he gave his daughter, Lady Bountiful Soul, in marriage. So there, below the seas, they lived together for three years, while Ho'odi waited for the fish hook above. They were a happy couple in the marvelous deep, but, the, but Ho'ori began to sigh in the evenings, and this worried his wife. She told her father about this turn of events. Ocean Majesty, hearing of the fish hook, sent a message throughout the waters to find the hook. Before long, a red sea bream said that it did indeed have something wedged into its throat. Ocean Majesty then gave Ho'ori specific instructions on how to win the struggle with his brother. The fish hook was now charmed and Ocean Majesty told Ho'ori to give it to his brother from behind his back. So up from the sea went Ho'ori, riding on the back of a sea beast. Straight away, he backhanded the fish hook to his brother. Eventually, the elder brother, weakened by the fish hook charm, was subdued. He pledged himself to the younger, saying, Henceforth, I shall be your humble slave and serve as your guard day and night, O mighty one. And now we come to the pivot of the entire process that brought deities down to the realms under heaven. 
Ho'odi's wife announced that she was pregnant. A new chapter was about to begin, but not before one more twist took place. No matter what you do, she told Ho'odi, please do not look upon me while I give birth. I must give birth in my original form. Don't look. And there, in the special birthing hut that was built for her, the process began. As you might have guessed, Ho'odi went up to the hut and peeked in. There he saw an enormous sea beast with slithering, twisting arms. Panicking, he fled. Lady Bountiful Soul was humiliated and left for the sea, leaving her child lying right there. The child survived, however, and had a special wet nurse that cared for it. Up it grew into a sturdy young man who eventually married his maternal aunt. It's mythology, remember. They had four sons. The youngest of them became Emperor Jimu, the very first emperor of Japan. That is a long and twisting genealogical history, to be sure. But the connection between the Japanese imperial line and the gods isn't just a matter of lineage. In Japanese mythology, an ongoing relationship exists between the emperors and heaven, a relationship nurtured through ritual and tradition. To understand that tradition, we need to look more closely at a key ingredient of Japanese mythology and culture, rice. Listen to the cadences of a brief myth-historical poem that shows a distinctly Japanese flavor and speaks to the hard labor involved in preparing rice for offerings for rituals at the imperial court. My hands so chapped from rice pounding, tonight again he will hold them, sighing, my young lord of the mansion. It comes from the Manyoshu, or Myriad Leaves Anthology. All told, the Manyoshu contains over 4,000 individual poems. Like the great collection of myths found in the Kojiki, the Record of Ancient Matters, the Myriad Leaves Anthology was put together during a rich period of compilation during the 8th, 9th, and 10th centuries. Many of the Manyoshu's poems are filled with images of agricultural production of a particular kind, specifically the rice production that has framed Japanese identities through time. Indeed, my last few words are the very subtitle of an absolutely magnificent book by the anthropologist Emiko Onukutirni called Rice as Self, Japanese Identities Through Time. Rice affected everyone, from farmer to aristocrat, or, in later eras, the learned, sword-wielding samurai. It was sustenance. It was even a powerful form of currency in Japan right up until a few hundred years ago. Samurai were paid in rice allotments, and even great estates were measured by their rice yields. Rice was far more than a mere foodstuff in Japanese mythology and history. And as we have seen, the earliest entertainments and the origin of festival dates found in later calendars were the great agricultural celebrations. These marked the time of planting after the long winter, as well as the harvest festivities to celebrate the end of another agricultural year in the autumn. So now... Keeping in mind the importance of rice and the rhythms of the calendar in Japanese mythology, let's consider a more extended image of hard work and eventual celebration. It is taken from another work of the extraordinarily rich period between 700 and 1000. From a work called the Engishiki, this ritual incantation is one of many that has been preserved from that early period of Shinto practice. 
This snippet describes the grain petitioning festival and speaks to the relationship between heaven above, earth below, and rice, the vital grain that, at least in the mythological world, sustained all life. This year in the second month, just as the grain cultivation is about to begin, I present the noble offerings of the sovereign grandchild. And as the morning sun rises in effulgent glory, fulfill your praises, thus I speak. The latter grain to be harvested with foam dripping from the elbows, to be pulled hither with mud adhering to both thighs. If this grain be be vouchsafed by you in ears by many hands long, in luxuriant ears, then the first fruits will be presented in a thousand stalks, eight hundred stalks, rising high the soaring necks of the countless wine vessels filled to the brim. Beyond iconic festivals of the calendar, such as Tanabata, which celebrates the herd boy and the weaving maiden, almost every agricultural society in the world holds celebrations at four key times of the year, the spring and autumn equinoxes, and, only slightly less significantly, the winter and summer solstices. By the time the Kojiki and Manyoshu were compiled, that is, by the 10th century, these nodal points on the calendar were firmly cemented in the practice of everyone from the peasant farmers and the rural aristocracy to the very centers of life in the capital. The farmers dipped their arms up to the elbows in the foam. Even aristocrats pounded rice for ritual offerings. Everyone celebrated. In the capital, the festivals involved days of celebration and amusements. Among the rice fields of the provinces, such extended leisure was a practical impossibility. There was work to be done, after all. But the intensity of the celebrations was nonetheless anticipated throughout the year. Throngs of celebrants rejoiced with day-long singing, dancing, clapping, and competitions. The grain petitioning festival incantation encapsulates the experience beautifully. The immediacy of the language, dripping foam, soaring rice stalks, and plentiful wine gives a hint of the sheer entertainment accompanying this most important period of the Japanese year. And the event that launched each celebration was the first planting ritual. At its very highest performative level, the emperor would ceremonially plant a row of rice seedlings, while the various court ministers would plant to his right and left. By this act, the emperor connected himself to Amaterasu's rice-planting grandson, Ninigi no Mikoto, and through him to Amaterasu herself. And he was connected to heaven in another way as well, in the Shinto religion, the very rice grain itself. Every one is a kami, a deity. So as he honored the deities who gave Japan rice, the emperor also affirmed his own legitimacy. Let's return now to the subject of the imperial line that has continued unbroken throughout Japanese history. Japan's first emperor, Jimu, grasped the reins of power from the age of the gods and rode his chariot of rulership to imperial greatness, an unbroken line of emperors from 660 BCE to the present. At least that's what this political mythology claims. 660 BCE is a fanciful date that is based on symbolic numerology borrowed from China. In fact, there would be no written records to speak of for at least a thousand more years after the supposed time of Emperor Jimu. But still, Japanese history books, 
and even school books well into the 20th century taught that the imperial institution began in 660 BCE. And connecting the sun goddess to Jimu required the hard mythological labors of culture heroes such as Okuni Nushi, Ninigi no Mikoto, and his battling sons, and eventually the very first emperor. The Kojiki tells the whole story and continues it right into the world of the myth-historical emperors themselves. So a string of 125 emperors is said to have ruled Japan in unbroken succession since the hazy myth-historical days of Jimu, through well-documented historical eras until today. And every one of them is also said to be a descendant of Amaterasu, the sun goddess, and a successor of Emperor Jimu. Now consider how Emperor Jimu's cultural heroics and Amaterasu's influence have coursed through the ages. The following snatch of verse comes from the Manyoshu, or Myriad Leaves Anthology. The poems speak of life in the 7th and 8th centuries, and even books such as the Kojiki are noted in its elegant and cadenced poems. Lo, our great sovereign, a deity, tarries on the thunder in the clouds of heaven. This little poem is based on the foundational concept that Japanese emperors are the offspring of Amaterasu, the sun goddess, and that they are more than mere mortals. Indeed, it even hints that emperors themselves are deities and that their proper place is in the heavens above. Perhaps the most significant theme in all of Japanese mythology links the sun goddess, the emperors, life-giving rice, purification, and ritual all themes that carry over from the very earliest myths in Japan. We saw the centrality of these themes when the sun goddess sent her grandson down to earth with heavenly grains. The snippet I just read you is far more significant than its three lines might suggest. You see, Amaterasu, the sun goddess, and every emperor are related, and in a rather baffling and closely guarded way. Among the numerous rituals incumbent upon any emperor to perform, one has always been so hidden and so secretive that it is performed only once per reign, and almost no one, not even the meticulous ritual specialists who choreograph every movement of it, gets to watch. It happens during the evening before the emperor's official public investiture ceremony, and it continues through the dark of night, right up until dawn. It is called Mitama Shizume, and translates as Rejuvenation of the Soul. It is where Japanese mythology, history, and political life meet. It is said that the emperor lies on a sacred bed that has been placed, in turn, on a sacred seat. A court lady, sometimes too, is responsible for receiving the emperor's mortal soul, which is believed to depart temporarily from his body in order to renew it on the eve of his emperorship. Interpretations vary considerably but one of the most persistent of them aligns with the mythical tale of the sun goddess when she hid away and deprived the world of light. Like the sun goddess in that Kojiki tale, the emperor goes to the sacred bed. This parallels the sun goddess's retreat to her cave when she deprived the land and heavens of sun. If you recall, she eventually is coaxed out of hiding by the other deities. In the case of the emperor, he reappears, rejuvenated, at dawn, ready for his new place in the unbroken line of rulers. The ritual I'm describing is ancient, but it's not history. Lest you think that it was only practiced in bygone times, let me tell you how I first heard of the rejuvenation ceremony. 
certainly wasn't in a book published in Japan where it is rarely spoken of openly. It wasn't in a Western monograph about Japanese culture either. Instead, I read about it in the Chicago Tribune. Upon the death of the Showa Emperor, Hirohito, who reigned from 1926 to 1989, ritual specialists at the imperial court began almost two years of preparation for the investiture of Hirohito's son, Akihito, the next emperor, the Heisei Emperor. But times had changed. Certainly, times had changed since the rituals first established with Akihito, a slightly more nuanced post-World War II relationship to divinity was to begin. And since the war, national sovereignty had been at least officially invested in the people of Japan. And yet the rejuvenation ceremony still took place in November 1990. One day that month, I opened the paper and found an article that quoted an exasperated member of Japan's parliamentary body, the Diet who complained that the ceremony would cost the equivalent of a million U.S. dollars, all for a secret and, as he hinted, superstitious ritual. Imperial ritual specialists disagreed, saying that it was unthinkable to proceed without it. And so, in early November of 1990, the Heisei Emperor, Akihito, went to the sacred enclosure and was rejuvenated. Myth, ritual, and the power of the sun goddess persist to this very day in Japan. This lecture is titled Nature Gods and Tricksters of Polynesia. In this lecture, we will explore the territory, if we can properly call it that, of Polynesia. Polynesia is a vast concept so vast that it tests our ability to conceive of it as a single element. And yet the mythological themes that connect the Hawaiian Islands with areas as far flung as New Zealand are almost palpable. Throughout this massive territory, there are consistent tales of a culture hero that are told in similar ways, both on the big island of Hawaii and down in the cold southern reaches of New Zealand. In fact, the Polynesian cultural area extends, if you look at a map of the Pacific, like a great boomerang, sometimes a triangle, from Hawaii in the north to New Zealand in the south. In between can be found the Society and Cook Islands, Tahiti, Tonga, Samoa, and many hundreds of others. It is hard to imagine that in a time when ocean travel took place in canoes, that ideas could move so freely, but there is a consistency that is startling in Polynesian tales. It is almost as though the geology of the region has merged with its mythology, and the great tectonic plates of the Pacific Basin separated the islands by long distances while keeping their mythology intact. Instead of skipping around Polynesia, we'll use Hawaii as our center of focus in this lecture, but many of the tales, and especially the Maui cycle from with which we will finish, are told throughout the Polynesian islands. Let's get a bit of the flavor of Hawaiian mythology as we begin. Hawaiian tales focus upon worship and storytelling about nature deities. Many of the Hawaiian deities, like the nature deities called kami in Japan, have no specific identities. They are beyond any kind of enumeration, and yet they are everywhere. There are also family gods and various little gods in every corner of the world. And these deities are by no means all positive or even neutral forces. 
along with compassionate helper deities, are the nasty little menehune that lie in wait, seeking to trip up humans at every turn. We will hear more of both as we proceed. Among the most supreme of mythological figures in Hawaii are the male-female combination of Ku and Hina. Although Ku is sometimes spoken of as the most important of all the gods, it is in their partnership that they are, from my perspective, the most compelling. Listen to this Hawaiian invocation to them. It is traditionally spoken in hopes of having a prosperous and productive season on land and sea. O Ku, O Hina, soften your land that it may bring forth. Bring forth where? Bring forth in this sea squid, ulua fish, and more. Encourage your land to bring forth. Bring forth where? Bring forth on land, potatoes, taro, gourds, coconuts, bananas, and calabashes. Encourage your land to bring forth. Bring forth what? Bring forth men, women, children, pits, fowl, food, and land. Encourage your land to bring forth. Bring forth what? Bring forth chiefs, commoners, pleasant living, bring about goodwill, and ward off ill will. If you think back to our discussions of yin and yang in the East Asian traditions of China, Korea, and Japan, you will remember that the two dimensions of experience shade into one another in all sorts of ways in the course of any day. One is never all powerful. The two are always blending into one another. The godlike influences of Ku and Hina work in similar fashion. Ku is often spoken of as rising, upright. Hina as leaning, facing down. Ku is associated with the rising sun, and Hina with its setting. The morning belongs to Ku, the afternoon to Hina. It goes further, and in a fashion that runs to tens of items, east and west, upland and lowland, land and sea, all are separately associated, now with Ku, now with Hina. One is always becoming the other. Ku was seen as the foundation of agricultural life, which even in Hawaii, the Hawaiian islands was central to all existence. Likewise for Hina and the sea. For an island people, the sea figured in countless plans to feed the population. And together, Ku and Hina influence all human sustenance. It gets a little complicated from here, for there are plentiful deities often called Ku gods. Life is extended to particular aspects of life. Even though they are called Ku gods, they share many elements, like yin and yang, of both Ku and Hina. These Ku gods are subordinate gods, overseen in a manner of speaking by the larger force of Ku and Hina who preside over them all. Here are a few. Ku Moko Hali, Ku spreading over the land, Ku Olono Wau, Ku of the deep forest, Ku Mauna Ku, Ku of the mountain. And some of them preside over the actual physical life and labor of the people. Kupa Aike, Ku of the carving out of the canoe, Ku Kao'o, Ku of the digging stick. Finally, some Ku gods look over the domain specifically associated with Hina, fishing and the seas. There is another example of Ku and Hina merging into one, just as yin and yang are really two parts of the same round circle. 
Let's take a look at a myth that helps to illustrate this dynamic. A fisherman could seek the protection of any number of fishing gods, and one of the most famous of them was Ku Ulakai, Ku of Sea Abundance. Ku Ulakai lived ostensibly as an ordinary human in East Maui and under the human name of Ku Ula and had the power of beckoning fish, large and small. His wife, Hina Pukuia, and his brother, Ku Ula Uka, lived in the hills with his brother's wife, who happened to be Hina's sister. The heart of the story begins when the supply of food diminishes and the people, mere mortals all, are hungry. The chief of the fishing village called upon Kuula and his brother to bring forth more fish. The chief clearly thought of them as ordinary, albeit talented men. So Kuula built an elaborate fish pond, which immediately attracted, attracted many fish. And yet a jealous chief from the nearby island of Molokai, who was capable of growing into a 300-foot eel, surreptitiously slipped into the pond, ate his fill, and in attempting to leave, found that he could not fit through the pond's exit or entrance anymore. Down into a deep cavern in the pond, the hole of the Ulua fish, went the eel-like rival chief. Drama ensued when Kuula caught the intruder with delectable roasted coconut meat on a hook, killed him with a rock, and gutted him. A kind of political jockeying ensued when the dead eel chief's cronies sought revenge. In a series of dramatic tricks and escapes, too long to relate in detail here, Kuula set in motion a series of natural disasters that subdued them all. If we back up and consider the myth in relation to human life and sustenance, we can see that it centers on vital supplies of fish needed for sustaining life in the islands. Because the story assumes a world beyond the actions of mere humans, though, it also speaks to the larger cosmological themes of Ku gods that explain the details of life on Earth. So what could be more important in the watery world of the Hawaiian Islands than the creation of the sea? The great god Lono, made even more powerful by peculiar historical circumstances as we shall see, is the power of the seas, as well as of clouds and storms. By some accounts, he peeks out from the clouds above to ponder the actions of humanity on the seas and soil, always keeping an eye on their conduct. Lono clearly overlaps Ku and Hina with his role in the seas, but they are not at odds in the myths. Rather, it is as though the older gods function on a different plane than the younger, vibrant force of Lono. And Lono was responsible, according to many myths, for the great Makahiki festival every autumn. Here is the story behind it. The great god Lono sent two of his brothers to Earth, where they were to find him a wife. They traveled throughout the islands before arriving in the Waipo Valley on the big island of Hawaii. There they found the lovely maiden, Ka'ikilani, accompanied by birds in a grove of breadfruit trees in itself an image of sustenance, since this form of the mulberry family is hearty when cooked. Down to the islands came Lono on a rainbow, and the maiden became a goddess and his wife. They lived happily together, and this is one of my favorite details, engaged in surfing off of the island shores. But mythology rarely rests with two happy lovers enjoying sun, surf, and marital bliss. A chief of Earth, not named in the myth, 
beckoned the goddess with a love song. Lono heard the song and, in his rage, took out his fury on Kaikilani. It is difficult for a Westerner not to think of Shakespeare's Othello with these images. The Hawaiian story is equally poignant and disturbing. Before she died at her husband Lono's hands, Kaikilani professed her innocence and her abiding love for him. Despondent, Lono realized too late his violent folly. In his pain, he resolved to create a great competition, the Makahiki Games, in honor of her. From island to island he would go, wrestling all comers. Defeating them all, his grief and rage were only partly assuaged. And then he decided to leave. The people heaped his great canoe with supplies, and off alone sailed Lono. But he left this promise to return to them, but not by canoe. Rather, he would bring them, the image is ambiguous, an island full of trees, teeming with coconuts and swarming with pigs, chickens, and other abundance. In one manner or another, Lono would be back. In at least one sense, Lono shows himself every week, if not every single day. Sure signs of Lono's presence include rain, wind, rainbows, clouds of all kinds, thunder, and lightning as well as the flash floods that are common along the hillside streams of Hawaii's volcanic islands. As one invocation begins, Lono, the rolling thunder. Lono, the heavens that rumble. Lono, the disturbed sea. Above all, Lono was recognized by the calendar, a good way of cementing a mythological personage in the rhythms of early life, as we've seen before. As the god of fertility, from lush fields to families full of children, Lono was celebrated in the Makahiki festival that was held during the rainy season that stretches between late October and into February. It was the end of a lunar year configuration known all over the northern hemisphere, the harvest nature's bounty in the fall and rest until spring. As the French sociologist Marcel Granet has noted, being a part of the calendar is key to being commemorated in mythology. The celebratory period of the Makahiki Festival was filled with offerings, competitions, and prayers to Lono. The festival completed one year and looked with anticipation to another. And Lono's supposed return for the Makahiki Festival every late autumn called for an extended celebration. Lono's great power had another dimension that we must consider if we are to understand the relationship between mythology and political power of all kinds in Oceania. You see, it wasn't just Lono in the calendar. There was religious hierarchy too. Lono was the key focus of worship in an entire order of priests whose role was to invoke the great spirit for rain, fertile soil, abundant crops, and even avoidance of sickness and turmoil. To put this all together, we need to look at the long god of the Makahiki festival, an elaborate effigy of Lono that makes its circuit of the islands. Each island has its own slightly varying Makahiki traditions, but all beckon him to appear forthwith. Called Akua Loa, the long god is an elaborate wooden post with a wooden likeness of a head. It has a cross pole near the top that holds streamers, feathers, and cloth, which flowed as it was carried during the festival. 
I like to think of the long god leaving ripples of combined sacrality and festivity in its wake. So all along each island's sea coast, the long god made its slow movement over several weeks while people gathered, splashed, and celebrated. At the same time, the assembled priesthood invoked Lono to grace the Makahiki festival with his presence. Hail to Lono, were the shouts, a little like the ubiquitous Allez one hears in the Tour de France. All the while, the priests invoked the clouds to the south, in Tahiti, the direction from which Lono was said to come for each year's festival. And here, Hawaiian mythology takes a strange turn that helps us to understand the complex relationship between native mythology, colonial encroachment, and the modern study of anthropology. In the last decades of the 18th century, Hawaiian cultures and mythology collided suddenly with European civilization, and the impact had a powerful effect on both. Picture what Hawaii and the Makahiki Festival must have been like in the late 18th century, before a Caucasian face had ever been seen on the islands. Imagine the long god celebrations and competitions, and the various prayers and invocations. Up and down the seacoast went the long god, and the splashing and social joy seemed sure to bring the god forth to bestow his great blessings. And there, in the middle of it all, up to the shores sail the large ships of a certain Captain James Cook. A captain in Britain's Royal Navy, Cook had made three successive voyages into the Pacific, where he mapped and explored the eastern coastline of Australia, circumnavigated New Zealand, and made his way, in time, to the Hawaiian Islands. It was the winter of 1778-1779. Yes, Captain Cook sailed right into the waiting arms of the Makahiki Festival, and, at least according to one line of thinking, the celebrating Hawaiians saw him as the very embodiment of Lono come to shore, this time with a naval uniform and a jaunty hat. This is the basic germ of a complex and sophisticated argument made by the anthropologist Marshall Sollins in his major contribution to historical and anthropological theory, Islands of History. Let's take a moment and reflect on why this interpretation could possibly work in the context of an 18th century Makahiki festival. The rainy season gave leisure. An entire class of priests was devoted to supplication of Lono. The long god itself revved up the religious spirit to the point where the arrival of never-before-seen ships and peoples could very well be thought of as the very stuff of deities at least until grubby British sailors started to test the patience of the Hawaiian people. It was Lono and his sandy-haired minions. The timing was perfect, even if the details seemed improbable. You see, it wasn't long before another highly regarded scholar fiercely criticized Solins. Gananath Obiesekere, an academic anthropologist, assailed Solins for getting it all wrong and in the worst possible way, as a comfortable, white, latter-day colonist. From Obiesa Carey's point of view, the Hawaiians could not have been so benighted as to think that the very mortal Captain Cook was a god, and to suggest such a thing smacks of colonialism itself. Solins's rebuke 
in a full-length book was so thorough and intense that the entire debate has become the stuff of anthropological, well, mythology. But there is one more element to the story of Captain Cook, and it has all of the strange intrigue and utter confusion often found in mythical tales themselves. You see, Captain Cook, his crew, and the accompanying ships under his command set sail to explore more of the North Pacific. The great ships sailed off into the distance and were not supposed to be seen again, at least not until the next Makahiki festival. And then a funny thing happened. A foremast broke, and the vessels came back. Whether Hawaiians saw Cook as Lono or just a naval commander, his return was distinctly unwelcome. The British sailors had tested the patience of the Hawaiians already, and no one was happy about seeing them again. Tempers simmered and then flared openly. Cook himself made several unwise decisions, including directly confronting the king on February 14, 1779. What happened next is absolutely clear in only one respect. Captain Cook was killed. The rest of the details are subject to both serious historical and cultural debate on the one hand and overwrought sensationalism on the other. But Cook remains a formidable presence in both Hawaiian and European myth history. The demigod Maui is one of the most popular characters in all of Polynesian mythology, and he can be found in tales from Hawaii to New Zealand. Maui is often linked, and quite correctly, to trickster figures throughout the world. The trickster is a common character in mythology and often combines quite extraordinary abilities with a combination of mischief, immense curiosity, sometimes dangerous hubris, a cruel streak in some cases, and utter lack of predictability. We might think of a scaled-down version of a trickster in the person of a court jester, but a jester with a dangerous power to act on his capricious ideas. Have we seen other trickster figures? That is a fair question. It can be argued that the character of Susanoo works in such a fashion in Japanese mythology. He was immensely strong and talented, but also misbehaved and defied custom on all sorts of occasions. But a broader repertoire of trickster behavior comes to the fore when we, con- when we consider the character Maui, and we'll encounter several more tricksters in other areas of the Pacific as well. One thing that must be underlined, the trickster Maui is a character known throughout the vast territories of Polynesia. Only in the loosest sense should we equate this legendary Maui with his namesake, Hawaiian Island. Tricksters in world mythology often have odd or problematic births and tense relations with parents and siblings. The same is true of the Maui tales, although they differ to some extent from island to island. Many of the tales tell that he was aborted and left for dead, only to track down his mother who rejected him repeatedly. While Maui's mother came to accept him in time, his brothers never did. The role of any kind of a father is also hazy, but he does appear in at least one tale, as we will see. Let's start with Maui's role in helping humans obtain fire, though. Maui knew that humans needed fire, and only the mud hens had it. One day, the hens were roasting bananas when Maui tracked them down at Wainai on the leeward side of Oahu. Every time he got close, they snuffed out the fire. At length, 
he caught the smallest of the mud hens who refused to divulge the source of the embers. The hen tricked Maui in turn with false answers, ranging from tarot stalks to various kinds of leaves. At last, the mud hen relented and told him the true source of fire. Ironically enough, a kind of sacred water called Waimea. Maui thereby garnered fire for all of humanity, but his resentment lingered over the the little mud hen's trickery. Maui the trickster had been tricked, so as he prepared to leave, he rubbed a painful red streak onto the mud hen's head as punishment before releasing it. This is why mud hens have red foreheads. Maui's next challenge was that the sun raced so quickly through the sky that the days were not long enough to finish planting, cultivating, and other tasks. There were tiny slices of sunlight and long, almost interminable nights. Maui enlisted the help of his blind grandmother and was able to lasso the sun as it began to come up in the sky. The sun, constrained for the first time, was frightened and agreed to a compromise. The days would be long in the summer and shorter in the winter. Maui was two for two, and humankind benefited enormously. Let's consider one more powerful change and call it three for three. Heaven and earth were too close together, and the sky pressed down upon the earth. Realizing this, Maui sought to fortify himself to solve the problem, and he asked a woman for a drink from her gourd. You may interpret this for yourself, but the myths do not regard it as a neutral expression. In any case, Maui gained the strength to widen the space between heaven and earth. Standing on the peak of Kauki, he pushed the sky powerfully upward. In the low valleys, the space was enormous, and even though the clouds still hang low over the mountains, they usually do not touch. Maui brought fire, snared the sun, and pushed up the sky. This is the very stuff of legend, but we have hardly even gotten started. There's much more to the Maui cycle of Polynesian myth, in addition to fire, longer days, and a wider space between earth and sky. Maui brought up the very islands themselves. One version has it that Maui sought to hook the great fish, Luehu, on what was called the Night of Lono. This stupendous act would, in the logic of the myth, bring the Hawaiian islands together into one large landmass. In a tangled set of stories, Maui caught the great fish and engaged in a fierce battle to bring it and the lands in. As he struggled, he was distracted, sometimes by a beautiful woman. The great fish escaped the hook, leaving the islands of Nihau and Kauai far from Maui and the big island of Hawaii. It was Maui's first failure. While he had pulled them up out of the sea, the islands would always be separated, requiring dangerous canoe passage between them. Very possibly the most famous of all Maui stories recounts his battle with the great eel. The eel had a very lovely wife who was not a little frustrated by the lack of ardor on the part of her clammy husband. She beckoned males all over land and sea. Many desired to return her amorous beckoning, but their ardor was squelched by fear of the eel's awesome power. They knew that moments of watery joy would turn to revenge and almost certain eel-induced death. And yet, 
Maui's mother encouraged him to pursue the frustrated wife's advances. This can be interpreted in various ways, but most see it as continuous with feats that would make the world a safer place. It was indeed a way to counter the power of the big eel. And there is a pattern here. We have seen that many of Maui's greatest achievements neutralized out-of-control powers, whether they were wielded by a racing sun, a crushing sky, or even the great and powerful eel. The story hurtles forward. The beautiful wife made her advances and was delighted that Maui responded in kind. They lived together for a blissful several years as Maui and wife, a situation that, while common in oceanic myths, never seems to last. Indeed, a vengeful, spurned husband lurked somewhere in the background. And finally, the great eel summoned his bubbling anger and made for Maui. Immense battles ensued, and these contests are as great as any that we have seen so far. At length, Maui succeeded in literally gutting the great eel and looked to be a happy and comfortable demigod for a long time to come. The world was a safer and arguably better place for his tricky exploits. So let us bring the story of Maui to a close. Fresh off of victory over the dreaded eel, he embarked upon his greatest challenge of all. The New Zealand version of this tale describes it as Maui's last battle. It also contains brief reference to Maui's father, who appears in very few of the other Maui tales anywhere in Polynesia. It goes like this. Maui was troubled that people died and that death was forever. But in order to bring forth a kind of immortality, he would have to deal with death's cause, the ancestral presence of an old goddess named Hina Nue Tepo. Hine Nue Tepo's ability to cause people's deaths is attributed to the New Zealand, in the New Zealand myths to her relationship to the moon, which dies, at least in a manner of speaking, every day. Maui felt that death should be short. Let man die and live again, just as the moon dies and live again, lives again. This was the core of Maui's argument and the basis of his last stand. Apparently, the old ancestress had heard this all this kind of argument before, and her answer, in effect, was, over my dead body. So now, Maui knew what he had to do, kill the old ancestress so that people would live forever. Maui knew that she was fearsome, with teeth like volcanic glass and hair in tangles of seaweed. Yet off he went into her lair. His companions on the Enterprise were birds of various kinds, and all flew along with Maui as he moved ever closer to Hine Nue Tepo's fortress. Before proceeding further, Maui spoke to the assembled birds with great seriousness, explaining that he would enter Hine Nue Tepo's body and destroy her from the inside. He said, I must make my way into the old crone, and this will look quite silly. Whatever you do, by all means, avoid laughing. If she hears shouts of laughter, she will surely rip me to pieces with those fearsome volcanic glass teeth. When you see me emerging from her mouth, I will have finished my destruction. Then you may laugh and sing. The birds were terrified and promised their cooperation and goodwill. Entering through the old ancestress's vagina, Maui began his strange form of inner journey. 
the entry was indeed humorous, even ludicrous, and the birds were surprised by how funny it all looked. As Maui made his way in, they held back their levity, but finally a little bird could no longer contain it and chirped a loud note of cheer. Up woke the woman. She noticed that something was amiss and clamped down hard, biting Maui to bits with her razor-sharp teeth. Within moments, Maui was dead. So too were any hopes that human beings would live forever. Henceforth, people would age, die, and return to the soil, and birds have been twittering uncontrollably ever since. The Maui cycle is bewildering at times and has details that seem to come from out of the blue. The story of his fatal encounter with the old ancestress is a good example. In some versions, Maui knows that he must kill her to secure immortality. In others, it is as though he argues with her before finally deciding to kill her. This is the nature of myth, of course. It is told in all sorts of ways, by all sorts of people, and the details may may vary confusingly from telling to telling. And yet, we can see some powerful patterns in the Maui cycle of myths. For one, Maui is a trickster in a very particular sense. He seems to use his skills and even occasional trickery in order to secure lasting benefits for humanity. There is very little of what we will see in some later trickster myths that have much more comical flavor, for example, when one animal outwits another. In spite of how his stories vary from one part of Polynesia to another, Maui's focus always seems to be on human life and the ways that it will be led. Maui comes off as a force for good, at least from the perspective of humanity, and shares with culture heroes the world over a desire to make the world a safe and productive place. It's not hard to understand why such a character would be beloved across the Pacific. This lecture is titled creation and misbehavior in Micronesia. From the tiny island of Nauru, in what has been called the Gilbert Group of Islands, comes an origin tale that is at least as interesting as China's Pongu and the Cosmic Egg. There are not many such stories in Micronesia, just as there are few origin myths to be found in the Asia-Pacific region as a whole. Yet whatever its own origins, this myth is profoundly satisfying. According to the legend, there was only an ancient sea at the beginning of time, as well as a cosmic spider that floated in the vast spaces above. One day, the spider found a mussel and sought to get inside of it. No luck. There were no openings at all. Using magic and force, the spider determined that it was hollow, and at last pride opened its valve and made his way in. It was dark, and the spider couldn't see anything. Yet inside the muscle was an entire world. In this world, the sun and moon had not yet come into being. In time, the spider came upon a snail and nurtured it in hopes that it could help his cause. He eventually prevailed upon the snail to lift the beams of the world a little, which the snail was able to do. Much like the Polynesian trickster Maui, the snail was able to raise the sky. In the newly created space, the spider set the moon and a bit of light shone into the muscle world. In that more powerful light, the spider saw a large worm and asked if it could help lift the roof even higher. The worm toiled 
and the sweat from its labors created a vast sea beneath him. But it was a success. The worm had lifted the sky high into the heavens. Exhausted, the power worm collapsed and died. Sacrifice in the creation. The spider placed the sun high in the new heavens, and the lower shell became the earth. And thus, our world was established. Micronesia, like Polynesia to its east and Melanesia to the south, is a challenging territory to describe, yet its myths have a delightful and distinctive character. Comprising over 2,000 islands and coral atolls, Micronesia is an idea as much as it is a place. Vast stretches of water separate the islands, and the entire territory covers almost 3,000 square kilometers, about 1,000 square miles. The largest island in Micronesia is Guam, but the region also includes the Mariana Islands, Caroline Islands, and Marshall Islands, as well as many hundreds of smaller island clusters. Few territories in Micronesia have been capable even of nurturing populations in the thousands, much less the tens of thousands or more. The fact that it consisted of a large number of very small social groups, a few on each inhabited island, meant that its mythological and cultural traditions would take shapes different from those in much larger territories, such as China, Korea, and Japan, as well as many of the other Pacific Island societies. With very few islands even approaching the size of the smaller Hawaiian islands, and all scattered over an enormous territory, we might expect that there would be almost no continuity in Micronesian mythological imagery and themes. Remarkably, however, although there is indeed a great deal of variation in Micronesian myths, we do find many common patterns and characters in these stories, features that set them apart from the myths of larger neighboring territories such as Melanesia, Indonesia, and Polynesia. It is only in the last 150 years that Micronesia has seen the influence of larger boats and ships, so the common features of Micronesia's myths can only have come over the centuries from travel and trade among the islands by canoe or small sailing vessels. And the common features are striking. For example, one finds different versions of the story of the cosmic spider and the muscle world across Micronesia, and it appears in different forms in Polynesia and Indonesia as well. Variations of the story include butterflies, powerful birds, and magical rocks. Further, the idea that a basic primal sky was crafted and that it was physically raised and widened, and in some cases had to be supported, has echoes all over East Asia and the Pacific Islands. Just where those notions originated and exactly how they spread, however, is unknown. As we delve further into Micronesian mythology and beyond, we will be aided by a fascinating figure in early anthropology, Roland Burridge Dixon. His 1916 book, Oceanic Mythology, was one of the first that I pulled off my father's bookshelves when I began my lifelong fascination with the island world of the Pacific Ocean many years ago. From a very young age onward, I had traveled to and read tales from the other side of the Pacific, those of the Northwest Coast Indians, and their myths about ravens, bears, salmon, and caribou. I wanted to know more, and I looked further west, to New Guinea, Indonesia, in Australia. At first, Dixon's book frustrated my fourth grade efforts to hear the stories because he mixed anthropological analysis of the tales into their telling. 
As I grew older and began to study anthropology myself, I came to appreciate Dixon's clear perspective on the challenge of fully appreciating myths through the filter of the early colonists and others who are often our only sources for their stories. Living at a time when travel to Pacific Islands was possible, but before anthropology had become established as an academic discipline, Dixon was able to learn from the accounts of missionaries who had been in those islands for decades. Moreover, as one of the first Americans with a doctorate in anthropology, Ronald Burridge Dixon bridged the worlds between missionaries, travelers, and the rapidly developing field of anthropology. For all of these reasons, I will refer periodically to Dixon's Oceanic Mythology as we continue to explore the stories of Oceania. To its useful framework, I will add details from a wide variety of anthropological works and some of my own experiences, both reading about and traveling in these Pacific territories. In addition to the tale of the cosmic spider in the muscle world, Micronesian mythology describes the origin of humanity in several sets of intriguing stories. One set depicts the roots of humanity as divine. In it, the god, Ligobund, comes down from the sky, creates a habitable environment, and produces three children. These, the story tells us, were the first humans. A story from another set of tales tells us that the sky god, Luke, or Lukelong, the most powerful deity in Micronesian mythology, sent his daughter down to earth. Thirsty, she drank water that had pooled in the hollow of a tree. She swallowed what we today would call a microbe, and it produced a child in her. This child also had a daughter of her own. The engendering process is not exactly clear. And the daughter, in turn, gave birth to a son. And here we have a twist. It is our first clear sign that the missionaries who were recording the mythology were doing just a little bit more, perhaps unconsciously, than just writing it all down. You see, these myths, dutifully recorded by the missionaries, state that from this son, the great-grandson of a powerful sky deity, a rib was taken. That sounds familiar. From that rib, a man was created. He married a celestial daughter, and humanity flowed from there. So how did that rib get into the Micronesian myth? Was it there all along? Doubtful. This is a good place to revisit the role of the people who have brought us the stories we have today. Because unlike with Chinese, Korean, and Japanese myths, where we need to rely on versions of ancient stories recorded by scholars in Chinese language, the people who preserved Micronesian myths had a different perspective. Lurking in the background of our discussion of East Asian mythologies has been the specter of colonialism. Mythology and history intersect in profound and continual ways, so even the highly literate and powerful East Asian territories have been occupied at various points. And from the volcanic islands of Hawaii down to the rocky inclines of New Zealand and over to the scattered islands of Micronesia, Westerners have been so much a part of the history of oceanic mythology that we must consider their role with some seriousness. Their influence extends to every single island group that we will consider. 
At the very least, we must understand that every word we hear about the ancient tales of the Polynesians, Micronesians, Melanesians, and Indonesians, not to mention Australians, was written down in Western languages. The recorders were missionaries, anthropologists, and occasionally traders and colonial officials. Unlike China, Korea, and Japan, none of these societies had written languages, and the mythology was made made up of a constantly regenerating oral tradition. The implications of this are profound. Those peoples with fascinating myths but no written traditions were at the mercy of those who could write. All of those non-literate societies had their living, vibrant myths written down, and sometimes profoundly altered by those with the power of writing in their brushes, pens, and typewriters. And the vibrant myths became frozen in time. We are at the mercy of those recordings. Add to that challenge the fact that even well-meaning missionaries often saw traces of biblical themes in the native myths, and we can see how complicated the process can be. Even with the best of intentions, the people doing the recording had their own perspectives, their own agendas. And so, subtly or not, the recorded myths began to change even more. The Western audience for the recorded myths was profoundly different, of course, and so, too, is the experience of reading them in a book rather than listening to them at night with others in the tribe. Anthropology is not immune to these issues either. No matter how much early researchers in the discipline protested that they were independent and even objective observers intent on preserving their cultures. For better or worse, early anthropologists did their own research at the pleasure of or at least the tolerance, of colonial officials who protected them with bureaucratic and even military force. They lived among missionaries who often knew the languages better than they did and had in any case been there much longer. This is a troubling part of our tales, but it won't go away. Colonialism is part of the story of mythology. If we try to strip it from our storytelling, we only create the illusion that somehow complex, preliterate cultures are speaking to us directly across the generations. For my part, I find that a serious understanding of the myth recorders actually adds to the experience of learning other mythical traditions and deepens our understanding of a fascinating and truly global mythical dynamic. So, with that perspective in mind, let's return to the stories and see if we can start to perceive a bit of the mixture of oral performance from bygone eras and the studious recording of missionaries and anthropologists. Another set of Micronesian myths focus less on sky beings coming down to earth than those deities crafting human beings out of earthly materials. We saw this in China and Korea, where mud and clay were used to shape those early humans. In the Pelu Islands, two gods shaped the first humans from soil. In the Gilbert group, a story goes that a god set fire to a tree, and the ashes became people. Another tale from the Gilbert group describes the cosmic spider turning stones into humankind. You will surely see that all of this variation can be confusing at times. That is the nature of mythology, even under the best of circumstances. In the case of Micronesia, though, it is also a picture of how fragmented even a single myth can become over the large distances between islands, and even with regard to something as significant as how human beings came to be. 
And yet one can also find remarkable consistency in certain aspects of Micronesian mythology. For example, throughout the Micronesian islands, the first people were thought to be immortal originally, an idea that we have seen in various shapes in other mythologies. Indeed, one story from the Carolina Islands echoes aspects of a story of the god Maui from Polynesia. In early times, it tells us people would not die forever. Rather, like the moon, they would rise again. In the same manner as the moon's rising and setting, people would alternate between life and death. But an evil spirit, undefined in the myth, did not agree and decreed that death would be permanent. Throughout the Micronesian islands, the stories about how human beings became mortal are as diverse as they are distinctive. In some, people are given faulty breath. In others, some creature accidentally drops the precious water of continuing immortality. In still others, a vessel containing that precious water is overturned by malevolent figures. There is a big difference between an accident and a deliberate action in the world of Micronesian mythology. To understand that level of negative behavior, we need to look more closely at those who do evil deeds. One of the most prominent figures in all of Micronesian mythology is Olafat, the prickly and problematic trickster who both echoes the Maui legend cycle and turns it right on its head. Although Luke was the highest deity of all in Micronesian mythology, his constant annoyance was his strange son, Olafat. In many tales, Olafat was the product of Luke and a mortal woman. In a few of the stories, Olafat is described as Luke's brother. This flexibility with regard to kinship, is he a son or a brother, is a startling but persistent feature of Micronesian and many other myths. In the finest mythological tradition, it seems to be a way of inverting stable assumptions about how society is organized, leading to creative ways of thinking that would never be tolerated in regular social life. In a theme that resembles one of the sun goddess tales in Japan, the sky god Luke went down to earth to seek the mortal woman who would become Olafat's mother. Luke's goddess wife followed him, seeking to prevent the affair, but she was outdone by the mortal woman's own mother, who happened to be an octopus. And the octopus danced in highly suggestive fashion. Luke's sky wife was so overcome with embarrassment at having witnessed such writhing that she was brought back to the sky by her attendants. And so Luke and the earth mortal, with the seeming approval of her octopus mother, consummated their union. Echoing a trickster theme across world mythology, Olafat's birth was unusual. In one version, his mother pulled on the threads of a coconut leaf that had been tied into a kind of ponytail around her hair. Out came Olafat from her head, and the world would never be the same again. The sky deity Luke was powerful and good in almost every respect. Like the sun goddess in Japan, however, great long-term power does not always take care of the misery that can be created by a bad boy. And Olafat was surely that. Olafat was a precocious lad, and Luke was wary of him from the start. One version has it that Olafat ran about as soon as he was born, wiping the blood that remained on him onto palm trees as he darted about, which is why they have a reddish tint. Luke warned Olafat's mother that the boy should never drink from a coconut, from a small hole. 
in a kind of mythical telescoping, Luke's injunction seems to say that tiny apertures can lead to distant vision, not unlike the cosmic spider finding the world inside a muscle in the story that began this lecture. Yet one day, Oliphant drank through a tiny hole in a coconut, and through the hole he spied his father in the skies. And at that moment, Oliphant began pestering Luke that he wanted to visit. Rebuffed in his multiple requests, the enterprising youth stacked coconut shells all of the way to the sky, a theme, climbing to the heavens, that can be seen all over the world, if not always by using coconut shells. And things did not go well on high. Oliphat sought to join some children in the first of several levels of the Skyland. The children wanted nothing to do with him, so Oliphat made their once harmless playthings, a group of scorpionfish, grow spines. These pierced the boy's fingers, making them bleed and cry. Rising to the second level of the sky, where he found more children playing, this time with harmless sharks, Oliphat was again shunned. Channeling his spite, he gave the sharks great teeth, with which they severely bit the little children. From that moment, sharks would always have teeth. As many Micronesian myths relate, they would thereafter chew up anyone unfortunate enough to fall out of a canoe or venture into garbage-filled waters. Up on the third level, Oliphant again was ignored, and this time he caused stingrays to have stingers. This is not your ordinary culture hero tale, as you may have guessed already. Oliphant did not focus upon bringing sunlight to the islands, nor did he spend his days battling the winds, finding fire, or even battling the great eel, as did his Polynesian trickster companion, Maui. Rather, his principal function seems to have been to create pain and discord, where before there was happiness. At the fourth level of the heavens, Oliphant found construction work underway, ordered by Luke, his father, on a spirit house, an elaborate dwelling for men that is associated in many parts of the world with initiation rituals, ancestral rites, and gender-specific meals and banter. It was to be a gathering place for rainy season festivals of the kind that we have seen from China to Hawaii. Think about the joy of the winter holidays in our own day, family, friends, and food. Now think of the occasional conflict that seems to sprout from those very occasions. Now imagine gods and spirits coming together in close quarters with a bad boy among the bunch making trouble. It's not likely to be pretty. Well, that is how it shaped up when Luke was building the great house. One quarrel led to another, and the deities, fed up by Oliphat's hijinks, including those in the sky levels below, determined to do away with Oliphat once and for all. So they put him into a large fish basket and sank him deep into the sea. That'll take care of him, the myths seem to say. And then they went back to their great house. When the basket came back up, it was filled with fish. Oliphant was sitting, laughing in an adjacent canoe. Who are you? asked two workers who were supposed to empty the basket. I am Oliphant. Here, I will help you load the fish. Oliphant proceeded to toss the men all of the very biggest fish, one by one. What they could not know was that he had secretly removed all of the meat from those fish, even though they appeared to be big and ready for cooking. 
When the catch was brought to the sky deity Luke, Luke learned that their attempt to kill Oliphant had not succeeded. And then he asked, Has Oliphant kept any fish for himself? The workman answered that he had just taken the very smallest fish and given the rest for a feast in honor of the deities, perhaps as a goodwill gesture. So a happy Luke ordered the fish to be prepared and the sky dignitaries all assembled. You will note that this myth assumes the fiction that no one noticed that the meat had been taken out during the unloading, processing, and cooking for the feast. We will follow in our own suspension of disbelief. So the story goes that when Oliphant returned to the heavens, he was still shunned by the other gods. No one wanted anything to do with him. Protesting his exclusion, he sat apart and refused any of the prepared fish. Instead, he began to eat the supposedly small fish that he had kept for himself. And eat he did, endlessly. When the sky dignitaries looked at their own dishes, they now saw that there was just empty fish skins. Looking angrily and jealously at Oliphant, they had to content themselves with fruit. The assembled gods thought to kill Oliphant with the help of the thunder god, but Oliphant countered them adeptly. On and on the conflict went. At one point, Luke uprooted a great tree, forcibly planted Oliphant into the hole, and reset the tree on top of him, sure that it would crush him once and for all. But Oliphant eventually emerged from the ground as a pesky ant, prompting one of the celebrants in the great house to say, Oliphant is surely dead, for the ants are bringing up pieces of him now. At that, Oliphant himself triumphantly reappeared. Exasperated, Luke blurted, Why won't you just die? And in the end, Luke realized that for all his sky power, he could not erase the bad boy or even expel him from on high. In the end, he concluded that since Oliphant would not die, he would have to make him the deity of everyone who is evil and deceitful. And that is Oliphant, a different kind of trickster. Susanoo, the bad boy, younger brother of the sun goddess in Japan, certainly caused consternation in the heavens, but he was both a creator of further deities as well as a destroyer. Most myths about Maui, the Polynesian trickster, focus on his desire to do good things for mankind, from slowing down the sun and securing fire to trying to pull up the islands and form them into one great landmass. Oliphant is different. Certainly he shares with the other tricksters an unusual, even miraculous birth and precocious childhood. And yet it is anger and spite that seems to drive most of his actions in these Micronesian myths. Living in what almost seems to be a constant state of exile, at least one of being alternately ignored and disliked, Oliphant delights in showing his father that he cannot be stopped. Moreover, he also puts great energy into creating new problems for the world, from stingray pain to shark bites. As we take a break from tricksters for a while, let's think of him as a distinctive blend of what I like to call exilic response, the kind of payback driven by ostracism, exile, or just plain being ignored that drives much more of human behavior than most of us like to admit. Think of the temptation toward payback that any of us has when we have been passed over for a promotion or did not receive acceptance into an organization we would like to be a part of. Most of us will admit to a little bit of I'll show them, at least in our private thoughts. 
I like to think of Oliphant as a figure who brings such emotions to the surface, fully acknowledging the slights that are part of our lives, and even seeking, often in quite negative ways, to show them that they were wrong. Let's circle back before we conclude to the issue of colonial influence on, on mythology and on Micronesian mythology in particular. As we've discussed, without the missionaries, colonial influence, and even Pacific Ocean shipping lanes, none of us would know who Oliphant was. But the Western colonial incursions had a peculiar influence on Micronesia. Unlike the Westerners who colonized Polynesia, as well as New Guinea and its Melanesian neighbors, the 19th century missionaries in Micronesia were rather poor mythological record keepers. To someone unfamiliar with missionary traditions, this might seem to be the norm. The missionaries were there to proselytize and convert, after all. To the contrary, however, the norm in most of Asia and the Pacific was for missionaries to take local traditions quite seriously and to realize in at least a few respects that their very contact with indigenous societies was changing them in profound ways. Many newcomers to the Asia-Pacific region, and not just for professional anthropologists of later eras, saw themselves in a race to save indigenous traditions. Missionaries were a significant part of that effort, no matter what anthropologists of the time said. Although the missionaries and anthropologists were great rivals, each feeling threatened by the other's influence, both sought in their own ways to record and even preserve the traditional culture, even as they were quite busy in changing it. Any good anthropologist, and indeed missionary, can go on for hours about the mistakes of their colleagues in faraway locations. My point is a bit different. It is very easy to caricature the colonial influences. Nothing I am about to say should be taken as a defense for the colonial experience. But still, the historical evidence is overwhelming that many missionaries saw themselves as protectors of tradition, no matter how preposterous that might sound to us today. And let us not give anthropologists a free ride. They, too, were riding the colonial coattails, no matter how superior they felt to the missionaries, traders, and colonial officials. No, the greater problem in Micronesia is that the early missionaries there were quite spotty with their record-keeping. And that is a first-world kind of problem that we now face today when we seek to understand what those myths were really like. In that crucial period of early interaction, when, for all the problems we have just discussed, the stories could be marked down and cemented in the troubled history of writing world mythology, the vast majority of Micronesian tales continued to be told without being written down. With a few exceptions, as you've heard, they were only recorded decades after there might have been any freshness left in them. And so, we cannot be absolutely sure today how the striking similarities and enormous variations in the myths reflect the ways things were when Westerners first arrived in Micronesia. We also cannot know to what extent they reflect the impact of Western influence on the native populations. Beyond that, it is hard to assess the role of Western interpretations of the myths as they were recorded. Surely, it is a combination of all of these factors, but how to weigh the parts of that combination can never be known anymore. Still, anthropologists have learned enough about the mind-boggling navigational skills of canoe travelers in these islands 
to know that the waters between even fairly distant islands were often less of a challenge to negotiate than mountain passes in much larger and more rugged islands in the Pacific. To some degree, then, stories were shared and to some degree they were adapted to local sensibilities. Then they were frozen in time after some 30 years of missionary contact. More than that, we cannot say. And that is why scholars often speak of Micronesian mythology as impoverished. It is certainly not because of the tales themselves, which are rich and variegated, as we have seen. It is rather because we are almost exclusively indebted for our knowledge to the literate Western destroyers of traditional culture. And yet we bemoan the fact that missionaries or others did not write it all down. This lecture is titled, Melanesian Myths of Life and Cannibalism. The area that we call Melanesia is made up of the large landmass of New Guinea, as well as clusters of islands ranging from the Admiralty Islands and New Caledonia down to Fiji. The land of New Guinea ranges from sea level coasts to mountains of over 4,000 meters, beyond 12,000 feet. This results in a distinctly highland, lowland set of ethnographic and mythological themes and separates it from the tiny social networks and mostly sea-level living of the Micronesians. While it appears that the origins of the world did not much interest early Melanesians, they seem downright passionate about how that early world came to look like today's. And as we have seen in many areas of East Asia and Oceania already, Just because there might be a paucity of cosmogonic tales hardly means that people ignored questions of how human life and culture came to be. Tales of how the Melanesian world was adjusted are endless in their variants. Unlike what we found in Micronesia, the missionaries and anthropologists who collected these tales did such a thorough job that we can only touch upon some of the most prominent themes in the rich mythological corpus. How the sun and moon came to be set in their places has occupied the thinking of people in all parts of the world. One Melanesian story ties those origins to another prominent theme, fire. In the beginning, it was said, one old woman was the sole owner of fire, and she guarded her secret jealously. Only she ate cooked food. At his wit's end, her son remonstrated with her, calling her cruel and explaining that uncooked fish and especially taro root skins burned people's throats. And still, you do not give us fire with which to cook. She was unmoved, but but he stole some embers and gave it to the rest of the people. The old woman was incensed and grabbed at the rest of the fire, flinging it into the heavens. There it broke into two large and many lesser parts, becoming the sun, the moon, and the stars. Another group of tales echoes Japanese mythology in that the sun and moon were considered living beings. And, as in the Maui stories of Polynesia, there are many that focus upon an earlier world of perpetual night or day. In one tale from the Bank Islands, the Melanesian culture hero Cut sought to bring the rhythms of day and night to his people. As it was, life was oppressive because the sun always beat down on the land with great intensity. Cut's brothers complained of how unpleasant it all was and begged him to do something about it. 
Well, this Cot was a sharp guy, and he functioned a bit like a very early mythical anthropologist. He had heard that way off in the Torres Islands there was night. Taking a pig with him, he hopped into his canoe and made for those faraway islands, plying the waters that would come to be the trade and exchange route for later canoes. In the Torres Islands, Cut exchanged the pig for night. Moreover, the living person of the night helped Cut to train for this new experience. He blackened his eyebrows, taught him how to sleep, and then instructed him on the details of making the dawn. Back home, Cut began to set the changes into motion. He had his brothers make beds of coconut fronds, after which he initiated the slow descent of the sun. The brothers were alarmed and cried out to him that the sun was crawling away. Cut calmed them, saying that this was the beginning of the nighttime for which he had traded a pig in the Taurus Islands. Soon it grew very dark, and the brothers shouted that something black and awful was growing out of the sea. That is nighttime, Cut replied calmly. Now lie down on your coconut fronds. As they began to drift toward sleep, one brother, terrified, asked, Shall we die? I think we are starting to die. That is called sleep, answered Cut, with the patience of a culture hero, making great changes. Now shut your eyes and sleep. And then, after a sufficient time had passed, Cut took red obsidian and cut the night with it. The cocks began to crow and birds began to chirp. Light shone again, but it would thereafter always be accompanied by rest-giving darkness. One can't help but be struck by how much the fears of Cut's brothers resemble those of young children who are learning to sleep in the dark by themselves. Perhaps the first tellers of this tale had their own children or their own childhoods in mind as they sought to capture and explain the mysterious nature of their world. At the very least, they understood the mysteries of the dark and the confusion it could create. Cut is also featured in another of Melanesia's fascinating human creation tales. In it, he cut wood from the tough, sinewy, twisting Dracaena tree and carved it into six statue-like figures— three male and three female. When they were completed, he hid them away. This is a theme in the mythology that is never really explained, but I liken it to a kind of gestation for the artificial figures. In any case, after three days, he brought them back out and set them up again. Now the story begins to merge with the rhythmic social themes identified by Marcel Granet in Chinese mythology. Music brings the figures to life in this tale, just as it reinvigorates the social order for Granet. Dancing before them, Cut beat the drum and coaxed them into their own initially awkward dance movements. Before long, they were singing, dancing, and fully a part of the rhythms of human social life. From my perspective, these details of dancing into life are among the most profound we have encountered. If we know how to look for it, and it is by no means easy, we will see traces in many parts of East Asian and Oceanic mythology where music and dance create or sometimes restore life. In addition to the image that Granet described of Chinese peasants dancing in the fields before the spring planting, 
the Japanese sun goddess was coaxed from her hiding place by dance, and the festive chanting and dancing of the Hawaiian Makahiki Festival was used to beckon the god Lono so that he would provide the sustenance on which life depended. In each case, rhythmic movement and song brought humanity, and even occasionally gods, back into the circle of social life and supported life itself. This powerful idea goes back to Marcel Granet's teacher, the French sociologist Emile Durkheim, 1858-1917. In his seminal work, The Elementary Forms of Religious Life, he asserted that it is in social gathering, often accompanied by rhythm and song, that mankind reaches its highest levels of social engagement and intellectual reflection, what most societies call religion. And to my mind, that is exactly what Kat is doing in these myths. In a Durkheimian manner of speaking, he is giving them religion. Put in another way, he is coaxing them through patterned movement into full humanity. But this happy tale about the mythical creation of humanity is not over yet, and it takes a nasty turn. Well, the good and kindly Kat had a malicious and jealous neighbor named Madawa, who was not at all pleased to see the joy in Kat's household. This Madawa was determined to create his own people and took a different kind of wood. The type of wood varies throughout the variant tales, but it is clearly noted that it was not Dracaena wood. Madawa, too, carved images and set them up, beating the drum just as Kat had done. His figures, like Kat's, came to life, but then things changed. Madawa dug a pit, covered the bottom with large coconut fronds, and dumped in the dancing statue beings. He covered up the pit and left it that way for seven days. When he dug the figures up again, they were not only dead, but also decomposed. Madawa had created life and then brought death to the world, and so would it ever be henceforward. In Japan, Hawaii, and Micronesia, Death comes about because a powerful being declares it to be so. In this myth, however, death is a result of carelessness at best, a theme in other myths throughout Oceania, or active malice at worst. It is fair to ask whether such a perspective reflects or shapes Melanesian worldviews in significant ways. I think not, at least not for the most part. The tales of Melanesia do not seem to be darker or more focused on evil than other regions we are studying. I tend to consider it, rather, in the following manner. Death is so much a constant in human experience that almost every mythology needs to explain it. And sometimes the explanation is more unsavory than others, as it is in this case with the spiteful Madawa. In our desire to understand the people who created the myths of Oceania, few places carry stronger weight than Melanesia. Indeed, it is hard to imagine the field of anthropology without it. So let us take another look at what I like to call the mythology of anthropology. Looking from this perspective, studying the studiers, as I like to put it, we can see a bit more about the people who have brought us the stories of Oceanic culture. Here is how the great founding myth of anthropology is often told. For a good portion of the late 19th and early 20th centuries, scholars who aspired to be anthropologists spent a great deal of time sipping martinis on South Sea's verandas and interviewing natives 
who had been brought to cities such as Port Moresby in Papua New Guinea. To bewildered islanders in the big city, they would ask questions such as, What is your religion? And how does your kinship system work? Predictable results followed, mostly blank stares. And then, this is how the tribe called the Anthros usually tells it, one person saw how futile it all was. He put down his drink, slid off the couch, hired a dinghy, sailed to an island, built a hut, set up his typewriter, and studied the lives of people as they were actually living them. More specifically, this new kind of anthropologist, culture hero, went to the Trobriand Islands in the Solomon Sea off the far western tip of Papua New Guinea. He stayed for four years, from 1914 to 1918, not the least because other Europeans were too busy with the Great War to pick him up. And above all, he wrote a very big book. His name was Bronislaw Malinowski. Malinowski's seminal ethnography of 1922 changed everything. Even the title is larger than life and echoes mythical themes, Argonauts of the Western Pacific. Anthropology would never be the same after it was published, nor would the study of mythology. Imagine what it must have felt like in 1922 when the library shelves held the writings of amateurs who had traveled to distant lands without any serious idea about how to approach them. Then, suddenly, the study of myth and culture became less of a hobby and much more of a profession. From that moment on, the study of culture and myth would require scholars to get their boots dirty. During the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, and 1950s, Argonauts was the gold standard for everyone serious about what Native peoples thought and felt. So sturdy was its rigorous structure that anyone writing about culture, society, mythology, and religion sought to emulate it. The great anthropologist wrote in the third person, and the text could lull a reader into thinking it was written by a very special authority, a kind of anthropology god. And then, in 1967, the mythology of the anthropologists took a very peculiar turn. Forty-five years after his seminal work was published, Malinowski changed the entire field again, and in such a way that it is still churning today. Mind you, Malinowski had already been dead for almost a quarter century, since 1943, but a posthumous publication with the blessing of his widow shook anthropology to its very foundations. You see... She published his diaries from those years in the Trobriand Islands, and they were unlike almost anything resembling the deific and dispassionate primal ancestor and culture hero of the profession. It was shocking stuff, and anthropologists did not know whether to laugh or despair at alternately titillating and enraged passages in the journal he had entitled, and surely meant to be, a diary in the strict sense of the term. One moment he hankers for the warmth of native embrace. The next he rages with anger at slights from neighbors. It is unclear whether he actually followed through on any of the feelings noted in the diary, but it makes for strangely compelling reading. If you have ever been frustrated by language, custom, or manners in a foreign land, imagine four years of those frustrations and writing them all down. That gives you a pretty good feel for the diary, 
perhaps minus the rather more vivid entries. And ever since the diaries were published from the late 1960s right up until now, anthropologists have pondered whether there really can ever be a way to study other societies without feeling, without being involved on some level with the very story they are telling or the myths they are analyzing. This turn toward what we call reflexivity, a kind of inward looking while studying others, has been a healthy, if disconcerting, outcome of the diary's publication, and it has everything to do with the study of mythology. In my own case, an awareness of reflexivity has led me to understand that the way we write about other societies does not just add to the knowledge, it changes that knowledge profoundly. We cannot take down a myth or explain a custom without being a part of it ourselves. Our very explanations, just like mine here in this lecture, shape how people learn about native ways. We must never forget this. So, this messy new reality changes forever the way we look at mythology. And yet, as messy as it is to have to study the studiers too, I, for one, never want to go back to that earlier world in which anthropologists and missionaries really thought that they were just the transmitters of native tradition, passing it on to the public without the traces of intervention. It's harder this way, but I think we actually learn more in the process than we did in the old days. Let's look at these issues in a different way, by means of another Melanesian myth. There was a culture hero in Papua New Guinea who often, in the guise of a snake, passed through villages all over the islands. He brought fortune and good luck with him and would linger for as long as he was fed and treated well. If, by chance, he had hostile interactions, he would leave a wake of negativity that persisted for some time to come. We could look at this tale through the lens of good and ill, as we have already done with other myths. Let's try something different, though. Let's consider it from the perspective of trade between the islands. And here we have a situation in which mythology and ethnography truly come together. You see, there was an ancient practice of gift exchange, so it is told, that goes on to this day among the islands off of Papua New Guinea. In this elaborate ritual, people stand in a circle and pass ceremonial armbands in one direction while they pass intricate necklaces in the other. But that simple description barely scratches the surface of the ritual's significance. Almost every anthropologist knows of this ritual because almost all of them have read Argonauts of the Western Pacific, which remains a very fine book. There, Bronislaw Malinowski described the exchanges of gifts, ritual decorum, and status surrounding the practice which he calls the Kula Ring. Malinowski had set out to study economic practices among the Trobrian islanders, but when he chanced upon the islanders' peculiar cycle of gift-giving, he found himself utterly baffled. Once he examined it more closely, Malinowski discovered that the process worked like this. Only people of a certain status took part, but these influential men passed shells, armbands, and necklaces among their peers from other islands. These exchanges were not random. Indeed, they were based on extensive relationships that they and their peers had developed all over the islands. In order to participate in the rituals, the men built canoes, stocked them with goods, the most important of which were the armbands and the necklaces, 
and went on journeys of exchange not unlike Cot's mythical trip to the Torres Islands in pursuit of night. And here is where it gets even more interesting. The real status that the men attained through the ritual came from giving away precious items. The receiver accepted a significant gift, but that gift in turn compelled him, pressured him really, to move it on, to become a great gift giver himself. For us, these exchanges have a further interest. The fact that islanders were compelled to take long voyages to other islands means that more than just armbands and necklaces would circulate. So too would ideas, often in the form of mythical tales. These journeys helped to create a wider identity than people confined to one island could ever feel. They have a glimmer of the social communion of which Marcel Granet spoke regarding ancient Chinese festivals, and many scholars have noted the importance of these exchanges in integrating the social fabric of the islands. Above all, though, these journeys and exchanges are significant because they show that the tiny islands were linked in ways that few people other than the islanders themselves understood before Malinowski's book. Let us proceed from ritual exchange to Melanesian myths about how bad things were brought to the world. As we have seen, not all social interaction turns out in the positive. One of the most popular features of Melanesian mythology is the brother pair of To Kabinana and To Karvuvu. As in many other tales, sibling rivalry makes for legendary social dynamics, and conflict can be seen everywhere. According to one tale, the two brothers were walking in the fields one day when To Kabinana said to To Karvuvu, Go and check on our mother. In an odd piece of follow-through, To Karvuvu heated the oven, killed his mother, and roasted her. And there he left her remains in the stove. Returning, To Kabinana asked if To Karvuvu had taken good care of their only living parent. I have roasted her in the oven, he replied. Shocked, To Kabinana shouted, Who said to do that? I asked you to check on her. His brother replied, Oh, I thought you said to kill her. Sorry. To Kabinana called his brother a fool and said, And now our descendants will cook and eat the flesh of humans. The myth does not go further, and it is unclear in its message. Without the last line, it appears to be an extreme and even tragic case of utter foolishness. The last line intrigues, but the story ends right there. This is often the case with myth, and we have sometimes have to adjust our assumptions about narrative closure accordingly and keep looking for hints in other myths. So let's look a bit further. In another story of the Toe Brothers, more evil comes to the world from this relational foolishness. One day, To Kabinana carved an elaborate fish out of wood and let it float upon the ocean. He then made it alive, and the great fish drove smaller fish near shore so that they could be caught. Great plenty was about, and all was well. To Karvuvu, seeing this, sought to imitate his brother. He carved a fish, as he thought, and placed it in the water. His work was none too careful, though, and it resembled far too closely a great shark, which, coming to life, ate up all of the other fish. You are really a stupid fellow, said his brother. 
Now all of our descendants will suffer since the shark will eat the other fish and errant humans as well. As you may have noticed, it is not malice that is at work here. Rather, it is a peculiar kind of dense stupidity on the part of Tokar Vuvu. Foolishness is a relationship here, in the sense that Tokabinana seems constantly to work for the benefit of humankind, for example, making a great fish that drives smaller fish to shore. Whether well-meaning or not, Tokar Vuvu seeks to emulate his brother's deeds, but fails in listening, accuracy, or even basic understanding. As we have seen, both of the Toe brothers, Toe Karvuvu and Toe Kabinana, are integral to mythology, to a mythology that crafts a world in which humans will eventually live. They help to shape how the world came to be the way it is. And yet, it is not only the good brother who shapes that world. In each case, the nature of things people experience today is the combined product of the brother's wisdom and foolishness. This is a creation tale that merges wondrous insight with utter inability, even to follow directions. The creator in Genesis, or even the founding myths of Japan, would likely have been bewildered by the creative abilities of the Toe brothers. So now let's examine a tale about ogres and cannibals. It comes from the Sulka tribe on the eastern end of New Britain. Once there was a cannibal and his wife who had eaten scores of people from neighboring villages. This so alarmed the village folk that they stocked up their canoes, loaded up their belongings, and set out to sea in pursuit of a safer place to live. It so happened that a woman named Tamu was about to give birth and asked to delay the voyage for a little while. Her kinfolk and fellow villagers left it anyway. Worse yet, when Tamu desperately pursued them in the water, they beat her back with the oars until she finally gave up and went back to live in the village alone. In time, she gave birth to a son. When he had grown somewhat, she would leave him in their home while she tended to the all-important garden. One day, she gave him a dracaena plant with which to play. Remember that dracaena was the wood from which Cat fashioned his human beings. Before long, the plant turned into a boy, and Tamu's son suddenly had a companion. He hid him away, and in time even built a partition, separating himself from his mother. Every once in a while, the mother would hear conversation, and she was bewildered by the amount of food that her boy consumed. In time, she came to know the secret and was actually delighted to have two sons. Now that there was a lively movement in the once deserted village, Tamu feared that the cannibals would come and take them. The boys told her not to fear, that they would take care of any cannibals. They practiced their martial skills and set up slippery barricades around the house. As they gained confidence in their skills, they taunted the cannibals with come and get us shouts. And so the cannibals came, slipped upon the barricades, fell down, and were set upon by the boys who killed them. They cut them up and burned their bodies, saving only the breasts of the cannibal wife. These they put in a coconut shell and set it to float on the seas as a message that the cannibals were dead and the village was safe. And back came the people. The brothers, angered by the ill treatment of their pregnant mother years before, said they would kill their fellow villagers, but in time relented and the society was made whole again. 
conflict and resentment was followed by restoration of harmony. Does this myth reflect real life in the Melanesian islands? Was the cannibalism reflected in it and the story of Tokar Vuvu cooking his mother part of Melanesian culture? There actually are relatively few cannibal tales in Oceania, but you wouldn't know it by listening to many early missionaries and explorers. It is not by chance that Westerners seized with a peculiar kind of fascination upon the idea that the Pacific Islands were filled with cannibals. They were aided in this by a number of sensational correspondents who fancied themselves experts on the topic, among them a world traveler named William Edgar Guile, 1865-1925. Guile was no Bronislaw Malinowski, but he was a consummate orator. In the 1900s and 1910s, he held audiences wrapped with tales of cannibals in the South Seas. I have spent more than a little time studying the life of this odd half-evangelist, half-anthropologist. Leafing through his archive in Doylestown, Pennsylvania, I have found dozens of newspaper articles describing Guile's close encounters with cannibals in the Pacific Islands and of missionaries and the occasional trader who met a sad end in the cooking pots of the islands. The problem is that most of this is preposterous and that cannibalism, as we have come to understand it all over the world, is almost always the ritual consumption of tiny bits of a defeated enemy, not a regular means of nourishment. Few would argue that such an unsavory ritual practice is minor, but it is very different from what is usually conveyed by tales of South Seas cannibalism. The images that many early travelers promoted of islanders gnawing away on human thigh bones is just short of being an insanely twisted myth, one that says more about Western colonial fears than it does about the nature of oceanic societies. Just short of that. And the reason I cannot just leave it at the mistaken understandings of Westerners is that similar kinds of fears show up in all sorts of Melanesian tales about cannibals. We have seen just seen one. This doesn't make the Westerners right in any serious way. What it rather speaks to is the rumbling fear of the unknown shared by the islanders themselves. If you have ever worried about trolls in a dense Bavarian forest, or just read a tale or two from the Brothers Grimm, you will understand the nagging fear of cannibals in Melanesian mythology. And here is how I interpret this and other myths we have explored in this lecture. The French anthropologist Claude Lévi-Strauss once said, I paraphrase in translating to English, food is good to think with. His point was actually a quite profound statement about the nature of mythology, whether about food or other topics. We err if we think about these myths too deeply in terms of their content, their plot lines, or their meanings. I realize how strange that may sound, but bear with me. Levi-Strauss was saying that the story is only part, often a small part, of what is going on in any myth. Myth itself is a way of formulating, experimenting with, and articulating many things beyond the storyline itself. Think about the story of life and death with Kat and Marawa, the tale of night and day in trade, the Toe brothers, and the odd outcomes they seem to spawn, and especially our cannibal tale. Could it be that cannibals are good to think with? Could it be that cannibals might well be a way of discussing not only the unknown forces in the next village, 
but also the way we might treat others in a crisis? Could it be that myth is much more like a sonata, which we hear note by note, of course, but which also, at the same time, appears to us as a total experience? Claude Lévi-Strauss thought so, and devoted his life's work to explaining it. I think so, too. This lecture is titled, Origins in Indonesia and the Philippines. In a geographical sense, Indonesia and the Philippines present us with issues that have more in common with other parts of Asia than the rest of Oceania. These archipelagos include large islands and differ so markedly from Micronesia, for example, as to present an almost completely different environment for the development of cultures and myths. Add to that the fact that both territories are relatively close to the great East and South Asian landmasses, and the dynamic changes even further. There have been so many migrations from Asia over the centuries that the populations have changed in almost continuous fashion, and in a manner that is almost unthinkable in Hawaii or Micronesia. This complicates the study of the mythology of these areas in all sorts of ways, and it is sometimes with a dose of despair that the serious student of Indonesian or Filipino mythology seeks original myths. It is as though a set of indigenous traditions has been alternately doused and sprinkled with bits of thought from China, Thailand, Vietnam, and Burma, not to mention India. One of the most widely circulated myths from Indonesia into the Philippines is the belief that mankind came to be from the center of an egg. The story goes that a bird laid two eggs, one by the mouth of a river and another at its source. From one was born, or hatched, a man, and from the other, a woman. Bathing at the mouth of the river one day, the man saw a hare that looked remarkably like his own. Startled, he determined that someone like him lived upstream. Craving human company, he made his way for many miles along the banks. There he found a woman and the two united to create numerous progeny and to people the islands. Another version of the egg myth is found in Borneo, where a great serpent swimming in the primal sea forged and spread a great earthen landmass. After this, a deity came down and discovered seven mud-covered eggs. Picking out two of the eggs, he found a man and a woman inside, both immobile and without vivifying air in their bodies. Hurrying to the upper world, he brought back the breath that would give them life. It's a little more circuitous, though. While he was gone, properly asking the heavenly authorities for immortal breath, a degenerate deity blew into their mouths, giving them a faulty kind of breath. By the time the special breath arrived, those egg-born beings were already alive. Now, however, they and subsequent generations would experience death. And here again, a beautiful possibility was marred by a degenerate being, as we have seen many times before. A third egg story, also from Borneo, again mentions two eggs, and in them were found a human pairing. Sevens follow. Together, those two made seven sons and seven daughters, all without life. Up to the skies went the husband, imploring his wife to stay quiet in his absence and not to open the curtains, no matter what. 
Yet out she looked, and the winds came in, giving merely mortal life to all the children. From then on, human beings would die. The common features of these myths offer an interesting example of how mythology works in its variant forms. What we seem to have is not so much a set of different stories as overlapping sets of themes that can be configured in various ways and manipulated for dramatic effect by capable storytellers. The eggs are, in each tale, cause for both wonder and consternation, with implications for human life thereafter. These tales lead me to wonder about the relationship between common things, such as eggs, that can have an uncommon twist. When is an egg just an egg? And when is it the source of a literally life-or-death fate for all of humanity? This is a fundamentally religious question that lies at the heart of many mythological traditions. Let's explore it a little more deeply. About 50 years ago, the American anthropologist Clifford Geertz published an essay that was based on years of fieldwork in Indonesia. It addressed some of the biggest questions anyone has ever thought to ask. For its time, the title was quite provocative, Religion as a Cultural System. Instead of thinking about religion as a set of beliefs and practices over and above everyday social life, something focused on theology, churches, doctrine, and sermons, Clifford Geertz brought the discussion squarely down to religiosity in every nook and cranny of daily life. Religion, he seems to argue, is what we do, how we walk, talk, and interpret what we see and hear. Only a little of it takes place in churches, temples, and mosques. For Geertz, one superb little story sums it up. He describes a situation he confronted in his fieldwork in Indonesia. You see, one day a whole family came rushing out of its hut, calling for neighbors to come see the toadstool that had grown up overnight while they were sleeping. This would seem to be the most mundane of happenings in Indonesian village life. The dirt floors of huts often saw just such occurrences, and having a family calling for all to come and see a toadstool is a little bit like an American family summoning neighbors to look at the dandelions that had suddenly sprouted in their front yard. But for Geertz, this particular toadstool was different. It presented what he termed a religious question. For this toadstool had grown so large that no one had ever seen anything quite like it. Over the course of the morning, more and more people flocked to the hut to admire it. More than a few were left somewhat shaken by the experience, and one person summed it up well with the sentiment that it was much larger than a toadstool has any business growing. It is not that the toadstool had any kind of appeal that we normally think of as religious. Rather, it shook people's everyday understanding about how the world is supposed to work. An egg that produces a chicken, or something, or another kind of creature, is something we come to expect as the normal operation of the world. Toadstools, of a certain rather small size, work that way too. Geertz's argument leads to a fascinating, if problematic, line of thought. From my perspective, it is about the relationship between the ordinary and the extraordinary. Things don't function or appear as they should. Things that don't function or appear as they should can lead us to question the very assumptions we have about the world in which we live. The toadstool is not in itself significant, 
the fact that for many it shook, even if only a little, their certainty in the ways of the universe. That is very significant indeed. In my view, the toadstool and the eggs are, so to speak, a piece of a piece in this very way. Both partake of the ordinary in their basic structures, but both have extraordinary implications for the curious mind. And that is exactly the kind of material that is at work in mythology all over East Asia, the Pacific, and indeed throughout the world. Lest we think that such a happening is only a product of life in huts in faraway villages, we should consider the way in which, as reportedly happened several years ago in Miami, a grilled cheese sandwich that resembled the Virgin Mary quickly became an item of social, economic, and even a little religious frenzy. It's not every day that a grilled cheese sandwich sells for $28,000, but that is precisely what happened. If you scoff at toadstool awe, consider the stories every few months that appear, just do an internet search of Virgin Mary sightings. Geert sums the matter up well. Quoting Albert Einstein, he writes that most religious questions can be boiled down to the hope and even faith that God does not play dice with the universe. Seeking to make even a little bit of sense of the universe and divine intentions is what tale after tale in world mythology addresses. One of the distinctive traits of Indonesian mythology is a large number of tales describing animals and their origins. In Borneo, it was said that a series of armless and legless monsters fell from the sky and split into various pieces that became pigs, chickens, and dogs. Another story, also from Borneo, has it that the creatures of both the sky, the birds, and sea, fish, came from twigs of a wonder tree. The world's poisonous animals and reptiles, however, had a different origin in their story. The same fearsome deity who breathed both life and death into the earliest humans formed them from his body. In the Philippines, there is a detailed story of animal origins that begins with a sky maiden who was cut in two. Alas, the myth does not tell us how this happened, but the context leads me to believe that parental discord was the cause. One portion of her stayed in the sky, and another fell down below, so that her father, below, and mother, above, each held a half. The father let his half decay, but the mother came down from the sky and took the decayed segments and scattered them about. From the head came the owl, from the ears a tree fungus, a mollusk came from the nose, and the hair became worms and maggots. Indeed, the intestines came to be a large array of animals as well. Once humans and animals occupied the earth, light remained a problem. In many stories from this region, the moon was generated from that same armless and legless monster who engendered the farm animals and dogs. A few other tales tell of the sky maiden becoming the moon. In other tales, the sun and moon were always just where they have been on any day of human existence. The larger concern in Indonesian mythology seems to have been the need to raise the sky. And indeed, that also appears in the myths of China and Hawaii. In the Indonesian stories, the heavens and the earth were too closely jammed together, and it was difficult for beings to operate under such a low sky roof. Even spears would get knocked down in mid-flight after hitting the ceiling of the heavens. Invoking the gods, 
the people called upon one of them, who had up until then always remained seated, to stand up and lift the sky above with arms and shoulders extended. A version from the Philippines has it that people often bumped their heads, making them so angry that they threw rocks at the sky. This so irritated the gods that they grudgingly pushed it up to its current position. That the sky should be such a persistent problem in mythology from all over our Asia-Pacific territories is quite surprising. But here, there we have it. Pillars, snails, worms, and deities all are depicted as pushing up a low heaven over an inhabited earth. And after that bit of a push, life in the world starts to look a lot like we know it today. The reasons for this differ, but it is almost as though, on one level or another, many Asia-Pacific peoples tended to think of the world as a kind of shell that needed to be pried open. One last push or pull, and the world was ready for action. And finally, we have fire, that distinction between nature and culture, raw and cooked. In many Indonesian myths, fire is fetched, so to speak, by dutiful animals who, although diligent, have a number of problems in bearing the embers through the sea, the rain, and the deluge. One tale describes a terrible flood after which only two people survived, a brother and a sister who had climbed to a high mountain. Terribly cold, the man sent his dog and a somewhat domesticated deer to a distant island to fetch fire. Like Kat in his canoe trip to the Taurus Islands, they swam there, garnered the fire, and started back. But the continuing deluge put out the flames, exasperating the man. Again, the dog and the deer went to the island, and back they swam. The deer's flame again was extinguished, but the dog arrived with his embers intact. Taking it from the loyal pooch, I like to imagine a nice pat on the head and a scratch behind the ears, the man built a fire that warmed the brother-sister pair. It is hard to tease out a moral here beyond the practical warmth of fire itself. I have always wondered whether this version of the myth speaks to a larger question of how human beings relate to domesticated and non-domesticated animals. Another fire story, this one from Sulawesi, formerly the Celebes, tells that fire was available to the first humans, but they clumsily allowed it to be extinguished. Since they did not know the way to bring it back, they sent one of their peers to the sky. There he would seek the flame. The deities above said that they would give it to him, but that he must cover his eyes. They did not mind giving humans fire, they noted, but still did not want humans to know how it was created. This particularly capable young man had eyes in his armpits, though, and as he watched the gods use flint, he came to understand how fire could be made and eventually taught the people of the earth. We see here a combination of resourcefulness and ability that goes beyond ordinary humanity, something I like to call mythological physics or mythological biology. The man is spoken of as a mortal, but so many mythical mortals do things beyond what an ordinary mortal can do that we should not be especially surprised. Our examination of egg stories, animal origin myths, and fire tales gives us an opportunity to ponder just how mythology operates from place to place and over time and from telling to telling. The French anthropologist Claude Lévi-Strauss 
argued that the way Westerners have come to study literature is of little use in understanding the variants of mythological traditions. Reading James Joyce and understanding a myth cycle are such different interpretive processes that we need to prepare ourselves differently for each. For Joyce, there is one telling, no matter the complexity, and we ponder it for its secrets. The exceedingly complex multiple drafts of Ulysses do not amount to variant tellings in the manner of even the simplest myth. In mythology, the process has an entirely different shape. Any one telling, any one variant, can have numerous particulars, contingencies, and matters of happenstance. Yet, argues Levi-Strauss, if we look more deeply, we will see that there are key structural elements that, even though they can be adjusted somewhat and moved around in several ways, anchor the telling of the myth. Without the key structural elements, in short, the myth won't work. The largely Western approach that has emphasized culling details and variant differences, searching for the ur-text, the original, as it were, is an utterly meaningless pursuit that hinders our understanding without helping it in any significant fashion. While structural analysis of myth has its problems, we can, for our purposes, appreciate some of its basic points. Many of the myths we just discussed share a structure that includes at least some of the following. Eggs, humans, breath, life, flawed breath, and death. If I asked an experienced storyteller to take five minutes, jot down these ideas, and tell a story from them, she would have little problem. Any five experienced storytellers, though, will have five very different stories, even if they all share the same cultural setting and agree on the basic structures of the story, even if they all mention eggs, breath, life, and death. This is how myth works. The variations can seem random at times, but whether considered individually or together, they remain a powerful way of thinking through complex elements of our shared lives. Indonesian myths also feature a variety of tricksters who have parallels in characters such as Polynesia's Maui and Micronesia's Olafat. Instead of a human-like demigod of good or ill, many Indonesian trickster tales center upon a mouse deer, a tiny and delicate hooved animal known in Indonesia as a kantju. Other stories feature different trickster figures, including an ape and a tortoise. Let's begin with the kantju and explore the ways that a mouse deer can outwit creatures much more awesome than he. One kantju tale from Java goes this way. One day, the Kanchil was resting quietly when he sensed a tiger approaching, with the wariness any mouse deer must feel around potential tiger threats. Quickly, he grabbed a leaf and began to sway his newfound fan over a pile of excrement lying nearby. When the tiger appeared, he asked what the Kanchil was doing. I am guarding the food of the king, replied the mouse deer. The tiger asked to partake of the royal food, but the Kanchil said absolutely not. It would not do. The tiger persisted. At last, the little mouse deer relented, asking the tiger only to wait to eat the food until he was gone, so that he would not be punished by the king. 
Off he fled and then shouted that the tiger could begin his repast now. Disgusted and furious at the result, the tiger pursued the kanchu. The story continues that the kanchu found a poisonous snake coiled up, asleep. Sitting nearby, but not too near, he waited for the tiger to find him. I warned you not to eat the food, he said. But quiet now, I am guarding the girdle of the king. It is filled with magical power. The tiger, quickly forgetting his dung snack, was entranced. Please let me try it on, he begged. With a show of reluctance, the conchil relented, asking only that he be allowed to flee so that the king would not punish him for letting the tiger wear the magic girdle. Off he ran, just as the tiger was struck by the snake. It took a harsh struggle for the tiger eventually to kill it, and boy was he upset. Now, filled with vengeful fantasies, the tiger renewed his pursuit of the conchu. The tiger found him resting by a cluster of bamboo. Greeting the tiger, the conchil said that he was protecting the king's trumpet. Again, the tiger was overcome with curiosity. The conchil persuaded the tiger that he should put his tongue between the bamboo shoots. And when the wind blew, beautiful music would be heard. Off ran the mouse deer when the wind blew, and a big gust pinched the bamboo and cut off the tiger's tongue. Finally, angry and tongueless, the tiger again found the trickster. This time the conchil stood beside a wasp's nest. I'm guarding the king's drum. It gives off an exquisite tone when struck. The tiger was again entranced and mumbled through his severed tongue that he should be allowed to try it. Again, with an air of reluctance, the conchil ran off as the tiger was overcome by a swarm of stinging wasps. These four story elements were often told together, but there are variants all over Indonesia and the Philippines involving the conchil and giants, as well as crocodiles and elephants. Clearly, the tiny conchil's quick-wittedness is to be admired, much like that of, say, the American cartoon character Tweety Bird and his nemesis, the house cat Sylvester. Here, the trickster is no culture hero and has none of the menace of Micronesia's Olafat. He's just a clever survivor who entertains and perhaps serves as a role model of sorts. Mouse deer tales are most prevalent in the southern and western areas of Indonesia, especially Java, Borneo, and Sumatra. But they are almost unknown in the more northern areas of the Indonesian archipelago and hardly ever seen further afield in the Philippines. There, tricksters tend to come in a paunchy and less nimble guise as either apes or tortoises. In one such tale, an ape is said to have befriended a heron, and they engaged in the common practice, at least among the humans who told these tales, of delousing one another. The heron went first and picked off every last bit of the ape's lice. The ape returned the favor, at least after a fashion. Pick, pick, he proceeded. Ouch, ouch, shouted the, the, the heron. You are hurting me. No, I am only picking off the lice, replied the ape. As it happened, the ape was plucking off all of the heron's feathers. I am done, he said when he had finished. Fly away. But when the poor heron tried, he could only stumble, and the ape laughed. This is not the end, however. As it happened, the ape met another heron, and this one was determined to punish the ape for his awful deed he had done to the first, plucked heron. 
The new heron said that it was off to find wonderful fresh berries in a place it knew across the sea. Would you like to come too? asked the heron. And into a canoe went the heron and ape. The heron steered while the ape rowed. You might already see where this is going. In this particular gotcha tale, the ape is reacting, and that is a devastating situation for a sophisticated trickster. But just like every card shark or mobster who ever enjoyed a run of good fortune, things have a way of turning bad in time. And so, out at sea, the heron pecked a hole in the bottom of the boat. It quickly filled with seawater as the heron flew away, leaving the ape to struggle in the choppy seas. The myth does not tell whether he lived or died, but the mythological tradition can assure us of one thing. He pops right up in the next set of trickster tales told around the campfire. So what can we make of tricksters in Indonesia and elsewhere in the Asia-Pacific region? Certainly, they serve to showcase the value of a nimble mind. They also serve as an explanation for the limited powers of the gods to prevent bad things from happening sometimes or simply as a personification of the fickle nature of fate. But they are not impervious to the machinations of others, and they struggle, at least occasionally, with bad timing and bad luck. I like to think of tricksters in much the same way that we do of con men in our own world. Humanity is almost perversely capable of submitting to crazy notions and tall tales. But even the most accomplished of con artists will run into either a string of bad luck, the law, or an equally perceptive companion, as did the ape with the second heron. Or perhaps the second heron should be considered a trickster himself, and a sharper one than the ape. Mythology. It is not just about the characters, mouse deer or ape, or even the plotline. It is a way of thinking through the ways of the world, and tricksters share with a whole bevy of human forms a combination of fertile imagination and hubris that we can recognize in the world around us, but may not truly internalize until we hear it in the telling of a myth. While it is tempting to offer firm conclusions when interpreting these wonderful myths, we must always keep in mind how different our own outlooks looks of the world may be from those of ancient peoples from other lands, especially lands as remote as Indonesia and the Philippines. Perhaps no example illustrates that important point better than that of two anthropologists who went to study the practice of headhunting in the northern Philippines in the late 1960s. There, the young couple, graduate students at Harvard University, began a two-year field study of a group of headhunters known as the Ilongot people. Michelle and Renato Rizaldo showed much of what is best in the study of anthropology, working closely with their Ilongot hosts to create not just rapport, but even some needed development, such as the small air airline landing strip that they built. They un they understood in ways that earlier anthropologists and missionaries often did not that almost anything they did, including the landing strip, would alter the culture. They also noted that the enormous changes taking place in the Philippines and the rest of the world were doing that already. And unlike some early Western travelers to the region, they did not sensationalize headhunting or make the Ilongot people into caricatures. The Rosaldos listened, asked questions, and began speaking the language. They learned to place in a larger social and cultural context the, by then, 
almost defunct traditions of headhunting that had fueled a dangerous and misunderstood society for centuries. They were not naive and wrote eloquently about their worries and concerns. Their observations seemed to channel the reflexive anthropological approaches that had just come into use following the publication of the diary of one Bronislaw Malinowski. Let's take a look at an excerpt from Michelle Rosaldo's Knowledge and Passion that addresses the emotional roots of headhunting among the Ilongot. As you will see, cultural context can mean the difference between love and war, and it provides us with a cautionary tale about mythological traditions far from our own experiences. She writes, One day I returned from a long hike to learn that Ilongot children, playing a tape of modern music in our house, had discovered a lovely female voice that sang, my friends reported as if they understood the words, in passionate tones of death and love. On the tape, the children heard the voice of a young woman whose cadences shook them to the core, Joan Baez, singing a song about a soldier going off to war. At first, Michelle Rosaldo thought that there was something almost universal about the notes, the tremolo, and that it might be bound to love and loss all over the world. But then she was confronted with the reactions of her Ilongot friends. She continues, But although a sound may well evoke for many people certain themes, observations of this kind, again, seem to fall short. Baez's song protested against war and invoked mourning. Whereas for Ilongots, her quivering voice was like a fluttering bangle or a twisting heart. Its beauty, for the Ilongot listeners, lay precisely in its power to stir their hearts with angry thoughts, just as mourning for the Ilongots points not to passivity and calm, but to wild violence. Rizaldo was startled to find, even after several years living in a society of headhunters, that a song of peace in one cultural setting, Joan Baez's painful Vietnam-era ode, could stir hearts in a very different society to anger and thoughts of headhunting. The key idea here is that we must often go below the surface level of our own interpretations to understand what is happening, whether in music or in myth. Although the example is dramatic, it reminds us that mythology is not just about story or moral. Mythology is a way of thinking. If we consider Joan Baez's music, as I think we should, as akin to mythology, we should never assume that cultural themes simply translate easily from society to society. We are all enmeshed in our own cultural assumptions. For Michelle Rosaldo, Joan Baez sang of war protest. For the Ilongots, she sang of vitriol and head-taking. Stunning as the difference between these two points of view is, I don't think it means that we can never understand anything at all, as some pessimists might say. Rather, I think we can understand what is going on in widely varying mythical traditions. But we should always be aware that our own cultural assumptions have borders, and that studying mythology always requires knowledge not only of how they think, but of how we think as well. This lecture is titled, Aboriginal and Colonial Myths of Australia. Next to China, 
Australia is by far the largest landmass that we have encountered in these lectures. Although it is sometimes described as an island, it is hard to think of it in those terms, given its enormous expanse of territory. It is almost as though the vast bulk of China itself were cut loose and placed in the southern Pacific Ocean. And, as almost any school child knows, the flora and fauna of Australia are unlike almost any other in the world. In turn, Australian mythology is distinctive, from the Aboriginal tales to even those of the colonial occupiers many centuries later. From kangaroos to koalas, everything looks and sounds just a little bit different in Australia. In great contrast to the lush tropics of Polynesia, Micronesia, Melanesia, and Indonesia, the Australian deserts are intensely hot in the summer, while the high hills of the southeast can be almost as intensely cold. If you look at a map, you will see that the tips of Australia's northern territories are not very far in terms of oceanic distances from Indonesia and New Guinea. And Australia's mythology does share some attributes with that of, the great, of greater Oceania. Still, the differences are vast, and Australia has many mythological themes that would baffle anyone from Hawaii, New Guinea, Micronesia, or Indonesia. Australian Aboriginal culture is said to be the oldest continuous culture on our planet. Several groups made up Australian society at the time of Western contact in the 16th or early 17th century. The first of these might be considered a northern Aboriginal group. In the large region it occupied, as large as a quarter or more of the continent, there were social systems and languages that echoed many of those in New Guinea. A second cultural grouping could be seen in the southern parts of the continent. And let us not forget the island of Tasmania, where yet another strain of culture developed. Every indigenous Tasmanian language has been lost, and the last people of purely Tasmanian descent died in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Indeed, colonial impact from Europe had a devastating impact on this early culture. What we know from archaeological evidence, however, is that Tasmanian peoples date back at least 30,000 years. Indeed, one enticing perspective is that settlers crossed into what we know now as Tasmania when sea levels were much lower, and there was, in effect, a land bridge to Tasmania. When ocean levels rose, however, these peoples were effectively cut off from further contact for thousands of years. Most of their culture is gone. The sorry colonial story of violence, disease, occupation, and forcing indigenous Tasmanians into relocation centers has buried a way of life and a mythology that could have taught us a great deal about human culture in remote environments. Not only was the subjugation of Tasmania rapid, but the first colonists spent little energy recording dying traditions. So, not only do we know little about how Tasmanian Aboriginal society was organized, but we have little understanding of the myths they told each other. I have often bemoaned the fact that all we know of East Asian and Oceanic mythology comes from written sources, stories written down by scholars in China, Korea, and Japan, as well as those taken down in detail by missionaries and anthropologists. In Tasmania, however, we have almost nothing. Thankfully, we do have archaeology, and we can learn a good deal about the location of settlements on the island and the way that the small, group, small groups built their shelters. Not much remains of the mythical tradition, but there is a little. 
An intriguing article written over 50 years ago analyzes Tasmanian mythological terms. Although the actual stories themselves have been completely lost, the terms that the researcher, Ernest Aylred Worms, was able to piece together with scattered documentation gives us at least a glimpse of the mythology of what was arguably the oldest society on Earth. Take, for example, the term Twilight Man. This intriguing concept actually refers to the beginning of time and seems to play on concepts of light and dark that are common throughout Oceania, as in the Micronesian tale of how a cosmic spider lit, lit the dark world after a snail and a snake raised the sky, or Melanesia's story of how the character Kat traded a pig for the night. Another, the revered spirit, gives a sense of the phantom and ghostly qualities of departed spirits, a theme that can be found throughout Australia. And finally, among about two dozen terms that can still be extracted from the sparse native accounts in the 19th century is Mayan Ginja, the killer. This supernatural being is closely associated with the dead, and similar terms can be found throughout Western Australia. Although these words give us just brief glimpses into the world of Tasmanian mythology, we will be able to see possible parallels in narratives in southeastern, northern, and western Australia. Let's turn to those now. We'll begin with a central Australian myth that will allow us to piece together several key dimensions of Aboriginal culture, some of which persist to this day. This origin myth of the Aranda, sometimes seen in books as Arunta, begins in a time when the earth was a flat, desolate plain. There were no rolling undulations of countryside, no rivers or lakes, and the land lay in continual semi-darkness. There were no plants, no animals, and only little half-alive beings, ill-defined but significant in the telling, that were scattered across the territory. And the ways of the earth knew neither life nor death. You see, in Australia, most of life, people, plants, animals, and even celestial bodies, came up out of the ground. I trust that this is a startling enough image in itself to make you understand that Australia has a mythology that is profoundly different from those we have encountered in these lectures up until now. Ah, but below the surface, that is where a kind of life force existed in all of its fullness. Down there, from our perspective, lay fully formed but slumbering super-beings. Over time, these super-beings awoke from their sleep and came up through the soil, and the places where they emerged were immediately charged with sacred power and vibrant life force, often engendering those vague half-beings in the process. And just at this time, the sun, too, rose from below the Earth's surface and climbed high into the sky. Don't think of this as a one-day, one-night operation. This is mythical time. And what were these super-beings? Well, some came out in the form of emus, kangaroos, or lizards. Others were in the form of men and women. But here is the key. The super-beings who were in the form of humans could take on animal or even plant characteristics, and the animals could act and think like humans. The super-beings would become the foundations of social and mythical life for millennia. 
Indeed, these beings were the totemic ancestors, and they began to wander the earth, giving it, in their peregrinations, its distinctive landscape. The once flat land soon became marked with features that both varied the scenery and, far more significantly, charged it with supernatural meaning. A few of these super beings began to craft human beings as well. From large blocks of potential humanity, they began their work. One must imagine something like a hunk of clay or dough, and from that material, the super beings carved off little chunks to make human infants. From there, they fashioned their fingers and toes and made orifice holes for them to see, hear, breathe, and so forth. Other super beings became the teachers of these earliest humans, showing them how to gather food, make fire, and cook their meals. And when this profound myth time, sometimes called dream time, had led to the creation of a world much like we know today, the super beings felt enormously weary. They had worked so hard to craft culture from nature that they had little energy left. And so back they went to their original sleeping states. Some of them returned to their underground lairs. Others wove their way across the earth until utterly exhausted, becoming trees, rocks, or other objects on the landscape. These above-earth sites, the traces of the ancestors, came to be revered by those early humans as spiritual centers and holy sites. And so goes the mythology as it is told and retold to this day. The life and landscape that the ancestors left behind is linked to a wondrous age in a bygone era. Dream time. And there is more. Every living individual possesses a glimmer of it. The Aranda of Central Australia believe that each human being possesses two souls. One comes from the parents, combining sperm and egg. The other, however, is granted to the pregnant woman and gives each person physical individuality, personality, and a bit of the ancestral aura. In other words, human beings are created in an entirely human procreative process, but they are brought to completion by the spirits of the ancestors. And there is one more intriguing detail that continues to shape Australian thinking to this very day. Those winding routes taken by the Dreamtime super beings, and even the places where they turn to rock or tree, they are part of a complex idea called song lines. Even today, many Aboriginal people tell of the way in which everything from brief trips to many day journeys can be made by following ancient chants, passed down through the ages and tracing the pattern movements of the ancestors along the song lines. The idea remains powerful, if hard to grasp for outsiders, but still, imagine a kind of song map that might guide a human traveler along the now invisible corridors, corridors of the ancestors many ages ago in the time of dreaming. So the totemic ancestors walked the earth and left spiritually charged spaces and places wherever they went. And then they were gone, leaving only these traces of their power in, the super, in supercharged bits and pieces of the landscape. But they left something else. They left a kind of identification that human beings would have with emus, snakes, caterpillars, kangaroos, opossums, and crows, who 
whose appearance they took on during the mythical dreaming time. They became totemic ancestors for social groups of human beings who identified with them in some respects, but also formed their marriage rules and initiation rites around the general idea of who their particular ancestors were. And this gets us a little too deeply for our own good into the controversial area of anthropology that studies totemism. Even the word is problematic since it comes from a Native American Indian word for various clan names, ododem. Essentially, though, as we look at Australian clan names, keep in mind that kinship groups were segmented in various ways. Marriage rules, initiation ceremonies, and other central matters of life are organized around these groupings, all of which take the animal or plant names from the superbeings in dream time. For example, among the Urbana of Central Australia, some of the totemic names are Nayari, Wild Duck, Wutnimera, Green Cicada, Matla, the Dingo, Waraguti, the Emu, Kalatthura, Wild Turkey, and Guti, Black Swan. Rules for marriage work in this way. No two members of a totem group may marry, but members of two different totem groups may do so. So no two lizard totem members may marry because their kinship connections are too close. But a woman of the lizard clan may marry a man of the wild turkey clan. Let's examine a story that, mysterious as it is, brings some of this complicated material to life. This particular tale tells of a figure who came up out of the soil, interacted with various super beings and new humans, and then went back to the soil from which he first emerged. Somewhat problematically, the character is called a Eurochild. The term evidently refers to Europeans, which suggests that the character can only have been developed after Europeans first arrived in Australia. Yet the rest of the myth appears to be ancient, or at least in its characters may be. It seems quite likely that the Euro character was grafted onto the story, replacing what originally was an ancestor in the form of an emu, a kangaroo, a lizard, or a snake. The Euro child detail reminds us that myth can incorporate all kinds of disparate elements, even in rather ancient tales such as this one. The story goes that in the past, a Euro child rose out of the ground. He was found by a woman of the lizard clan who gave him milk to drink. Every day she gathered berries for her husband, the wild turkey man, and continued to give milk to the Euro child who grew ever larger. And so the early humans, who had already been carved by the hands of the ancestors, took care of the late-arriving super-being child from down below the ground. And quickly he grew. When the Euro-child reached an appropriate age and weight, he ran off and began a series of journeys. As we have just heard, those journeys are the very core of the ancestral dreamtime life. Everywhere he went, the super-being, who was now a Euro-man, created a winding line of sacred movement. We now come to another aspect of the actual myths of super-being dreamtime. Just because they take place in the dreamtime doesn't mean they are happy or end well. Instead, the myths recount conflict, battles, and even super-being death, although death is a good deal less permanent for super-beings than for humans. In time, 
the Euroman met up with a cluster of iguana women. Think of the totemic clan identification. They fought him with a considerable force of lightning. This detail is a bit more complicated since these iguana women both share in some of the power of the ancestors, lightning, and yet are organized into human groups. The myth never explains the ambiguity, but I prefer to think of them as having human social networks. They are of the iguana clan, combined with larger-than-human life abilities. Euroman won this one, though. He battled them, killed them, and ate them. After his victory, he continued his wanderings. Down the road, or line, he met a man of the Wren totem and killed him too. Later, climbing a steep hill upon which he was forced to crawl on all fours, he arrived at the camp of some rain women. They offered him food, but, frustrated that they would not give in to his sexual demands, he refused it. Indeed, he threw the food away, a terrible faux pas, whereupon the rain women killed him. And down the Euro man went, back into the ground, to sleep again. Do the Euroman's conflicts with every human being he encounters represent real conflicts between Europeans and Australia's Aborigines? Or did a more ancient character have the same conflicts with humans in an earlier version of the myth and simply get replaced by Euroman at some point? We will never know quite what this message this myth might have conveyed in, say, 1500, several centuries before actual Euroman arrived in Australia and began recording mythological tales. But mythology is almost never about the moral of the story. It is almost always about a complex way of thinking about the world by using images and themes at the ready for reflective human beings. From the land below in Australian mythology, let us move now to what lies above. Think back to some of our other oceanic mythical traditions. Remember that low-lying sky that required beings of strength and ingenuity to push it higher? Well, once it was far above the earth, getting up there became a good deal more complicated than before. Throughout Oceania, we have a number of tales that speak of daring ascents to the heavens, not unlike the Jack and the Beanstalk legends in the West. The larger theme of communication between heaven and earth is always at work, and it is useful to pay attention to those tales that address the ways in which these interactions happen. In New Guinea, Indonesia, and Polynesia, there are numerous tales of sky maidens who come to earth as the brides of men. Well, the following aboriginal tale is told in both New Guinea and closely neighboring Queensland. In it, a man who had married a sky maiden and had a son by her became angry with both of them and scolded them. His wife and son took wing and flew up to heaven. So distraught was the man at this that he wished to make amends and enlisted the help of a bird. The bird flew to the sky country, adeptly picked out a, pecked out a picture of the happy family on a large piece of fruit and dropped it at the feet of the pair, who were busy weaving mats. The boy was overcome, but his sky mother told the bird that only if her husband came up to the sky country would they be united again? Only then would she descend back to earth. But how could the husband get up to the sky? At length, he hatched a plan. 
Taking a powerful bow and a hundred arrows, he shot one into the sky, where it stuck with firmness. Please note that for this to work, we must imagine the sky as a vast dome, an idea that appears in many early myths. One good, if distant, example can be found in the frozen north of Mongolia, where a saying often expressed, is often expressed that the sky was like a heavenly yurt. Well, this able marksman then took a second arrow and shot it directly into the end of the first, where it too stuck firmly. He shot arrow after arrow this way, and in the end, his 100 arrows formed a chain that reached to the earth. In these myths, the number 100 often means a lot. And from there, a kind of rapid pace, heavenly botanical growth occurred, and a great banyan root wove its way around the arrow chain, stabilized it, and gave it strength. And then the man and the bird climbed the roots to the sky country. And there's more to this story, and once again, I'm afraid it doesn't have a happily ever after ending. The wife agreed to descend, but insisted that the man and bird go first. They started down, but halfway there, the wife took a hatchet she had hidden in her robes and cut the roots, sending man and bird tumbling to earth while she climbed back to the heavens with her son. In South Australia, there is a similar tale. In this one, Wayungare, a spectacularly gifted man and peerless hunter, was resting near a lake when two beautiful women spotted him. They immediately wanted the handsome man to share as their husband, and made a plan to make noises like emus running past him as he slept. Immediately awakened, hunters are always ready at the sound of running emus, he was surprised with a dual proposal of marriage, which he readily accepted. It so happens that these women were actually already married to a spiteful man named Nepele, and he was in no mood to accept the changed situation. The angry spouse went to Wayungari's hut and burned it down. The three intended victims had just enough time to escape, but they feared that future attempts on their lives would be more successful. Determining that the world above was their only safe haven, Wayungare attached a long line to his great hunting spear and hurled it toward the dome of the heavens. There, it planted itself firmly into the sky, and Wayungare climbed and then pulled up until all were safe. They are now stars in the firmament. To the north, in New South Wales, there is almost the same legend. The key difference is that the spears have no cord, and the process resembles our first tale in terms of method. A chain of spears is thrown, with one after another sticking into the butt of its predecessor, until the sequence extended all the way down to earth, allowing the escapers to climb to safety. The replacement of arrows with spears is an interesting ethnographic tidbit as well, since spears were the weapon of choice throughout most of Australia and bows and arrows were almost unknown, which suggests, suggests that the story of the man who argued with his wife and son must have originated somewhere else in Oceania. Throughout this course, we have seen several ways in which outside influences have altered the mythological record. What we have not seen up until now is something even more mind-bending colonial occupiers creating their own mythology. To those of us who have grown accustomed to thinking of missionaries, traders, settlers, and anthropologists patiently taking down native traditions, even as they continued to destroy them with their presence, it may come as a surprise to hear a myth 
about the colonial occupiers told to the colonial occupiers by the colonial occupiers. But of course, colonists have done the same thing the world over. Early American mythology surrounding the origins of the Thanksgiving holiday is but one example. If you have never heard the Australian song Waltzing Matilda, you owe it to yourself to listen to the whole thing. I would be surprised if you do not hear a kind of tale that is in keeping with the culture heroes and tricksters of oceanic myth. One of, on its most basic level, it can be seen as a song of trapping and even poaching, the struggle for food in a difficult environment. But it also shows an Australia that is as fascinating in its post-colonial juncture as it is troubling. Listen to the first part. As with all riveting mythology, there are terms that sound strange to listeners. Here, instead of eels and dracaena trees, we have a collection of unfamiliar words that stem from both Aboriginal and English sources. Once a jolly swagman camped by a billabong under the shade of a kuliba tree, and he sang as he watched and waited till his billy boiled, you'll come a-waltzing, Matilda, with me. Down came a jumbuck, to drink at the billabong. Up got the swaggy and grabbed him with glee, and he sang as he stowed that jumbuck in his tucker bag, You'll come a-waltzing, Matilda, with me. Many people are as puzzled by some of the terms in this first verse as they are by lizard, turkey, and iguana totems. Billabong, kulaba, jumbuck, even tucker bag. Many of us began thinking that we were listening to English and ran right off the interpretive rails. Let me break it down and finish the story without the risk of having me sing it. So, resting by a waterhole, that's the billabong, an aboriginal term, an itinerant trapper catches a potentially tasty treat and stuffs it into his bag. You will see already the way in which you'll come a-waltzing Matilda with me has the message of, I'll capture you and it is out of your control. So far, it seems a lot like we might imagine life in Australia to be back in the 19th century. The joyful swaggy, the unfortunate jumbuck, they are not so much the stuff of legend as the daily process of kill or be killed. But then a new element appears, and it shows a different side to Australia than we had assumed. Down came the squatter, mounted on his thoroughbred, and beside him are troopers, one, two, three and they ask the swag man what he has in the bag. In other words, the man who claims possession of the land sees the ruckus and with armed help implies that this is my property and you're in big trouble now. Suddenly, we have a world of fledgling outback capitalism backed up with force in the vast territories of Australia. But this is mythology, at least of a sort. And it is the swaggy who gets at least a kind of last laugh. With his actions, he enters into the land of myth and legend. Up got the swaggy and jumped into the billabong. You'll never catch me alive, said he. And his ghost may be heard as you pass by that billabong. You'll come a-waltzing, Matilda, with me. And his ghost may be heard. That brings the tale of food, force, and presence in the afterlife into full mythical, if colonial, form. Haunting the billabong 
never forget on the squatter's land, completes the mythic circle. That this disturbing tale of life, death, and private property has become at least the unofficial national anthem of Australia might give us pause. It is undeniably harsh and vindictive from several angles, including the ghostly one. On the other hand, I think that it functions quite powerfully in the way that all real myth does. As with many other tales we've considered, the meaning of Waltzing Matilda is obscure, and in fact several versions of it exist. Some argue that it was written as a political protest song in connection with an Australian shearer's strike in 1894. Others disagree, and the debate has gone on for over a century. But as with other myths, its power is not so much in the details as in the way it lets us think through complex processes, and surely the struggle for ascendancy in a rough environment is that. So can the late arriving colonists have a mythology too? Yes, of course they can. On the other hand, if you think that I am saying that this is unproblematic or unconflicted, it would be a very great mistake. Colonialists horning in on Australia's ancient narrative is undeniably disturbing. To me, it was all but inevitable, though, an outgrowth of two cultures, both at odds and learning from each other at the same time. And that, in human history, is a very old story. One way to think about mythology, everything from Chinese culture heroes and Micronesian tricksters all of the way to Australian Aboriginal songlines and even Waltzing Matilda, is to concentrate on the bits and pieces. That is what myth is, if you consider it. It is a collection of things in our midst, patched together in story form. It's certainly more like a patchwork than a straight-line plot. So let's add one more idea about mythology to our interpretive arsenal. The French anthropologist Claude Lévi-Strauss describes this assembling of bits and pieces by the term bricolage. It refers to a kind of French handyman in earlier times who would be called upon to build or repair household items, always using a limited store of tools and materials, more or less what he could carry in his cart. Let's say that a family had a broken plank on the front porch. Out came various pieces of wood, none exact, and the bricoleur set to work. Before long, he would measure, saw, adjust, and adapt. When the last nail was in place, the stairs would be patched. The wood did not come straight from the lumberyard. No, it was originally part of something else, something with its own particular past. And now it was made to blend into a new environment, a new context. This is a far cry from what an engineer might do, of course. She would find the exact material for the exact job. Claude Lévi-Strauss calls bricolage a science of the concrete, and he specifically equates it to how mythology works. What the mythmaker does is rearrange the pieces to tell a compelling story, mixing a kind of science with a fair dose of artistry. The result is something that works in the cultural traditions of a society, and yet always surprises, like Waltzing Matilda or the Polynesian trickster Maui. In short, myth is a patchwork. And that is what makes it feel a little like history, but different. A little like religion, but different. A finished project has no precise recipe, only a powerful set of cultural ingredients and tools with which to prepare it.
These lectures are part of the Great Courses series. These lectures are titled Great Mythologies of the World, the Americas. Your lecturer is Dr. Grant L. Voth. Dr. Voth is Professor Emeritus in English and Interdisciplinary Studies at Monterey Peninsula College. He received his MA in English Education from St. Thomas College and his PhD in English from Purdue University. A former professor at Northern Illinois University and Virginia Polytechnic Institute and State University, Dr. Voth is the author of more than 30 books and articles on subjects ranging from Shakespeare to modern American fiction. His other great courses include A Day's Read, The History of World Literature, Myth in Human History, and The Skeptic's Guide to the Great Books. This lecture is titled, Nature in Native American Myth. The Cherokee, a people who lived in what is now the southeastern part of the United States, told a story about how humans came to cultivate their most important food. When the world was still new, a hunter and his wife lived with their son. The father's name was Kanati, which means something like lucky hunter. The mother's name was Selu, which means corn. Every day Kanati went hunting, every day he came home with game, and every day Selu would wash the blood from the game in a river near their house and prepare it for dinner. Their son went down to play by the river each day, but over time Kanati and Selu noticed him talking and laughing and shouting as though there were someone with him, which his parents knew wasn't the case. When they asked him about it, their son said that each day a boy came out of the river and played with him all day. At the end of the day, the boy would return to the water. Kanadi and Selu wondered who the boy could be and what his emergence from the water might mean. They suspected that he was no ordinary boy, but they had no way of knowing that he would change their lives and the lives of all of humanity forever. This Cherokee story is one tiny example of a rich body of Native American myths. It's a vast subject. There are thousands of stories told by hundreds of peoples spread across North, Central, and South America over thousands of years. Because these different peoples occupy different environmental niches, they developed different cultures, each of which told its stories in its own way. Those of the Hopi, for example, who lived in what's now Arizona, were very different from those of the Huron, who lived along the St. Lawrence River in what is now Canada. At the same time, all of their stories, despite their differences, do the work that all myths do for all peoples. They address their most fundamental questions. Where did we come from? How did we get here? What is the world like? How did it get that way? How did we learn to do the things we have to to survive in this place? Why do we do the things we do the way we do them? What are our ceremonies and what work do they do for us? What are the powers that hold the cosmos together? What's our relationship to those powers? What do we owe them? What have they promised to do for us? What happens if we neglect our end of the bargain, whatever that bargain is? And what values must we teach our children so that they could live in the world as we do? 
Beyond these large-scale similarities, which, as we know, are the kinds of ways myths work for everybody, ourselves included, there are a few themes and values and ideas that all Native American stories seem to promote. And one extremely important one is the idea of the sacredness of nature, an attitude very different from our own. The Native American tradition is called animistic, which means that everything is permeated by spirit or spirits, so that everything is both alive and holy. Animals, plants, the wind, trees, rivers, the very ground we walk on was all alive and sacred. It's one of the reasons why shamans were so important for Native Americans, because their job was to stay in touch with the spirit world on behalf of the people and to deal with the spirits as necessary. But all Native Americans shared the responsibility of treating the natural world with reverence and respect. Gerald Ramsey, in his book Coyote Was Going There, says that animistic piety for these peoples was more than being awed by the sacred. It was a matter of survival. To lose alertness or not to respect the natural world was to risk being expelled from it. So wherever Native Americans walked in the world, they tread carefully. In a way, all Native Americans use their stories to remind themselves, each other, and their children to do just that. For us, these Native American myths give us a chance to think about our world in ways that are strikingly different from our own, and they can no doubt be salutary for us. We buy our plastic-wrapped pre-cut meats from a grocery store, we strip-mine our mountains, we frack our ground for oil, And if we want to spend time in communication with nature, we drive our automobiles through autumn forests or our Winnebago's to campsites where we can actually see some of the stars. But in Native American myths, we come in contact with people who lived in daily communion with nature, for whom it was a living thing. Wherever they walked, they trod carefully. We get to see some of that concern for nature in the Cherokee story we're looking at. When Kanati and Selu heard about the mysterious boy who came out of the water each day, they told their son that the next day, while they were playing, he should start to wrestle with the river boy and then hold on to him while he called his parents. He did what they asked, and the parents came out of hiding and took the boy home. Kanati and Selu sensed right away that the river boy was somehow born of the animal blood that Selu washed off in the river each day. They also recognized that he was extraordinary and must have great powers. He stayed with them and their son, part of the family in some ways, but different from them in others. He always remained something of a wild boy. He was never completely domesticated. He was always artful and tricky, and he was always his brother's leader in every kind of mischief. All of us post-Freudians probably want to see his wildness as related to the fact that he came from the blood of killed game, perhaps as an embodiment of some guilt associated with killing animals who are sacred too. That might well be in the story, but a meaning that I'm more sure of is that virtually every Native American hero has a miraculous conception and birth which mark him as special. In some, his mother is impregnated by a ray of sunshine or by the wind or by swallowing a leaf in a drink of water or finding a clot of blood that comes to life or an answer to a wish of a childless woman for a son. 
this is pretty much the case for heroes of all cultures, that they have miraculous births which mark them out for greatness in some way. These are simply some Native American versions. Here, the hero comes from animal blood washed off in the river. One day, Riverboy became curious about how Kanati could be so successful at bringing home game every day. So he talked his brother into following Kanati into the woods to see how he did it. Kanati went to a place where there was a big rock. He lifted it, and out of the cave that it covered came a large buck, which Kanati shot with an arrow. Then he put the rock back. The boys realized that he had all the game locked up and simply let out an animal when he wanted to shoot it. It was like shooting ducks in a barrel. A day or two later, Riverboy talked his brother into trying it for themselves. They went to the rock, and they lifted it, but before they could do anything, all the deer and raccoons and rabbits and turkeys and pigeons and partridges in the world came running and flying out and scattered into the woods. When Kanadi heard all the ruckus, he ran out to find the cave empty. So he walked over to four jars in the corners, kicked off their lids, and out came bedbugs and fleas and lice and gnats and mosquitoes, which nearly ate the boys alive. Kanati told the boys that until now there had always been plenty to eat without having to work for it. But from now on, animals would be dispersed in the woods and would need to be hunted down. Some days there wouldn't be anything for dinner. From here on, the world would be a harder place for all of them. So, there was no game that day for Selu to wash in the river and prepare. The boys were still hungry, however, and asked Selu for something to eat. She said she had to go to the storeroom to get some corn and beans. She had done this before, but this time the boys spied on her when she went to get them. What they saw was that she rubbed her stomach until a basket was half full of corn, and then she rubbed her armpits to fill it up the rest of the way with beans. They were disgusted and horrified and decided that she must be some kind of witch and that they would have to kill her. Selu knew what they were thinking, so she told them that when she was dead, they should clear a plot of land in front of the house and then drag her body seven times around the plot and seven times across it. Wherever her blood fell, she said, corn would spring up. They did what she told them, and then they stayed up all night to see what happened. This was still mythic time long, long ago, when things happened much faster than they do now. By morning, there was a field of ripe corn in front of the house. Well, this has suddenly become a violent story involving the killing of a mother and the seeming desecration of her body. But this is a story that's common to a lot of Native Americans who grew maize. It's the story of the corn mother in which the corn mother is killed, but from whose body comes the maize which feeds the people. So this isn't really a story about violence against women, but a story about woman as food provider and food maker. Every Cherokee infant started life on food from the body of his or her mother, so imaginatively this makes perfect sense. Selu will be remembered and thanked every time corn is planted, prepared, or eaten and that the corn is permeated by her spirit is part of what makes it a sacred gift. She is the spirit in the corn and a mythic mother spirit. In a way, she's as close to a pure earth or nature goddess as Native Americans ever get. 
Notice that she doesn't have a male consort to help her with this. She makes the corn herself from her own body. And insofar as she is an earth goddess, she reminds us and the people who told us this story that she cares for her children like a mother to the point of providing her own body so that they will be fed. Well, there's a lot more to this Cherokee story. Kanadi was so angry at what the boys had done that he went off to join a group of beings called the Wolf People and spent a lot of time trying to get the boys killed. But thanks to the River Boys' special powers, they managed to escape every trap he set for them. Eventually, they caught up with Kanadi at the place where the world ends, where they found him sitting peacefully with his wife, Selu, restored to his side. From there, the boys went to the darkening land in the far west, where they became the Thunder Boys. Every time the thunder rumbles in the west, the people know that the boys are talking to each other. The boys returned, however, to give the precious corn to other people and to teach them how to cultivate it. They also taught them songs that can call the deer who aren't locked in that cave anymore, but who now range all over the forest. The story says that some of those songs were still sung by the Cherokee to charm the deer when they're hunting them, songs that lure them to the hunter and make it possible to kill those now elusive deer. Origin stories like this are abundant in Native American myths. They explain where things come from, things like fire and bows and arrows and baskets and pottery, the arts of skinning and tanning and weaving and why people die and why there are two sexes and how a people came to be living in this particular place. There are far fewer cosmogonic stories, how the world came to be, what kind of deities made it, and theological issues such as what the relations are between the gods of the sky, the earth, and the underworld. And there isn't much effort to arrange the gods into the kinds of pantheons and narratives that we get from the myths of the Aryans in India, or the Babylonians, or the Greeks, or the Norse. Typically, there's a great spirit who made the world, and then a host of powers, sun and wind and rain and stars and animal spirits, The great spirit is revered, but is usually too passive and remote to have a distinct personality like Zeus's or the Babylonian Marduk's. Usually, the first power creates more individualized figures like Mother Earth and Father Sky or Sun and Moon or First Man and First Woman, who then carry on with the rest of creation while the supreme deity retires to the sky. These second-tier powers are the ones who arrange the world that we still live in, and they're usually the ones who create humans. The Great Spirit may still reign over creation, but the particular features of the world were designed and made by lesser powers and human heroes like Riverboy, and even by tricksters, a wonderful category of characters we'll explore later. There are a lot of Native American stories about this second stage of creation, featuring some of those second-tier powers. Mostly, they're of two sorts. The first, known as the Earth Diver type, starts with a primordial sea into which various creatures dive to bring up bits of mud from which the Earth is formed. The second is the emergence type, in which four or five worlds are stacked on top of each other beneath the surface of the Earth. In this kind of story, creatures living in the bottom world have to climb through all of them, 
becoming more human-like as they ascend from one chamber to the next, finally emerging into the world that we inhabit. But still, there are far more stories about how the natural world and humans were shaped after the initial creation, or how the world as we know it came to be, like the one we've just been looking at. A story like this can tell us certain things about how this particular people in this particular story answered questions about how the world came to be as it is. For example, we understand that Kanadi represents the hunting side of Cherokee economics, while Salu is the agricultural side. The story explains why killing game is difficult and hence why acquiring special powers for the hunt is important. In a way, the story accounts for the end of a golden age when all hunters had to do, metaphorically anyway, was to push aside a rock, let out an animal, shoot it, and take it home for dinner. In a more naturalistic way, it tells of a time when game was getting scarce. But the loss of easily available game is balanced by access to a new food. Maize is the gift of Selu, who gives her body to fill up those spaces left by the days when the hunters bring nothing home. The gender division is also apt, since in most Native American cultures that had both hunting and agriculture, the men were the hunters, the women were the farmers. Carl Krober, in his book Native American Storytelling, says that we might see this story as a kind of fall in which the good old days of easy game are lost. But it's also a story about how nature partly gives way to culture. Humans are liberated from a total dependence on natural bounty. Nature is still the ultimate provider, but from now on humans can control nature a bit, make it more predictable, can organize it so that a bad day's hunting can be made up for by corn porridge or dumplings. Humans have made an advance here, taking some of the need for luck out of life by learning a new set of skills. And maybe that's why, at the end of the story, the boys become the thunder that brings the rain that makes the new crop grow. They had to kill the wild corn that grew naturally in order to cultivate it, which is another meaning of the killing of Selu. The boys then teach these corn-growing skills to others, initiating a process of cultural tradition not based entirely, or at least not directly, on the bounty of nature. It's probably why, when the boys finally caught up with Kanadi and Selu, they were welcomed, in spite of the fact that they had killed their mother and driven their father away. So, it turns out to be not only a story of how something came to be, but about how we grew up a little bit. The Cherokee weren't the only people who had a maize myth. The Penobscot lived in and around present-day Maine, and they had one too. Like the Cherokee one, this one took place in the early days, this time before there were any humans. First mother and first father, two of those second-tier powers we talked about, lived on Earth with their family, which was growing so large that game was getting scarce. Everybody was hungry all the time. First mother told her husband that the only solution was that he should kill her and then have two of their sons drag her corpse by the hair over a cleared patch of earth until her flesh had been completely torn from her bones. Then they should bury her bones in the center of the clearing and go away for seven months. When they returned, there would be an answer to their food problem. 
They did what she asked, reluctantly, since it meant killing their wife and mother, and they didn't do it until the great spirit had seconded her instructions. But when they returned seven months later, the ground was covered with tall, green, tasseled plants, the fruit of which was their wife and mother's flesh. Following her instructions, they didn't eat all of it, but kept some of it back for seed, so that she could be renewed every seven months. Where the bones had been buried, there was a different, fragrant, broadleaf plant. She had told them that when they smoked it, it would clear their minds, help them in their prayers and ceremonies, and cheer their hearts. This, of course, was tobacco, a plant also considered sacred by many Native Americans. So the Penobscot, like the Cherokee, thought of their first mother every time they ate maize, since her flesh was in the kernels, and every time they used the pipe, since her breath was in the smoke, and they gave thanks to the earth, their mother. Notice, too, that as in the Cherokee story, maize is a kind of compensation for the scarcity of game animals. When animal food is hard to find, the need for something like maize becomes urgent. There are many such maize stories, since for agricultural peoples, corn was as important as the buffalo was for the hunters of the plains. Native Americans had to invent agriculture for themselves since they had arrived in North America before any of the agricultural revolutions of the Old World. The first humans entered the continent somewhere between 12,000 and 60,000 years ago. They came from Siberia across the Bering Strait to Alaska during the last ice age when so much water was trapped in ice that a land bridge was exposed between the two. When they arrived, they were nomadic hunters who may well have followed game to reach North America. Such agriculture as they had was rudimentary, not much beyond gathering wild plants, and they had animal skin clothing, and they could build some kind of shelters for themselves. They moved in a southward direction, mostly on the eastern side of the Rocky Mountains, and spread out from there. For millions of years, animals and plants had had the entire continent to themselves, so there were ample food supplies. They probably trickled in in family groups or clans, not in any kind of mass migration. By about 10,000 years ago, they had moved from the foothills of the Rocky Mountains eastward across the Great Plains all the way to the Atlantic seaboard. They also kept moving south. There's a possibility that the peoples who settled in the American southeast and southwest had actually migrated further south and then reversed their direction. People in the southeast, including the Cherokee, for example, may have come back north from Mexico. There's an intriguing myth from the Caribbean about a woman who's killed and from whose body food is produced. The food in this story isn't maize, it's manioc or cassava, but the story is otherwise very like the Cherokee one, including even twin foster sons who spy on their mother when she produces food from her body. The parallels seem to be too precise to be purely coincidental, and they suggest the possibility that as maize came north from Central and South America, the story may have come from the same direction. What we know about all these migration patterns is still largely conjectural, based on language affinities and cultural influences and archaeological finds. Hardly any Native American myths retain memories of migrations from this long ago. Most of them assume that humans were created where the people telling the story lived at the time they were telling it.
Whatever the details of these vast migrations, Native Americans wound up in environmentally very different places, and their cultures developed as they adapted to where they lived. The Eskimos or Inuits stayed in the Arctic regions. North of the Great Lakes, forest tribes lived as hunters, tracking caribou and deer and beaver and other small animals. In the northeast part of what is now the United States and the southeast of what is Canada, people settled in semi-permanent villages whose culture was based on agriculture, which they may have learned from peoples from the south of them. When the Europeans arrived, these peoples had apple orchards and cultivated pumpkins and beans and squash in addition to maize. To the south of them, people like the Cherokee and Natchez and Creek had advanced agriculture, which they seemed to have learned from people south of them. In the central plains, people had mixed economies, living in river valleys and building earth houses to live in through the harsh winters. In summer, they lived in teepees, which they could move while following the buffalo herds. Before the coming of the horse, they hunted bison by driving herds over cliffs or herding them into corrals. After the introduction of the horse by the Europeans, many of these peoples abandoned agriculture to live exclusively on the buffalo, although in the eastern plains gardens were still important, managed and cared for by women. In the Pacific Northwest, there were fishermen who lived on fish, seal, and sea lion. They still collected berries and nuts and small plants, but they never developed agriculture since there was no need for it. They were still pre-agricultural people when the Europeans found them, but they lived as well or better than most other peoples in other places thanks to the abundance of their resources. In what is now Utah and Colorado, there was a highly developed agricultural economy which was devastated in the 12th and 13th centuries by drought. The same drought hit the Plains peoples who started raiding the settled villages and drove their inhabitants first into caves and then into fortified pueblos on top of defensible mesas. These mesa dwellers were from various places, some of them maybe even from Mesoamerica, and they spoke a variety of languages, but they created a common culture and a very developed body of myth. The Navajo were latecomers to this culture and partly adapted it and partly stayed apart from it, allowing for a variety of cultures and myths within a single region. So, when the Europeans arrived, there was a wide range of cultures among Native Americans and a corresponding diversity of myth. Explaining how the world came to be as it is was only one function of Native American myths. Their stories also preserved for peoples who didn't have writing, how their own customs and traditions came into being, why their rituals had to be performed in a certain way, how the songs went to charm the deer and the bear, and how to treat a defeated enemy. The stories were told over and over across the centuries, passing down traditional ideas and values, teaching children, and reminding each other of things that needed to be remembered. The stories told the people who they were, how they came to be as they were, and how they should live in the world and with one another. And because they survived so long in the oral tradition, there are many versions of each story. There are no definitive text versions, as there are for Homer's Iliad or the Babylonian Enuma Elish. The versions we have are merely those that happen to have been collected and recorded by anthropologists who listened to them, wrote them down, or tape-recorded them, and then translated them. 
We know that if five ethnographers hear and record the same story from five different tellers in five different situations, we will have five different versions of the story. When Paul G. Zolbrod published his version of Dine Bahane, the Navajo creation story, he reminded his readers that what he was giving them was one version, one telling of a great story, and a version, too, that's printed, not told. He says it's like a fossilized paw print of some prehistoric creature, giving us an idea of the nature of the animal, but nothing of the animal itself. So we need to remember that everything we do with Native American myths is at two removes. It's a translation, and it's a written text. It's a paw print, not the animal itself. Still, despite such difficulties, the study of other people's myths is a decidedly worthwhile project. The stories, by their very nature, are memorable and interesting. They have to be concrete, not abstract, because they're stories. And that means that the details of a story matter, because every detail contains a useful piece of information. The fact that it's a meadowlark in this story and an owl in that one, that in this story, unmarried girls daren't raise their eyes to meet those of a man, while in that story there's no particular problem with an unmarried woman having a child, since that story's culture is matrilineal, so a child has a family whether the woman is married or not, or that in this story the sun is female and the moon is male, while in that story it's the other way around. All of this matters because the details are the clothing the story wears for this culture. Another culture wears different clothes. Each detail tells us something about this culture, that people, that way of life. Each one gives us an insight into someone's beliefs and customs and assumptions and habits of thought. Each helps us to understand peoples who lived in North, Central, and South America thousands of years ago and whose relationship to the natural world around them was very different from our own, both closer and more dangerous, both allowing for a more intimate bond than we are likely ever to have and requiring them to tread carefully in the world. Each myth brings us closer to a more comprehensive and inclusive conception of what it meant and what it means to be human. This lecture is titled, Inuit and Northern Forest Mythology. In this lecture, we're going to focus on Native American peoples of the area north of the Great Lakes in North America. We'll start with the Inuit, who lived very far north. We'll also be looking at two important characters in Native American myths, the shaman and the culture hero. Inuit means the people. We might, may know them better as Eskimos, but that's actually a pejorative name given them by other tribes. It means something like those who eat their food raw. We probably have a picture in our minds about them, a picture that includes seal and walrus and caribou hunting and once in a while a bear. We see them moving from place to place with dog sleds or kayaks, living on ice in the winter and on the shore in summer, unless they were so far north that it never thawed, and, of course, igloos. Today, the Inuit live all across the Arctic, in Alaska, Greenland, northern Canada, and Siberia, where they must have come from in the first place. They can still build igloos if they need to, but most now live in heated houses with electricity. 
Theirs was the most hostile of environments. Food and simple survival were their major concerns. They had no pantheon of gods and goddesses and no formal religion. Their only religious gatherings were impromptu seances inspired by the angakok or shaman. A shaman was, and still is, someone who has demonstrated, usually around the time of puberty, a susceptibility to trances in which his spirit leaves his body and is said to make contact with spirits of nature or those of his people's ancestors. He can also visit, in spirit, the land of the dead. I keep saying he because most shamans were male, although there were and are women shamans, too. An Inuit shaman would signal with a drum when he was being contacted or taken over by spirits, and people would gather to watch him fall into a trance, listening for what he said when entirely possessed. Afterwards, when he had returned to his own body, he would chant or tell the people what he had learned. In this way, the Inuit kept in contact with the spirit world. Inuit shamans used this contact for guidance in daily domestic matters and in larger ones, like when the water would freeze over or break up, where the caribou or shoals of fish were, or how to charm polar bears into traps. One of the most powerful of the nature spirits that the Inuit shamans contacted was the old woman who lived under the sea. In some regions, she was called Sedna. It's been said that she may be the closest the Inuit had to a real deity. She's a kind of earth mother, or maybe in this case, a sea mother. She's also sometimes the queen of the dead. Sedna got into the sea long ago as a beautiful daughter who couldn't find anyone she wanted to marry, although she had many suitors. Across the sea lived a proud seabird who heard about her and decided to marry her. He discarded his bird body and feathers and came to her as a beautiful young man. He made himself even more desirable by promising her a luxurious life of ease and pleasure if she would marry him and come to live with his people. Over her father's stout objection, she paddled away with the stranger in his kayak. After a long and difficult journey, they arrived at his village, which turned out to be poor and miserable, and where things turned out not at all as he had promised. She became desperately unhappy and wished with all her heart to return to her home and her own people. In the spring, her father came to visit her, and when he found out how unhappy she was and how she had been betrayed by the seabird, he killed her husband and took her into his kayak back out to sea. When the other seabirds discovered that her husband had been killed, they flew after the father and daughter, and their great wings whipped the waves into a huge storm. The father was terrified, but he thought that if he sacrificed his daughter to them, they would let him escape. So he threw her overboard. But Sedna swam back to the kayak and grabbed the edge of it with her fingers. Her father by now was crazed with fear, and as the seabirds came closer, he cut off her fingers to make her let go of the kayak. As the fingers fell into the water, they became whales and seals and walruses. This happened several times, each time the father cutting off more of her fingers, and each time the fingers becoming more sea creatures. The seabirds were satisfied that without fingers, Sedna would drown, so they flew back home. Sedna's father then helped her back into the kayak, but, as we can well imagine, all the way home, Sedna thought about getting even with her father. She managed it by getting her dogs to eat his hands and feet while he was asleep in his tent, 
and in the chaos and scrambling and cursing and screaming that ensued, a massive earthquake opened the ground beneath them, and both of them and their dogs and the tent and everything else tumbled down into the underworld. There, Sedna became its ruler and the supreme power. Sedna ruled the living and the dead from the bottom of the sea from that time on. She still wore her hair in braids, but without fingers, she couldn't comb it. When her hair got tangled, she grew angry and held her sea creatures back from humans. To placate her, the shaman had to go into a trance to visit her. In spirit, he went over the waters to a great whirlpool that pulled him down to a beautiful tent beneath the sea, decorated with the skins of all sea creatures. There he combed the tangles from her hair, danced and sang to amuse her, and begged her to release her sea creatures to his people. If it all worked, he could take back a message from her, and the people would find sea creatures again that they could hunt and kill and eat. The shaman was thus the most important spiritual guide for his people. But individuals could also be their own shamans when their ancestors set them dreams. They took the dreams very seriously and acted in accordance with them. The Sedna story probably also reflects something of the dangerous environment in which the Inuit lived. Their chief deity had been savagely mistreated, and she could be hostile and touchy, and she needed frequent appeasement. Another important character in many Native American myths is the culture hero. Most Amerindian creation stories aren't about the very beginning of things, but about what happens next, once there already is an earth and sky. At that point, someone has to finish shaping and completing the earth to make it ready for human life. And that someone also has to teach the first inhabitants, whether they're human at that point or some pre-human creatures, the skills and knowledge and tools necessary to live there. We need to know about plants and how to acquire hunting power and what medicines to use for various illnesses and how to make pottery and how to grow maize and the rites and ceremonies that will get the gods to help us. Sometimes these culture heroes are deities themselves or semi-divine deputies of the gods sent down to give us help. Sometimes they're humans, but humans who've acquired special powers from the gods and from nature. Sometimes they make trips to the sky or to the underworld to learn things that they can bring back. These characters and the gifts they bring us are the subjects of a lot of Native American myths. The Inuit have one that features Raven. Raven is a character who shows up as a trickster in many stories of the peoples of the American Northwest. Here in this story, he's not a trickster, but a culture hero. The story starts with a man who emerges from a beach pea pod, which is like our familiar legume, but grows on sandy beaches, and this one is obviously of enormous size. He wanders about for a while trying to decide who he is and what he's doing here and what to do next. Eventually, he runs into Raven, who is as surprised to see the man as the man is to encounter Raven. Raven has the curious ability to be able to push his beak up to the back of his head, the way Daffy Duck can do in cartoons, and when he does, he becomes a man. When he pulls the beak back down, like a mask, he's a bird again. He becomes a bird to fetch the man some berries to eat, and then he makes some animals out of clay, beginning with mountain sheep and then moving on to reindeer. Each time he works with his hands as a man to make the figures and then changes back to a bird to wave his wings over them until they come to life. 
He makes a woman for the man and then returns to making birds and fish and bugs and beavers and muskrats simply to fill up the place and make it less lonely. With each new creation, he teaches the man the nature and uses of each new animal or bird or insect. He makes bears and teaches the man to be careful around them. He creates bows and arrows and teaches the man how to hunt and how to make snares to catch reindeer. By now, three more men have emerged from that same pea pod, and Raven takes them off in different directions, teaching all of them and making wives for them, too. He makes a land in the sky, the upper world, and then he takes the first man to visit it. Then Raven takes the man to the bottom of the sea, where he creates a host of new sea creatures. When they finally wind up back on Earth some years later, the other people have multiplied so fast that Raven is afraid they will kill all the animals. So he makes some giant reindeer with pointed teeth to kill and eat some of the humans. As a further ecological protection, Raven takes the sun out of the sky so people have to live in complete darkness. He assumes that without light, they will eventually die or at least stop multiplying so fast. But Raven has a brother who turns himself into a small leaf, which Raven's wife drinks with a cup of water and thereby Raven's brother impregnates her with himself. He's reborn as Raven Boy, and as a small child, he keeps begging to be allowed to play with the son, which Raven keeps in his house. To get the child to stop whining, Raven eventually allows Raven Boy to play with it, and of course he steals it and returns it to the sky, so people will survive. So this story actually has two culture heroes, Raven is the primary one until he begins to worry about humans overrunning the earth, and then Raven Boy takes over, using some of the techniques of the trickster to get the sun back in its place. Between them, they show what culture heroes do. I mentioned that Raven can move back and forth between being human and being a bird just by flipping his beak up or down. In many Native American stories, a character can move back and forth in this way. Sometimes he's a coyote, sometimes a man. Sometimes she's an otter, sometimes a woman. And when we're reading or hearing the story, we can imagine the character in whichever way we want or need to, to see him or her in order to make the story work. In each state, the character can do things that are appropriate for that state. There are many stories in which a bear, say, enters his house, takes off his bearskin, and hangs it up on a wall peg, revealing a fully human person underneath, at which point he starts acting more like a man and less like a bear. We saw in the Sedna story that the seabirds in it can appear either as birds or as humans. It's how in so many stories a human woman can marry a male bear, or a human male can marry a female deer, or, as in Sedna's case, a bird can marry a woman. What lies behind all of these transformations is the assumption that animals are pretty much like people with minds and wills of their own and their own political and social organization. And Native Americans mostly believe that they have to be dealt with more or less the same way they dealt with people. It was believed that, especially at the beginning, in the mythical age, humans and animals could change back and forth at will, again suggesting how tenuous the border is that divides humans and animals. At the time of puberty, young men and women would embark on a vision quest 
a ritualistic effort to establish special relations with one or more animals and thereby acquire powers from those animals for life. Part of the vision quest, which marked the passage from childhood to adulthood, involved fasting alone until the young person was granted a helpful vision that confirmed the new relationship with an animal or bird. A Choctaw story from what is now Alabama and Mississippi in North America puts that kind of vision and special relationship into a story about a hunter who was amazingly unlucky. He was able to find deer, but he never quite managed to kill one. One day, he rescues an alligator who's dying from heat and from being away from the water for way too long. He carries the alligator to the water, and the alligator gives him a special gift and power. From that day on, he's a brilliantly successful hunter. Sometimes the prey animal itself was the one that granted the special power. In a Wasco story from what is now Oregon, a boy receives an elk as his guardian spirit and the elk helps him become a great hunter of all game, elk included. He also teaches the boy never to be arrogant or to kill more animals than he has to. But one day the boy's father, who's something of a blowhard and a braggart, taunts his son into killing more than he needs to as a kind of demonstration of personal skill. The elk spirit immediately deserts him, and the boy dies a few days later. Native Americans felt mostly that they killed animals not only because of their own talents or weapons, but because the animals offered themselves or gave hunters the power to do so. But in order to keep that relationship, hunts had to be conducted in certain ways, preceded by fasts and other preparation, managed under certain conditions and rules, and gratitude had to be expressed in the way one treated a slain animal. The relationship between animals and Native Americans was a very close one and very different from our own. The Ojibwa were hunters of the northern forests. They lived south of the Inuit, and they told another culture hero story that offers some valuable insights into the complex relationship between humans and animals in Native American thought. Like other peoples of the northern forests, they hunted deer and beaver and other small forest animals. It was too cold to support maize, so agriculture came to them late and in mostly minor ways. Their principal plant food was wild rice, and their myths reflected their hunting culture. The Ojibwa occupied what's now the United States from Michigan to Montana and central Canada from Quebec to Saskatchewan. The story concerns their culture hero, Nanbozo, or Nanabush, or Nanabushu, who appears at different times in this cycle of stories as a rabbit, a wolf, a toad, and even once as a tree stump. He's also a trickster, and there are as many stories about him in that role as there are about him as a culture hero. The two roles, trickster and culture hero, often coincide in Native American myths. We noticed a few moments ago that Raven the culture hero of the Inuit story, is in many other places a trickster, even though in the one we looked at, he's a pretty straightforward culture hero. The part of trickster in that story is taken by his brother, who turns himself into a leaf that gets swallowed in a cup of water by Raven's wife, who then gives birth to Raven Boy, who then steals the sun from Raven and restores it to the sky. Nanabushu was also a trickster, but in these stories he too is mostly a culture hero. 
the story we'll be following is a composite one, pieced together from many myths told by people, complete with a bewildering number of variations. We need also to remember that Native Americans' myths were told, not written down to be read. And the versions we have are simply those that got recorded by an anthropologist. The Nanabushu stories were told widely enough that we have a lot of variations. If you hunt down some of them, you'll probably notice some significant differences from the story we'll consider here. Most of the stories I'll draw on were collected by the ethnographer William Jones from 1903 to 1905 in various places north of Lake Superior. Nanabushu is born either as part of a set of twins or triplets or from a clot of blood from the birthing process. His mother had been impregnated by the wind. She dies in childbirth when Nanabushu's brothers argue over who gets to be born first, and they end up tearing their mother apart. Nanabushu, in any case, has a hero's requisite miraculous conception and birth. Early on, he turns himself into a rabbit and steals fire for his grandmother, either from the sky or from some divine fire guardians. He does it by dancing so close to the fire that he lights his own fur and then runs blazing home like a comet, showing some of his trickster skills. The culture hero in this way gives fire to his people. When he discovers that it was his brothers who killed his mother, he sets out to avenge her. He kills his younger brother with the help from a weasel, who tells him that his brother's only vulnerable spot is the top knot in his hair. As the brother is dying, he tells Nanabushu that by killing him, Nanabushu has brought death into the world. All the people who come later will have to die. Nanabushu says that without death, the world would get too crowded and food would become scarce, so death maybe isn't all that bad. He also makes his brother ruler of the land of the dead, so that, as he says, when people die, they simply move from one land to another. He kills a second brother with help from a swan and a blue jay. He scalps that brother, the first scalping in history, and thereby introduces the rituals that people will use from then on after killing an enemy. Again, these are the kind of things a culture hero does. He spends one winter traveling with a wolf pack, becoming a wolf himself for the time being, partly because wolves are excellent hunters and Nanabushu is always hungry. But he and the animals are different enough that there are problems. Once he actually manages inadvertently to kill one of the wolves, he brings him back to life, but the wolves force Nanabushu to leave, allowing one wolf to go with him to do his hunting so that he won't starve to death. He and the wolf become good friends, and Wolf is a magnificent hunter. But Nanabushu starts having nightmares about something bad about to happen to his wolf companion. He cautions the wolf to be very careful, but along the way the wolf manages to violate some taboo and is killed for it by the leader of the water Manitos, a powerful semi-divine creature of the underworld. The footnote provided by the translator of the version I'm using says that the Manito is a water monster of the sea, lakes, and rivers. So again, Nanabushu sets out to avenge a death. This time he disguises himself as a tree stump on the shore of a place where the Manitos, there are a lot of them, come to the surface of the water to sleep in the afternoon sun. He's helped by a kingfisher who tells Nanabushu not to shoot directly at the Manito leader, but at his shadow. 
Nanabushu, though, remember, is always also a trickster, and in typical trickster fashion, he forgets the instruction and shoots the first arrow directly at the side of the creature. He only manages to wound it, not to kill it. But Nanabushu later meets Toad Woman, who turns out to be the mother of the wounded Manitou, and who's on her way to cure him. Nanabushu stays with the Toad Woman long enough to learn a lot of her lore before he kills her, skins her, and then puts on her skin. So, disguised as Toad Woman herself, he manages to get into the Manitou underwater camp. And there, pretending to cure the offending creature, he actually twists and digs the arrow in its side until he kills it. The Manitos respond to the death of their leader by flooding the entire earth. Nanabushu survives in different ways in different versions of the story. In the version we're following, a kingfisher advises him to build a raft, and he stays afloat. When the water finally stops rising, he rescues a few animals who have survived, pulls them onto his raft, and gets them to dive for pieces of the old earth down under all that water. All die in the attempt, but a muskrat makes it back up with a bit of earth before he dies. Nanabushu brings them all back to life and then uses that bit of the muskrat's mud to make a new earth, letting it dry out and then expanding it. It's interesting that here we have a pretty standard earth diver creation myth. Variations of this one are found all over North America, except for Arizona and New Mexico. Here, it's not the very first creation account, but a reboot after a universal flood. Interestingly, that earth diver's story is also a common one in Siberia and Magyar Hungary and the eastern Baltic states and in northern Asia. The unlikelihood of even imagining such a universal flood, let alone actually experiencing it, in the middle of a large continent like North America, suggests that this story came originally from an Asian coastal area. It must have spread westward from there to Siberia and come across the Bering Strait with the first continental immigrants. Anyway, having created a new Earth, Nanabushu then does more culture hero work. He names all the animals and birds and fish. He decides the length of time for the moon cycle, and he tames the winds to make them serviceable to human hunters. When he's finished, he says that he's now completed the creation of everything from which people will derive life. And then he goes hunting. Christopher Vesey, in his book Imagine Ourselves Richly, says that the most noticeable thing about the Nanabushu cycle is how pervasive death is in it. It occurs in virtually every episode. But we also notice that every death brings a benefit to the people who will inherit the planet. The death of Nanabushu's mother, for example, leads to the birth of a culture hero. The death of Nanabushu's wolf companion leads to the death of the water monster, which leads to the flood and the creation of a new earth. All the creatures who dive for pieces of earth die in their efforts. Even if Nanabushu revives them, death seems in some way a prerequisite to progress, to growth, to making things better. Nanabushu himself is responsible for bringing death into the world. When his brother he's just killed is dying, he tells Nanabushu that he has just done a terrible thing. But Nanabushu says that death is necessary for life to go on, since there wouldn't be room for new people if old ones didn't die, and there wouldn't be enough food to go around either. What the myth tells us, says Vesey, is that the Ojibwa thought of death not simply as terrible, 
but as necessary for the continuation of life. The Ojibwa, after all, were a people who lived by hunting, and a hunting culture has to believe that the death of animals is necessary for the continued life of people. And that, Vesey says, is the point of this myth. As we saw earlier, Native Americans saw humans and animals as part of the same order of creation, but there are important differences. A series of animals gives Nanabushu help along the way, telling him how to kill his brothers and how to kill the water manitou and bringing up a piece of mud from which a new earth can be made. But people and animals, as connected as they are, don't see the world in exactly the same way. The wolves are reluctant to take Nanabushu into their pack, and when he's with them, he makes a lot of mistakes from their point of view, and they do a lot of odd things from his. He eventually gets expelled from the pack. He gets to take one wolf with him, and that wolf's killing by the Manitou is what triggers Nanabushu's revenge, which triggers the flood, which triggers the creation of a new world. But the expulsion itself is important, since it suggests that in some fundamental ways, animals and humans see the world differently enough that they cannot live too closely together. Part of the Ojibwa point is that they had to kill animals to survive. They had too short a growing season for maize, and they couldn't live on rice, berries, and fish, the last especially true for those far from important rivers or lakes. Hunting is what kept them alive, and sometimes, as their stories make clear, it just barely kept them alive. So many of the stories we haven't talked about in the Nanabushu cycle are about being hungry, about running out of food, about not, not knowing how one can feed one's children. There are many stories about trickster Nanabushu running out of food and going to someone's lodge, hanging around until someone offers him a meal. Typically the host, an eagle or woodpecker or a skunk, has a special way of getting food, which Nanabushu tries to emulate when he gets back home with invariably disastrous and often comic results. Vesey points out that in some versions of the myth cycle, the water Manitou kills Nanabushu's wolf companion because the wolf is too good a hunter. So the Manitou is protecting game by killing an overly successful hunter. That's really not explicit in the version we just summarized, but it may very well be in the margins or between the lines. That would mean that when Nanabushu kills the Manitou, he's not only avenging the death of his friend, but he's also asserting the right of hunters to kill what they need, to take from the animal kingdom enough to guarantee the continuation of life. The second creation story might say the same thing. After creating the new world and then stocking it, Nanabushu goes off to hunt. He gets in this story some very dim-witted geese to dance with their eyes closed while he wrings their necks. That's a trickster story. Some people think that they detect a parallel here with the story of Noah in the Old Testament. After the flood, Yahweh gives Noah and his family the right to kill animals for food. Prior to that time, people were presumably vegetarians. So the new covenant that humans make with God in that story breaks an older covenant with animals who will now be hunted and killed for food. This story isn't precisely parallel to that one. In the Ojibwa story, there was hunting and killing and eating animals before the flood. It's perhaps the overly successful hunting of the wolf companion that angered the Manitou in the first place. 
and it's his death that causes the flood. After the new earth is big enough to support animals, the first thing Nanabushu does is to fill it with game, and the second is that he goes hunting. Nanabushu's greatest gift as a culture hero for the Ojibwa may have been to liberate them to hunt freely so that the people can survive. Strong objections from powerful forces like the Manitou have been dealt with, set aside, eliminated. A new earth has been replenished with game, and for the Ojibwa, Nanabushu was also the patron of the hunt. The old bond with animals has been changed. It will never be as close as it once was, before Nanabushu. Animals and humans still have a covenant. Remember how often in the story Nanabushu was helped or even saved by weasels and kingfishers and wolves. But in the second creation, humans have the upper hand, which they absolutely had to have to survive those long, cold winters in the subarctic. And death, here specifically the death of animals, is acknowledged as a prerequisite of life, specifically of human life. That's the kind of gift a culture hero brings. No wonder such a gift is considered sacred and that stories about culture heroes loom so large in Native American mythology. This lecture is titled Tales and Rituals of the Iroquois League. A long time ago in the mythic age, before there were people or even an earth, there was trouble in the sky. A chief's daughter there fell ill, and a wise old man in a dream was told to dig up a tree growing in the sky and to lay her beside the hole. But when the sky people started digging, the tree fell through the hole and the girl slid down through the same hole. Both tree and girl then fell out of the sky since the ceiling of our world is the floor of the one above us. Far below the sky was a vast expanse of water containing only creatures who live on or in the water. Two loons swimming on its surface heard a clap like thunder and saw the sky break open and a tree and a beautiful woman fall out of it. So they linked their wings together to cushion her fall. This is an earth diver creation myth from the Huron, who lived in what is now the northeast United States and southeast Canada. But many other peoples both in this region and in other places told the same kind of story. The story affirms not human dominance over the animal world as does, for example, our familiar Genesis story in the Old Testament. Rather, it puts animals into nurturing and creative roles. It suggests how very different Native Americans' idea of their relationship with animals and the entire natural world was from the one that we inherit from the Judeo-Christian tradition. The story also, as we'll see, suggests the sensitivities these people developed about the relationship between individuals and tribes. But back to our story. The loons managed to catch the woman, but they knew that supporting her on their wings was only a temporary solution. Meanwhile, the tree had tumbled into the water, so they summoned Great Turtle, the master of all animals, and he called a general council. Turtle said that a falling woman was a good omen, but she needed a place to live. The tree that had fallen with her had dirt on its roots, so he asked for someone to dive into the water to bring up a bit of it. 
His plan was to use it to make an island on which the woman could live. Otter dived first, and then muskrat, and then beaver. All three stayed down too long, and when they finally emerged without any dirt, each rolled over and died. Other animals tried, and all of them failed too. Finally, Toad Woman volunteered. She was gone so long that everyone thought she had died down there, but she finally emerged, spit out a mouthful of dirt on the turtle's back, and then she died. This was sky dirt, so it had special powers, and so did the woman who had fallen with it. She caused the tiny bit of dirt to expand, and when it got to the size of an island, the woman was placed on it, and then she caused it to expand more. It grew until it reached the size of the earth we live on today, and it's still supported on that turtle's back. But the earth was still dark, so the creatures had to contrive a sun and moon, which they made out of lightning, using whatever powers they had, and then they flung them up into the sky. Then they made holes in the corners of the sky so the sun and moon could go down through one and come up through the other, and so our earth was made. The woman who fell from the sky found that she was pregnant, with twins. They weren't, of course, normal humans since they had been conceived in the sky, or, in some versions, conceived on earth by the west wind, who was also a divine power, the same one that conceived the trickster and culture hero Nanabushu in an Ojibwe creation story. The twins, while still in the womb, already struggled against each other. The evil one of the two refused to be born in the normal way and killed his mother by emerging from her side. When she was buried, pumpkin vines grew from her head, maize from her breasts, and beans from her arms and legs. Like the corn mother in many Native American stories, this woman gave her body to be foods humans need to survive on Earth. The boys, meanwhile, grew up and they continued in life the contest that they had begun in the womb. They were in constant conflict, but still, between them, they prepared the earth for the coming of humans. Since they couldn't get along with each other, they split up, each one creating according to his disposition. The evil one made monstrous animals, serpents and panthers and wolves and bears, all of enormous size and power. He also made a giant toad that drank up all the water on the surface of the earth. The good brother, meanwhile, made animals serviceable to humans. But when a partridge he had just made flew off in the direction of his brother's territory, looking for water, the good brother followed it. He ran into all manner of snakes and ferocious beasts and insects as large as turkeys, all the work of his brother. He couldn't destroy them, or at least he didn't, but he did rub them down to size so that humans could deal with them. He also cut open the great toad that had swallowed all the water and released it back to where it belonged. There are a lot of details in this part of the myth, some of them quite imaginative. The good brother, for example, made two currents for each stream and river, one running one way and one the other, so that people could float downstream in both directions. The evil brother, however, redid that arrangement. Currents in our world flow only one way, so people have to work going in one direction or the other. He also put in rapids and cataracts and dangerous rocks to make travel harder and riskier. Each brother in the process modified the work of the other. This is a common motif in Native American creation stories. Twin brothers, one of whom helps prepare the world for human use, and the other who tries to make it difficult or impossible. Over time, the conflict intensified. 
The good twin was warned by the spirit of his mother that his brother wanted to kill him. After a while, they met in an ultimate showdown, a fight to the death to see who got to take over the world. Each told the other how he could be killed so that the fight wouldn't go on forever. The bad twin could be killed, as it turned out, only by the horn of a deer or some other wild animal. The good twin by a bag full of beans or corn. This sounds like a contest between hunting and agriculture. Maybe a little like the story of Cain and Abel in the Old Testament, where Abel was a shepherd, Cain a farmer. In that one, the farmer kills the shepherd. In the Huron story, the good brother kills the evil one with a deer antler. Since that's what it takes to kill him, it's not entirely clear, to me anyway, which brother represents agriculture and which one hunting. But in any case, all such Native American stories have the point is that the good twin kills the evil one, suggesting perhaps that in the long run, good can triumph over evil or at least can survive. Another detail in this story is similar to those in many other Native American stories. The slain brother appears in a dream to the good brother to announce that he has gone west to a land of the dead, where all the future peoples of the world will follow him. The good news is that there is some kind of life after death. The bad news is that this kingdom is run by the evil twin, and whatever the nature of life there, it will never be as good, as sweet, as rich as the one here with the good twin. The Northeast forest dwellers who told this story were peoples who lived in a region from the Atlantic to the Mississippi River, from north of the Great Lakes to the northern borders of what are now Kentucky and North Carolina. These people may have been descendants of the people known as the Mound Builders who lived south of them on the Mississippi, based on the fact that the two groups share a lot of myths. Forest dwellers were the first peoples Europeans encountered on the shores of New England. When the Europeans found them, they had a mixed economy. They fished and they hunted, but they also cultivated maize, beans, and squash, the three sisters of North American agriculture. Typically, they lived in stockades set in their fields. Inside the stockades were long houses made of a row of saplings bent into arches, 15 to 20 feet wide at the base. The frame was covered by sheets of birch or elm bark, and each long house was then divided by screens into family apartments, each with its own fire and smoke hole. A typical longhouse might be 100 feet long, and a village might have three or four of them. There were 68 languages spoken in the region of the forest dwellers, but the main one was Iroquoian, and the Iroquoians are the ones featured in the rest of this lecture. They were the hunters and farmers who lived in what is now New York and Quebec, and they were the ones involved in the creation of the Iroquois League or Confederacy. The League was a union of five peoples, the Seneca, the Cayuga, the Onondaga, the Oneida, and the Mohawk. It was formed in the 16th century nominally as a protection against their neighbors, but its primary goal was to stop member peoples from fighting among themselves and to unite them by creating common ceremonies and rituals. Their splendidly ambitious but impossible dream was to bring all the nations of North America into the League. The myths we're going to consider next are the League's own stories about its founding. These are different from what we normally think of as Native American myths, since they deal not with a long-ago mythic past, but with a historical one, in which the earth has long since been created and settled peoples are living on it. Still, 
the characters in these myths are as mythical as Nanabushu and the Corn Woman, who appears in so many Native American myths. And they play the same roles that culture heroes do in the myths about long-ago times. There are, as usual, many variations in these stories, and if you read some of them, you'll discover a lot of details different than the ones we rehearse here. Sometimes the characters are even switched around so that they play different roles in different stories. What I'll attempt here is a composite outline, stringing together a number of individual pieces into a coherent narrative. Then we'll focus on one particular episode that seems to pull together so much of what the myths of the Iroquois League is all about. The composite I'm using isn't my own, by the way. It was put together by Christopher Vesey in his book, Imagine Ourselves Richly. The backstory for the Foundation myth is the Huron twin story we just looked at. The good twin's name in the Iroquois version, which is essentially the same as the Huron one, was Terraniawagan. He's the one in the story who modified his evil brother's creations, put the world in order, established principles for humans to follow, and set peoples in their allotted places. He left the world in as good an order as he could, but over time there were disagreements and the nations went their separate ways, losing track of what was good for them and what had been decreed for them. Eventually they descended into the horrors of constant warfare, infanticide, and even cannibalism. It became a Hobbesian world that pitted everyone against everyone else. Into this horrid world, a culture hero was born. His birth was miraculous, as befits a hero. His mother was a virgin living among the Huron. She became inexplicably pregnant. Her mother was appalled, but the good twin, Terrania Wagen, came to her in a dream and said that her daughter would give birth to a reincarnation of himself and that her grandson would do sacred work on earth. Still, his grandmother tried three times to drown him when he was born, thinking that he would bring calamity to his people. The boy was an orphan, or at least without a recognized father, and he was more or less ignored or even despised by his fellow villagers, even though it is said that all animals loved him. So he left home, taking a canoe across Lake Ontario. His name was Deganawida. As he traveled, Deganawida found peoples whose villages had been destroyed, and he heard stories of warfare and destruction and starvation and feuds and lawlessness and death. He came to tell the warring nations that they had forgotten the Creator's ways and that he had been sent to establish a great peace. Along the way in his wanderings, he met Hiawatha. This isn't, by the way, the Hiawatha of the poem by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, the Song of Hiawatha. Longfellow's is a culture hero, too, but he's based on a group of stories about Manabozo, or Nanabushu, the trickster and culture hero of the Ojibwa. It's a poem that can be read on its own as an American romantic portrayal of the Indian as noble savage, but its relation to Native American life and myth is at best oblique. Anyway, this is not that Hiawatha. The Hiawatha of the Iroquois League myth played several different roles depending on which version we're following. In some, he'd been so shattered that he had actually become a cannibal, who's then rescued by Deganawida. In others, his family had been killed, and he's weighed down by grief and apathy, wandering alone and along the way creating wampum. Wampum was, or were, strings of shells and beads that he made to console himself. It was to become sacred for the Iroquois and the Iroquois League. 
The beads and shells also served as memory devices for a people who didn't have writing. Somewhere along the way, Hiawatha had tried unsuccessfully to reason with Tadadahu, an Onondaga chief who was a monster and a tyrant in every sense of the word and a symbol of what was wrong with the people everywhere. The description of Tadadahu in the stories is pretty horrible, representing his twisted moral condition. But now, Hiawatha met Deganawida, who cleared Hiawatha's mind of despair, and the two joined forces. By this point, several peoples had been won over to Deganawida's vision, and all of them went together to meet with the great monster Tadadahu. They approached him singing a peace hymn. This time they won him over, and in a beautiful metaphor, we are told that they combed the snakes out of his hair, gave him new clothing, and offered him the title of the main chief of the new league with the Onondaga as the leading people. The Onondaga were the most powerful tribe in the league, so it made sense to offer them leadership once Tadadaho had been brought around to the shared vision. The Iroquois League was now ready to become a reality. The League was administered by 50 chiefs. It used a number of symbols to suggest its unity. It met in a longhouse with five fires, one for each people, but everyone met as a single family. Another of their symbols was a giant pine tree which had an eagle perched on the top to keep an eye out for enemies. The tree had roots reaching out to other nations. Another was five arrows tied together to make them unbreakably strong, and still another was five corn stalks growing from a single stem. Deganawida's great peace had arrived, at least for these five nations. Deganawida then mysteriously disappeared. Like Moses in the Old Testament, he was destined not to reach the Promised Land himself. Deganawida refused to be made one of the fifty chiefs of the New League, leaving behind him the simple but profound title of the peacemaker. One episode in this long and complex myth is a marvelous fable for the founding of the League and its meaning. In it, one day, Deganawida came to a house of a cannibal. When the cannibal went to the river for water, Deganawida climbed to the smoke hole on the roof of his house and lay down on his stomach so he could see into the house. He could see the human meat stacked up inside. The cannibal brought back the water, poured it into a pot, put some meat into it, and put it on the fire. When he thought it would be cooked, he went to get it. But when he looked in the pot, he saw in it the reflection of a face looking up at him. He sat down in surprise, but after a while he went back for another look. Thinking he was seeing a reflection of himself, he noticed that it was a very pleasant face. Again, the cannibal sat down thinking, I am an exceedingly handsome man. I have a nice face. We're not sure at this point whether the face he saw in the pot was his own or that of Deganawida, who was still lying on the roof peering down into the smoke hole. But what occurred to the cannibal at that moment was that he was betraying the goodness in that face by eating human flesh. So he picked up the pot, carried it to the river, and dumped its contents in a hole near an uprooted tree. Carl Krober reprints this story in his book Artistry in Native American Myths. He says that the detail of the vessel's contents being dumped in a hole made by an uprooted tree 
would have reminded the Iroquois of the creation myth we looked at earlier, in which a woman is pushed or falls through a hole in the sky made by an uprooted tree. She falls to earth and gives birth to twins, one good and one evil, who between them shape the world we have. The allusion to that story, Krober says, would have reminded listeners that Daganawida's fight is that of the good twin Terania Wagon, who spent his life overcoming his brother's evil with good. Krober also notes that when the cannibal sees the face in the pot, he thinks it's his own, when more likely it's Daganawida's. He's seeing the face of the peacemaker and spiritual leader, the very antithesis of a cannibal. Literally, he's probably mistaken. It's not his face. But his perception is valid insofar as it allows him to see a potential in himself that he hasn't as yet realized. His face could be that of a good man. He realizes that eating human flesh is wrong because it's a misreading of who he really is. He sees himself in a flash of insight, not as an ugly man, but as a handsome one. And that's precisely what Daganawida is doing in larger terms. He's offering the people a vision of themselves as better than they're behaving, better than they think they are, allowing them access to their better natures. The cannibal recognizes himself as a man, not a monster. And finally, when Daganawida peers down into the house, we share his perspective. We're with him on the roof looking down into the house, so we can see ourselves in the pot, both as a cannibal and as a peacemaker. It's a really great story. Christopher Vesey, whose composite summary of the League myth we've been following, sees the entire story in terms of this fable. The Iroquois, he says, believe that every human being is double-sided, capable of both good and evil. That's probably why so many creation stories feature a set of twins, one good and one evil. The best of us could be a cannibal, the worst of us could be a peacemaker. The entire Iroquois League myth says that human nature is potentially good, but the goodness has to be separated out of the evil that's part of our potential too. It's the story of the struggle between Terenia Wagen and his twin brother. Maybe that's also why the, the myth includes the dream of Daganawida's grandmother, who's told that her grandson will be a reincarnation of Tarania Wagan and will do sacred work on Earth. It's all part of the same story. That story involves incorporating one's adversary. Tarania Wagan doesn't undo or destroy what his brother has made. He merely modifies it, makes it into something better, something good. In the League myth itself, the Onondaga chief Tadadaho is literally a monster. But once his better nature has been brought out, once the snakes have been combed out of his hair, he becomes the head chief of the League and is incorporated into a new order. In other versions of the story, this point is emphasized when the cannibal in the story is Hiawatha himself, so depressed and angry and so degraded that he can actually sink to eating human flesh, clearly a metaphor for an absolute contempt for other human beings. Once he's seen his other face in the water, he can become a leader of the new movement and a spiritual leader and visionary. Part of Hiawatha's problem was that he had lost his family and no one cared. Battle and war and aggression had become so much the norm that no one bothered anymore even to think about anyone else's sorrow. So part of what the League did was to make all kinship groups larger, 
so that everyone in all five nations could see everyone else as kin, as family, as someone to care for. The five nations were divided into two moieties or groups. Women had to choose husbands across the fire, that is, from the other moiety, thereby integrating the two sides. When a chief died, the condolence ritual was performed, and it ended with a ritual in which men danced with women from the other moiety. The point is that we're all kin to each other, and each of us is touched by someone else's loss, someone else's sorrow. The idea is that in order to create a peaceful state, we have to be able to see other people as we see ourselves. The cannibal who looks into the pot sees not only the beautiful human being he might become, he also sees himself as potential victim, as someone being cooked in that pot. And we, looking down into the lodge with Deganawida, we can see both too, and ourselves in either one. That condolence ritual which was performed whenever one of the 50 high chiefs died was one of the most important ceremonies connected with the Iroquois League. Before Deganawida arrived with his message of the great peace, death had not only meant the loss of a loved one, it also threatened the entire social fabric as grieving individuals dropped out of community life or plotted revenge or considered suicide or even fell into cannibalism. The condolence ritual was designed to address all of this so that the death couldn't disrupt the bonds that held the five nations together. The moiety that had lost one of its chiefs was imaged in the ritual as a woman, as a widow whose husband has died. The other was imaged as the comforters, those whose task it was to restore the widow to full community life. The ritual began with a roll call of the founders, whose names were carried by all successive chiefs. The moieties were then seated on opposite sides of the fire. The moiety that had lost a chief welcomed the other one, and then the visiting moiety comforted the grieving one, treating it not only as a widow, but as a patient who needs to be rescued from despair and anger and then restored to the larger body. After words of comfort, the council fire was kindled, a candidate was put forward by the grieving moiety to replace the one who had died, then a condoling hymn was sung. Earlier in the ritual, it was sung by the comforters to those who were grieving. Now the mourners sang the song themselves as a sign that they were gradually being restored to life. The ritual is full of wonderful moments of psychological insight and compassion. For example, at one point in the ritual, the comforters restore the sky to the mourner. The idea is that ever since the death, the mourner has gone about with downcast eyes, seeing only the ground in front of her feet. Now she's able once again to look up and to see the sky. It's a delicate and touching moment. The whole rite looks back at the life of Hiawatha, whose wife and children were murdered and who had then gone off by himself, in some versions falling so far out of human society that he became a cannibal, an eater of human flesh. The entire ritual is designed to bring mourners back from that kind of grief into participation in life, Exactly, I think, what the reception in the church basement after burial at the cemetery does for modern Christian funerals. Death has to be driven out of the community, disarmed, so that people can go on with their lives. It also forestalls every possible fixation on death. Many Native American myths prescribe the proper length and nature of mourning for someone who has died. In some myths, 
a culture hero establishes the proper period. The idea is that private grief has to be limited, both for the good of the individual and for the community. Otherwise, there's a double indemnity. The individual is paralyzed by the grief of death, and the community has lost the one who has died, as well as his or her relatives who are lost in mourning or despair or anger or revenge. The right addresses these issues. The description of the right that we've been tracing here is from four masterworks of American Indian literature by John Beerhorst. Beerhorst calls the ritual one of the great pieces of Native American literature, and he says that its purpose is to defeat the cult of death, which can lead to so many problems for individuals and communities, as it had for the people when Deganawida came to them with his teaching. Beerhorst says that the condolence rite took about nine hours to work through. It was designed to assure for all time the brotherhood and sisterhood of everyone in the League, each of whom is personally touched by the death, but who also knows that life has to go on and is prepared to help the stricken to learn how to cope with going on. The Iroquois League was not a Native American United Nations. Its ambitions were impossibly lofty, aiming at the inclusion of all North American peoples. That would never have happened, even if the Europeans hadn't interrupted everything with their untimely arrival. And the League itself, despite its strong efforts at peace among its members, remained conventionally warlike against other people, especially those who resisted incorporation into the League. Their treatment of their neighbor Huron is a case in point. Those other peoples were still the traditional enemies of the Iroquois, and for them, the conventional rules of Native American warfare were still in force. But still, if we can think about the Iroquois League in internal terms, that is, in terms of its own relationships within the League, there are some striking things here. For one, as we've already mentioned, the League myth is entirely about this world, about a civil society based on universal principles, natural law, and divine approval designed to eliminate the waste and slaughter of member nations killing each other. In the past, any death always created a cycle of mourning or a cycle of revenge. Now, in the League, society itself becomes the the agent of comforting mourners and cleansing their minds of thoughts of despair or revenge. Finally, the myth is about Iroquois national life, about a state rather than a cosmos. It's grounded, as we've seen, in human nature and human problems, and its goal is the transformation of both individuals and communities. In some versions of the myth, Tadadahu is the one who killed Hiawatha's family, so that when Hiawatha and Deganawida and their converts walk up to Tadadahu's village, singing the hymn of peace, helping him to overcome his savage nature, combing the snakes out of his hair, and then, incredibly, offering him leadership in the new league, the myth tells the story that the condolence ritual enacted. The cannibal's face in the pot might turn out to be that of Hiawatha, or Tadadaho, or Deganawida himself, or yours, or mine. This lecture is titled... Southeast Amerindian Origin Stories. The Native Americans of the Southeast region of the United States 
were a multicultural group, almost international. Among the peoples who lived here were the Cherokee, the Chickasaw, the Choctaw, the Creek, the Natchez, and the Seminole, among others. If you've read William Faulkner, you perhaps remember that in four of his earliest short stories that he sets in his imaginary Yachtnipatawpha County in Mississippi, he features dealings with the Chickasaws. So that's the part of the world that we're in. Five major languages were spoken in the region, plus a few others that were either unusual dialects or from some other unknown language family. The peoples who lived here, in fact, developed a sign language so they could communicate with each other around all those different tongues. The region has a long history of settlement by Native Americans, a people whom archaeologists call the Mound Builders, flourished here from about 1400 BCE to about 1450 of the Common Era. They were given that name because of the huge network of mounds and earthworks they constructed, some in geometric patterns or animal shapes. Some of the peoples who lived here in historical times were likely descendants of the Mound Builders. This was especially true of the case of the Natchez, whose culture seems in many ways a continuation of what we know about the mound builders. The Natchez had two sharply differentiated classes, nobles and commons. The chief's family lived in a house on top of a pyramid in the center of town, and the chief was believed to be a descendant of the sun. He had a harem and many servants. He also seems to have had absolute power, and when he died, many of his people and retainers were buried with him, which is very odd among Native Americans. But the Natchez were pretty much wiped out by the French in the 18th century, and what survived of their people were taken in by other clans and groups where their own myths and customs were partly absorbed and partly lost. The people who were to become dominant in the region, the so-called Creek, were latecomers, arriving via migration from somewhere else. They thought and said that they had come from the far west, when they arrived, they created a confederacy of more than 300 villages. It wasn't ever a tightly organized league like that of the Iroquois, and individual towns retained a good deal of independence, but it did unite many different peoples into at least a partly shared community. The Creek, as latecomers so often do, absorbed a great deal of the culture of the peoples they defeated or co-opted, while at the same time sharing a good many of their myths with their confederates. That blending of cultures and stories made possible a kind of encompassing body of myth that tied the peoples together, despite their different languages and cultures. This was especially true of the region's ceremonies and the stories that went with them. And it's that ceremonial life, especially a ritual called the busk, that we'll be talking about in this lecture. That and the sweat lodge, which played a big part in that ceremonial life. Since, according to their own story, the creek arrived in the southeast via a long migration, that would probably be a good place for us to start. The story begins with an emergence creation somewhere out west, at a place they called the foundation of all things, or the backbone of the earth, which is usually taken to mean the Rocky Mountains. Emergence myths usually begin with creatures who are either fully human or at some pre-human stage of development, living in a cave or chamber deep within the earth. 
They are usually instructed in crafts, ceremonies, and customs by a semi-divine helper or a culture hero who leads them into the upper world, where they then begin their migration to their present home. There are, of course, many variations on this basic story, and there's some especially rich and interesting ones in the southwest part of what's now the United States. The Maya in Mesoamerica had similar stories, and they're sometimes thought to be a connection between the stories of these two adjacent regions. The emergence myth occurs most frequently among agricultural peoples since its homology is the way a seed breaks through the soil into the light. But there are also analogs with birth, which carries a cub or baby through periods of development in the dark cave of the womb and then into the outer world. That's what usually happens in an emergence creation myth. But the creek isn't developed or elaborated very much. Some versions simply say that the ground opened and people came out. Individual clans within the creek are accounted for by a fog that came down right after emergence, making it impossible for people to see each other. So they huddle together in little groups which stayed together after the fog lifted, and that's how the clans were formed, the wind clan, the bear clan, the deer clan. Sometimes the clans were formed when different groups saw different things when they emerged, and they named themselves after whatever it was they saw, an eagle, a cloud, a beaver. In some versions, there's a figure standing at the threshold of the emergence place, and he gives groups their clan names as they come out. Sometimes he even gives them some article of clothing or some token that suggests their clan. The people wanted to stay near where they had emerged, for that seemed a sacred place. But something happened to send them on their migration to a new place. In one version, we're told that the earth started to eat its children, whatever exactly that means, and that's what forced them to move away. We've already noted that the myths of this region tended to be blended, and the composite myths are full of interesting details. For example, the Alabama, who were already living in this region when the Creeks arrived, had their own emergence story. In their version, they didn't have to migrate since they were still living where they had come out of the earth. But they said that when their people had emerged, the first thing they heard was the screech of an owl, which so terrified them that half of them ran back down into the earth, and that's why they say they were so few in number. The Alabama also said that when they emerged from the earth, there was a huge tree right in the middle of the exit, forcing them to go around on one side of the tree and the Kushada people on the other. That explained why they were so like the Kushada and shared almost the same language, but were still separate peoples. The Choctaw also had their own emergent story. In it, the great spirit called all red men and women out of a great hill or mound called Naniwaya in Mississippi. So they too lived near the place from which they had emerged, and therefore there's no migration attached to their story either. The migration part of the Creek myth is far more detailed and interesting than the emergence part. One account of the migration described in detail how the people decided to head east toward the sun. On the way, they crossed, as they described it, a slimy river, a bloody river, a mountain that spewed fire. They learned many things on the way about medicines and crossing rivers and making canoes. 
They even along the way invented the ball game they would play in their new homeland. They also learned how to build mounds with chambers inside, which they could use for fasting and purification. The structures themselves were based in part on their experience with caves on their migration, but the mounds turned out to be useful in other ways as well. At one point in their travel, a people called the Kowita were traveling with the creek just a day or two behind them. The Kowita had entered such a large mound that the creek had built, and they were all inside it when the camp, which at that time consisted almost entirely of women, children, and old people, was attacked by the Cherokee. The Kowita warriors poured out of the mound and slaughtered the surprised Cherokee, another use for those mounds. Other interesting things happened to the Creeks on their long migration. Once they were visited by four divine beings, one from each of the four cardinal directions. The visitors gave them the sacred fire that the Creeks still used when the story was told, and they taught the importance of sacred fire. The visitors also taught them many useful kinds of plant medicine before they vanished as mysteriously as they had arrived. The migration ended when the people reached the ocean and could go no further. When they arrived, it was too foggy to see much, but in the morning, when the sun rose gloriously from the water, they knew that this was what they had trekked across an entire continent to see. They were home. According to their own story, then, they immediately attacked a nearby town, killed many of its people, and took the rest captive, destroyed the town, and rebuilt it as their own. Peoples who already lived in the region noted the seeming ferocity of the newcomers. The Hichiti, in one of their myths, report that they noticed right away that the Creek were very warlike, and they decided it would be better to make friends with them than to fight them. That was the beginning of what would become the Creek Confederacy. From the time the new people arrived, there was a blending of myths and stories and traditions that all eventually came to be called Creek. The reasons for this were many. When the group who came to be known as Creek arrived, there were already other cultures in place. Many of these peoples were later taken into the Confederacy. Then, when the Europeans arrived, all of the peoples in the region were ravaged by diseases to which they had no resistance, and they also lost most of their agricultural and hunting territory. Then, when the Europeans started their westward movement, they forced the remaining populations together and pushed them westward too. In these ways, groups and cultures got so mixed that it became almost impossible to sort out or distinguish the individual components. They all became just Creek. Ironically, even the name Creek was a convenience for the Europeans rather than a real designation, and it was used for everyone living in a particular region without paying any particular attention to individual cultural differences. The people who said that they had migrated from the far west called themselves Muskogee, based on their language, Muskogean. The Europeans called everyone Creek because there were a lot of small streams in the region. As a result of this blending, all the myths and stories we'll be looking at in the rest of this lecture came from various places and peoples, but were more or less homogenized into something called Creek, and everyone in the region contributed to this interesting collection. We noticed that the Choctaw had a creation myth that said that they had emerged from a mound in what's now Mississippi, a mound called Naniwaya, so they didn't have to travel anywhere after their emergence. 
but they also came up with an emergence myth like that of the Muskoki that said that they too had emerged from the earth in the far west and then had to migrate from there to the southeast. And theirs is a really interesting story. They said that the population had grown near the place of emergence until food supplies were getting scarce. A wise old man told them of a land of plenty in the east where the sun came from and the people decided to go there. They divided into two groups, each one led by one of a pair of twin brothers, Chata and Chikasa. They traveled with one group a day's march ahead of the other. The leader of the forward group each night would take a sacred pole, which they had brought with them, to which something called a medicine bundle had been attached, and place it upright in the earth. In the morning, whatever direction the pole leaned would determine the group's course for the day. When one morning the pole would stand erect, they would know that they had arrived. A medicine bundle that we just mentioned is a collection of sacred objects um, that was held by either a clan or a people or even sometimes by a family. Uh, we might think of it as the kind of bundle of relics that someone might collect in the Middle Ages. Uh, medicine is a word for power or magic, and so a medicine bundle is a bundle full of magical things which give great power, and that's what was attached to that pole. It was, the Choctaw said, a journey of many years and miles, that along the way, children were born and children died. They carried with them the bones of their dead, which accumulated and got heavier as time went by. At a great river, bigger than any that they had ever seen, they stopped for a while and made new pots in which to carry the bones. Many people wanted to stay there, but the pole kept pointing south and east, so they learned to make dugout canoes, crossed the big river, and kept going. At last, one morning, the pole stood upright. They had arrived. It was a good place, but not big enough for both groups, so the pole was asked to decide which brother in his group would stay and which one would move on a bit more. The decision was made, but before they divided, the group made a mound in which to bury all the bones they'd been carrying. The mound would be a symbol that they were still a united people. They said that the mound was Naniwaya, the same mound the other myth said that they had emerged from. Then the Chickasaw group moved on, and from that day forward, the Chickasaw and the Choctaw, named after the twin brothers, became separate but kindred nation. Naniwaya means leaning or stooping hill in Choctaw, and it is a very sacred place. It hasn't been excavated, so what's inside is still a mystery. What emerged from all of this blending of people's traditions and myths was a certain continuity of worldviews and rituals throughout the Southwest. And one of the great ceremonies that was observed by virtually all the peoples was an annual festival called the Busk. Its real name was Poskita, which means to fast. It was the Creek New Year's Festival and the Festival of the Green Corn. It was probably a Yuchi event to begin with, but when the Muskoki arrived, they absorbed it, and within the Creek Confederacy, it became a nearly region-wide celebration. Characteristically, each people claimed the festival as its own, and each accounted for it in terms of its own history. The Uchi themselves said that in the mythic age, a drop of blood for the, from the sun, which for them was female, fell to earth. 
it became the first baby and the ancestor of the Yuchi. This ancestor was taken to the sky world and taught ceremonies that can protect people from evil and honor the dwellers in the sky. According to their stories, he brought these ceremonies to earth, and the most important of them was the busk. The Tuskegees likewise accounted for the origin of their busk in the sky world, where they said it came directly to them from their great spirit. The Muskogee or Creek said that their busk had been the inspiration of a very wise man who had meditated a long time on the problems of human life and had eventually conceived of a festival he called the White Day, white being the Creek color for peace, as red was the color of war. The way the peoples of this region combined their stories and drew on each other's strengths can be seen in the way that two unique elements of the Yuchi festival made their way into everyone else's. Because they believed that they were descended from a drop of blood that had fallen from the sun, the Yuchi always included a ritual bloodletting. Males were scratched on their legs and chest, allowing blood to drip onto the bus ground, symbolizing the original creation. They also included in their busk a feather dance performed by the men in which they leaped over a pile of earth, symbolizing the sun's journey over the busk ground. In their story, the sun had promised to pass over the busk ground once each year to make sure that the people were still remembering what had been taught by their ancestor. The whole festival, but especially the bloodletting and the dance, were designed to show that they remembered. Eventually, these two elements became part of everyone's busk, even for people who didn't think that they had descended from a drop of blood from the sun. The busk for everyone was a cleansing ceremony, a festival of purgation, a new start of wiping the slate clean. Most Native Americans had some such annual festival, which involved a gathering of clans. The Plains people had their sun dances and the Sioux their buffalo dance, All of them lasted for some days and involved fasting, dancing, flesh-piercing, prayer, and feasting as a way of giving thanks for the sun, the earth, and the survival of the people. The Creek Busk was also a green corn ceremony because it was held when the new crop was ready. Ideally, it would also coincide with a full moon. In the days before the festival actually started, old clothes, old pots, Other used-up items from the past year were gathered up, thrown into a pile, and burnt. The people fasted and used medicines that induced vomiting to cleanse themselves, getting rid of all of the past year's food. They took sweat baths, washed themselves in running water, and refrained from all sexual contact. An amnesty was declared, and all people who had been banished the past year were invited home. All crimes were absolved except for certain kinds of murder. On the fourth day of the festival, all old fires were put out, and in the place where the village fire burned, logs were placed in the shape of a Greek cross with the four logs pointing at the four cardinal directions. In the center, the new fire was lit, and then priests carried it to rekindle house fires. The new corn was brought in and offered to the new fire, The last days were spent eating and drinking and dancing. The festival was really a purification, getting rid of all the accumulated problems and evils of the past year and a fresh start. A central moment was when the new corn was brought in from the fields and given to the fire. 
In some busks, other kinds of plants were offered to the fire as well, so that it constituted a first fruits offering, a sort of tithe giving back to the cosmos. Even more central was the kindling of the new fire. For virtually all of the southeastern peoples, fire was the sun, or at least the most potent symbol of it, so that offering the new corn to the fire made a direct link back to the powers that held everything together. And of course, the corn itself was sacred too. The southeast is particularly rich in myths about the corn mother, whose body becomes the most important crop in Native American life. In a typical version, as we've seen, corn mother begins by feeding people from her own body. They spy on her and see her rubbing her thighs and armpits to produce the corn. They're revolted, and when she knows that they've learned her secret, she tells them to kill her and bury her in a field or lock her up in a corn crib. The corn grows from her corpse. She comes, as we've noted, very close in these stories to being a goddess in her own right, a kind of earth or nature goddess. At any rate, she produces the corn without help of a male consort. So the gift of corn to the fire is doubly sacred. Corn itself is sacred, and a newly made fire communicated directly with the greatest powers in the world and hence rebalanced the entire cosmos. Bill Grantham, in his book Creation Myths and Legends of the Creek Indians, says that the days before the busk were a deliberate unraveling of creation, a return to the primal stasis and disorder of things. The universe is set back to the state of nothingness before creation, and then it restarts with the lighting of the new fire. The new fire, Grantham says, is a theophany, an eruption of the creative powers that made everything into ordinary life and time. The offering isn't made just to the fire, but to the power that placed this shelf of earth below the sky and above the eternal sea. In the festival, Grantham says in a nice phrase, cosmos is retrieved from chaos. How crucial that sacred fire was to the welfare of the village is made clear in a Natchez story about two men whose job it was to make sure that the fire never went out. One of them one day allowed the unallowable to happen. The fire went out. Afraid of the punishment in store for such a lapse, he sneaked in some ordinary fire and relit the sacred one. No one noticed. He seemed to have gotten by with it. But then people started to die, and the deaths went on for a long time. It wasn't until the culprit himself was on his deathbed that he confessed. Then a new sacred fire was kindled with all the appropriate rituals, and the deaths stopped. The world was back in order again. Part of the purgation for the busk came in the sweat lodge. Sweat lodges are nearly universal among Native Americans, but perhaps they're most closely associated with the Plains peoples. There are various ways of producing the heat, but the most common was to pour water on red-hot rocks in a closed space and then to endure the heat as long as possible. Almost always the heat was followed by a plunge into cold water, which closed the pores and washed away whatever toxins had been brought to the surface of the skin during the sweat itself. Christopher Vesey, in his book Imagine Ourselves Richly, describes in his last chapter a visit to a sweat lodge of Philip Deere in 1983. On a 160-acre plot in Oklahoma, Deere, who was a teacher, spiritual counselor, and Indian leader, had reconstituted a Creek village, 
the way it would have been laid out in the old days, complete with a ball field, roundhouse, and two sweat lodges near a pond. Deere was a pan-Indian counselor, incorporating many different traditions in his teaching, as well as even some elements of Christianity, since some of his clients were Christian. But he himself was Creek, and as Vesey points out in his book, the roots of everything he did went back to his Creek roots. I only have time to tell you a little bit about the description of his experience at the Sweat Lodge, but I recommend the book to anyone interested. Vesey finds that much of the meaning of the Creek experience lies in the Sweat Lodge. As he points out at the beginning of his chapter, the purpose of the Sweat Lodge was, and is, on the one hand, to cleanse and purify and heal and revitalize, but on the other hand, it also brings one into contact with the powers that maintain the world. The shape of most sweat lodges was that of a small mound, a miniature version of those made by the mound builders or the ones the Creeks say they built on their migration. Philip Deers was in fact a cave set in a hillside so that the hill itself provided the mound shape. And the purpose of the sweat lodge, apart from its health benefits, was, according to Vesey, to set right one's relationship to the Creator and Mother Earth. In the past, for the Creek, it served other functions, too. It was a cure for many everyday ailments, as well as a preventative of many of them. Warriors took sweat baths before going into battle, hunters before the hunt, and Creek healers prepared their apprentices for instruction with fasts and sweat baths. Creeks who had been on journeys or returning from battle took sweat baths before re-entering their homes. All of this occurred on the individual level. But the annual busk was designed to do all of this for the whole community. The new fire invited in, in the presence of the whole community, the powers that upheld the universe, since those powers live in the fire. But all the other activities of the busk were designed to empty out the dregs of the old year and to start a new one with a clean slate, with a moral purity like that of an infant. Every wrong except some kinds of murder was forgiven. A new year could start like a new life. What's really compelling about all this is the way that all the elements of the creek or even all of the southeastern world fit together. In their emergence myth, all the peoples of the world crawled out of the earth like ants coming out of a hill. Sometimes they called the place of emergence the navel of the world. They emerged from their mother's womb. On their migration east, they found caves and built mounds so that they could over and over again return to that womb and then be reborn, as pure as an infant. In the sweat lodge, that happens again and again. Vesey describes how in order to enter Philip Deere's sweat lodge, one had to undress and crawl on hands and knees into what was a mound in the shape of a pregnant woman's belly. Inside the lodge, ten men sat with knees drawn up, backs against the mud wall, and then Philip Deere began to tell them that when the people first came out of the earth, they had no language, no way of talking to each other. All they could do was to make cries of need. Babies are born that way, and they cry in the same way until their mothers offer them the breast, just as at our emergence, Mother Earth heard our cries and took care of us. The sweat lodge reminds us of that relationship by returning us to the womb from which we came. And after the sweat 
comes the plunge into the water, just as Creek infants were taken to the water and washed before they were suckled for the first time, since they too had just emerged from the womb. Vesey concludes his chapter on Philip Deere and Philip Deere's sweat lodge with a summary. Paraphrased, he says that the typical Creek town was laid out in such a way that Native Americans could come to it and be at home, not just in the town, but in the universe. Like the bus ground with its sacred fire, Deer's land was a sacred territory in the middle of ordinary, mundane, grasping, acquisitive life. It offered the Creek message that all can be forgiven, everything can be consolidated, and everything can be made pure. We and the cosmos can be at one, and that, as I take it, is the message that the Southeastern Native Americans can still bring to us in spite of all the things that have happened to them and to us across the years. This lecture is titled, Mythology of the Plains Peoples. In this lecture, we'll be looking at the Native Americans who lived on the Great Plains in the middle of North America. And we'll be looking at several different kinds of Plains myths, those involving their special relationship with the buffalo, their creation stories, one account of the way death came into the world, and one containing a powerful lesson about the way the survival of a community demanded the interdependence of everyone in it. The picture that most of us have in our heads about what North American Indians were like probably come from the Plains people. They're the ones who seem most often to appear in movies and Western novels and statuary and paintings. They're kind of our pop culture Native Americans. They're pictured living in teepees, at least in the summers. They were warlike, and they hunted buffalo. We probably think of them hunting on horseback, but the horse wasn't introduced into North America until the 17th century, and it didn't get to the plains until the 18th. Before then, plains peoples hunted buffalo by driving them into natural cul-de-sacs or into box canyons or corrals they had built or driving them over the edge of cliffs and then cleaning up the mess. Before the horse, many Native Americans on the plains had mixed economies depending on agriculture as much as on hunting. They grew maize and beans and squash, and some even had fruit plantations like those of the peoples in the eastern woodlands. But the horse, and later the rifle, led many of them to abandon agriculture to become almost entirely dependent on the buffalo. Some peoples of the plains, in fact, moved from the eastern woodlands under pressure from other peoples and later from the Europeans and learned to become hunters rather than farmers. The Cheyenne were one of these peoples, settling first in what's now Minnesota and then moving to Montana and Oklahoma. They had a story about how they became buffalo hunters. One time, when there was a famine, so the story says, two of their culture heroes entered a nearby spring. Behind the water was a cave in which sat an old woman cooking buffalo meat and corn in two pots. She invited them to eat, and when they had eaten their fill, the pots were still full, so they knew that this was a woman with power. Then she had them look south, 
where they saw a vision of vast herds of buffalo, and north, where they saw a vision of hills covered with fields of corn. She told them to take the cooked meat and the corn out to the people, and they did, and they too all ate without emptying the pots. She also told them that that evening the buffalo would appear. She didn't tell them how this would happen. That evening, after they had eaten, they watched as buffalo came out of the spring so fast that the people couldn't count them. By morning, the hills were covered with buffalo. From then on, for a while, the Cheyenne planted the corn that the old woman of the spring had given them. Then they'd leave to follow the buffalo, returning later in the season to harvest the corn. But one year, they returned to find that their entire corn crop had been stolen. There weren't even any kernels left for seed. The story says that it was a long time before the Cheyenne planted corn again. Richard Erdos and Alfonso Ortiz, who reprint this story in their book, American Indian Myths and Legends, suggest that the loss of the corn crop may tell us that the Cheyenne abandoned agriculture in what would have been the last half of the 18th century. Once the transition had been made to a hunting economy, the buffalo became a rich subject for myth. It was the very stuff of life. It provided food, skins for clothing and shelter, and its bones and horns were used to make tools, and even its sinews could be used for thread and string. Plains peoples told stories about how, in the mythic age, when the earth was new, culture heroes had brought them the gift of the buffalo, taught them how to hunt it, and the ceremonies and rituals that kept them on good terms, so the buffalo would give themselves to the hunters. These aren't, of course, the most ancient of myths, since they post-date the time when the buffalo became the source of a people's economy and culture, but the stories themselves put the coming of the buffalo back into the earliest days when things came to be the way they are. One such story is that of the Arikara, who once lived in what is now South Dakota. Shortly after the world was created, there was a village of buffalo who then were like very large and strong human beings with horns on their heads. They hunted and ate humans. The buffalo people had a sacred bundle of relics called Knot in the Tree, which they used in hunting. After ritual preparation and ceremonies, the buffalo shamans would go to an ancient cottonwood tree and strike a knot in its trunk four times. Humans would then pour out of the tree. The buffalo people would club them to death, cut them up, and later have a great feast. They danced in celebration while the meat dried. But once, a very young man and a very fast runner managed to escape the slaughter. He stayed alive by eating berries and small animals until one day he was approached by a beautiful horned buffalo woman dressed in white leather. She told him that she could help him become the hero who would change the buffalo people into real animals. She helped him sneak into the chief's teepee that night where he carefully listened to and watched the ceremonies involved with the knot in the tree bundle. The next morning, the buffalo woman showed him how to make bows and arrows, a lot of them. Then they took them to the cottonwood tree and hid them. They called out of the tree a man who had survived an earlier hunt and showed him how to use a bow and arrow. They told him, and he was to tell all the others in the tree, that when the knot in the tree was struck, they should all rush out, grab the bows and arrows, and start shooting. 
Well, it worked. The Buffalo people who weren't used to being pursued made a run for it under a rain of arrows. And each time one of the Buffalo people was struck, he or she became a real buffalo and began grazing. Afterward, the Buffalo woman married the young man and they became ancestors of the Arikari people. The Arikara have remained on good terms with the Buffalo ever since. They're, after all, related to each other. As a kind of footnote, we're told that the Arikara never eat the lump of flesh under a buffalo's foreleg. When the buffalo people were making their mad rush to get away from the arrows, they all grabbed pieces of dried human meat from the rack and tucked them under their armpits. That lump is still considered human flesh and hence taboo. The uh, not-in-the-tree bundle mentioned in the story was a sacred bundle or medicine bundle. It was a collection of sacred relics handed down from first ancestors or brought by culture heroes. Maybe it's useful for us to think of a medicine bundle as something like the sacred relics of the Middle Ages. It protected and brought good fortune. It usually belonged to a family who would pass it on from generation to generation. The word medicine for Native Americans meant anything mysterious, spiritual, or holy. The shaman was a medicine man because he dealt with these things on a daily basis. According to Arikara myth, the Arikara have used the bundle when they're hunting buffalo ever since the day the buffalo people became purely animals, just as the buffalo people used it to, when they were hunting humans. Another story connected with a medicine bundle is that of the white buffalo woman of the Lakota, part of the Sioux Nation, in what is now South Dakota, Wyoming, Montana, and Nebraska. In a time when the Lakota were starving because the buffalo seemed to have disappeared, two young hunters were sent out to look for them. They saw coming toward them a beautiful young woman with long black hair, wearing white buckskin, and carrying a bundle. She wasn't really walking, but sort of floating just above the ground, so they knew that she was Laka, holy. Still, one of the young men couldn't help reaching out to touch her, and he was instantly annihilated. She told the other one to tell his chief to build a large teepee for her to visit. When she showed up a day or two later, she taught them how to make a sacred altar, and then she opened the bundle she carried. There were several items in it, but the most important one was a pipe. She showed them how to hold it, how to fill it, and the ceremonies involved with lighting it. She explained that this was the fire without end, the flame to be passed from generation to generation. She taught them the prayers that went with its use and all its rituals. She told them that when their feet were on the ground and the pipe stem pointed upward, the body became a living bridge between the earth and the sky. She taught them much while she was with them, about domestic life and taking care of children and honoring women and about walking carefully on the earth. And then she left, turning first into a black buffalo, then a brown one, then a red one, and finally a white buffalo calf, the most sacred of all animals. That night, the earth started to rumble as the buffalo came back. The famine was over. It's said, by the way, that the pipe given by the holy woman is still part of one of the most sacred bundles of the Lakota, having been passed down from generation to generation ever since, and it is still powerful medicine. Apart from stories about how they came to hunt buffalo, Plains Native Americans, like those in other regions, 
have thought about how they came to be living in this world. Their creation stories are mostly of the earth diver variety. A crow version is representative. The crow moved from the Missouri River to Wyoming and Montana in the 18th century. They had been farmers, but they became great hunters and horsemen, known for their excellent horses and their riding skills. Their earth diver creation story features Coyote, one of those second-tier creators who usually function as culture heroes in Native American myths. Coyote lives alone in the world, which is really a vast sea, until he meets two ducks. They all believe that there's something down deep in the water, so the ducks dive down to find out. Eventually, one of them brings up a piece of mud, which Coyote blows on until it dries and spreads to become the ground that we all stand on. He plants grass and trees and food plants and shapes rivers and hills and springs. He makes people out of mud as companions for himself and ducks as companions for the two ducks. Then he makes other animals, buffalo and deer and antelope and bears. He makes birds so the world will be full of song and dance. The bears turn out always to want more than their share of everything, so Coyote eventually condemns them to living in dens away from everyone else and sleeping through winter just to get them out of the way for a while each year. He gives people tools and fire and teepees and bows and arrows, and he divides people into different language groups so that, as he explains, young men will have a way of distinguishing themselves through war by taking scalps. The idea is that it's easier for peoples to fight with each other and to win honor if they speak different languages. In a number of Plains Earth Diver stories, the making of our Earth happens after a flood. In a story of the Grovant people from Wyoming, a first creation doesn't turn out well, and it has to be done all over again, this time via Earth diving by a semi-divine being assisted by Crow. And there are a few emergent stories, too, of the kind that more typically occur in the Southwest. The Arikara, whose story of the Buffalo people we looked at a moment ago, have an earth diver account of a first creation which produces a race of giants. The creator is unhappy with the way things turned out, particularly with the giants, and he places seeds for a new people deep in the earth and then sends a flood to wipe out those giants. When the new people become unhappy in their dark underworld, the creator sends down Corn Mother, who gets various animals to help her dig the people out. This is an interesting example of a creation that involves both Earth Diver and Emergence in sequence. And an interesting sidebar on creation stories of the Plains comes from the Blackfoot, who lived between what is now Alberta, Canada, and Montana. Their story accounts for how death came into the world. The story involves a character called Old Man, who's one of those second-tier creators like Coyote in the Crow story. He learns by doing rather than working from a grand plan or vision, and it takes a long time of trial and error to manage finally to complete a world with people in it. When he first makes the sure-footed bighorn sheep, for example, he puts them on the prairie, and he puts the swift-footed antelope in the mountains. As he finds out, the sheep can't defend themselves in the wide open spaces, and the antelope keep falling down and killing themselves on the rocky slopes of the mountains. Eventually, he has them switch places, and that turns out much better. He has to make adjustments like this for virtually everything he makes. In the part of the story that concerns us here, 
He takes a woman from his new creation to a river, and they stand watching it flow past. Watching it, the woman asks whether people will be like this too, endlessly flowing, that is, living forever. Old man says that he hadn't thought of that. He says they should decide by throwing a buffalo chip into the water. If it floats, people will die for four days and then come back to life again. If it sinks, they will die once and for all. For some reason, the woman makes the same experiment, but with a stone instead of a buffalo chip. Of course, it sinks. But she says that maybe that's okay, since if people have to die, they'll always feel sorry for each other. Many Native Americans tell stories like this one. Usually the one who introduces death into the world is the first to lose a loved one in this, to this new death, and that's what happens here. The woman's child is the first one to die, and when that happens, she asks old man to repeal the law of death. The old man says that that cannot be. A law is a law, and all people henceforward will die for once and for all. This story, like others of its kind, suggests that the woman made a bad choice, and that's why we have to die forever. But Gerald Ramsey, in his book Reading the Fire, the Traditional Literatures of America, says that this story recognizes that in some profound way, a proper human life must be limited by death. So much of our ethics and feelings of charity and compassion are posited on our awareness of mortality. It binds us together and, as the woman says, allows us to feel sorry for each other. I'm reminded by this story of what Shakespeare says in his very famous Sonnet 73. In that poem, the old man who is speaking argues that his young lover must love him all the more because the old man won't be around forever. Being aware of my mortality, he says, makes thy love more strong to love that well which thou must leave ere long. Of course, the woman in this story chooses theoretically without the experience of death, and when her son dies, she asks that the law be changed, the way we often do when we're personally affected by some law or other. But as Ramsey reminds us, in at least one way, maybe her choice isn't all bad. We have to take care of each other since the first article of our charter is that we are mortal. If I don't love you today, I may not have a chance tomorrow. Plains Indians also knew that death wasn't the only reason we have for taking care of each other. Their entire vision of the world and what it's like led them to the same kind of emphasis on interdependence, on taking care of each other. They had a great spirit who was responsible for the start of creation and for keeping an eye on it, but that spirit was too remote and abstract to have a personality or stories or a cult. The active figures in their spiritual life were culture heroes and nature powers, sun, moon, morning and evening star, wind, thunder, the spirits of animals and underwater creatures. Julian Rice, in his book Before the Great Spirit, The Many Faces of Sioux Spirituality, says that for most Plains people, although he's talking mostly about the Sioux, the Great Spirit was too remote to be directing the world toward any particular goal or in any particular direction. All Plains people had tricksters, too, and virtually all of them believed that tricksters had had a lot to do with making the world the way it is. So they saw the world as in many ways haphazard and unpredictable, even random. 
In such a world, there can't be anything like providence or poetic justice or any other assurance that things will work out for the best. So humans have to be disciplined and careful and observant since it's up to them to finish and to maintain and to operate in an imperfect creation. The Great Spirit may have intended everything to be perfect, but the trickster for the Sioux, it's Iktomi the spider, got into every corner of it so that none of it is exactly right for humans. The world for the Sioux, Rice says, is a contradictory, maybe even absurd place, although he doesn't use the word absurd. The trickster, remember, isn't really evil, just thoughtless, impulsive, and self-serving. But his contributions to creation, especially since he's so often a culture hero, mean that a lot of the ways things are needs to be compensated for, adjusted, made workable by human beings. Humans always operate in a not-quite-friendly environment. And one of the things that humans have to do to live in such a world is to subordinate self-interest and individualism to a spirit of cooperation that allows the group to survive. It's just one of the things you have to do to survive in our world. To illustrate what Rice means by all of this, we can look at his reading of a Sioux story, Double Face Tricks the Girl. This story was collected by Ella DeLoria, who preserved stories by listening to them and then writing them down from memory and then translating them. She was a Dakota Indian, the Dakota being part of the Sioux Nation. She was thus herself something of a creative writer. She retold stories she had heard in the oral tradition using pen and paper instead of her voice. What she was doing may perhaps be something like what Homer did in the Iliad and the Odyssey, recording and writing the tales that he had heard. But not much of Deloria's work got published during her lifetime. Julian Rice has spent part of his career reclaiming her work and bringing it into print. He's also an advocate for the artistry that characterizes her versions of these stories. This is Rice's reading of a story from one of her published works, Dakota Texts. The story, remember, is called Double Face Tricks the Girl. The story is about a young woman, beautiful, virtuous, and kind, and hence desired by every marriageable male. But she's not interested in any of them. But one day, a handsome stranger appears from somewhere else, another clan. He's someone she's never seen before. She responds to him so warmly that, surprisingly, she agrees to elope with him that very night. This is, Rice tells us, a serious violation of Sioux courtship ritual in which once a young man is sure that a woman is interested in him, he does all the negotiating, not with her, but with her family. When the stranger shows up that night, he has a blanket pulled over his head. The young woman is prepared. She has brought food, moccasins for the journey, and her pet beaver, which seems an odd item in the story, but keep an eye out for the beaver. He has a major role to play in it. The young woman and the stranger take off quickly, and they make great speed until they reach a lake. Then, since she can't swim, he tells her to get on his back, and he will carry her across the lake. But during the crossing, his blanket slips, and she sees that he has another face on the back of his head. He's a dreaded double face, not the young man she had met earlier that day. No one is quite sure what a double face is. 
Ella Deloria says in her translation of the story that when she was a child, she and her friends were always warned not to go into the woods since double face would get them. She said they had no idea what a double face was, but they were all afraid of him. As an image, it seems clear at least that someone with a double face might have hidden agendas, more than one set of values, may not always be what he seems. The Hopi called witches two hearts, perhaps suggesting something of the same idea that what you see isn't always what you get, or there's more here than meets the eye. But there's nothing the girl can do since she's now in Doubleface's power. When they get to his teepee, he tells her to comb the bugs out of his hair, which she does, despite her fear and loathing. By the time she's finished, he's fallen asleep, so she takes strands of his long hair and ties them to the tent poles, making him look as though his face is in the center of a great spider web. Then she grabs her pet beaver and makes a run for it. But when she gets back to the lake, she still can't swim. She sits down to weep, but her pet beaver starts to cut down trees, toppling them in the water to make a bridge for her on which they cross over to the other side. They've just made the shore when Doubleface shows up on the other side of the lake. He starts across the bridge, but the beaver starts to tear it down from his side, and it collapses. Doubleface falls in and drowns. The girl picks up her beaver and runs the rest of the way home. Her parents are happy to see her. They eventually agree to her marriage to the young man from out of town that she met at the festival, and the beaver, we're told, becomes the most honored and privileged citizen of the village. The story, Rice says, is about something that might happen to any young girl at, for example, the annual summer festival, when many clans met, and she'd be suddenly courted by a lot of young men she didn't know. Good looks and first impressions could count for a lot in such cases, since she would have no mitigating information about the young men who showed interest in her. We've already been told that this woman isn't impulsive. She's turned down every interested suitor so far. And what that tells us is that if something like this can happen to her, it can happen to anyone. The speed with which she and her lover make their way to the lake suggests the strength of her desire, the wild beating of her heart, and the excitement of danger and sexual attraction. For her, everything's working at warp speed. The lake suggests the depth and hence the seriousness of her betrayal of her family and village. That she can't swim may suggest in a very subtle way that there's part of her that's unprepared or perhaps ill-equipped to make such a betrayal. She is literally over her head. She needs help to pull this betrayal off. Halfway across the lake, she sees the double face. This kind of thing, too, can happen to any young girl who finds out only afterwards that she's married a monster that he covers the telltale face on the back of his head with a blanket, suggests the ways in which suitors can hide their liabilities as husbands during the courtship time, but which inevitably emerge after marriage. In our terms, a man can win a woman by pretending for as long as it takes that he loves opera and ballet and long walks on the beach. Afterwards, looking at her husband sitting at the television drinking beer while watching hockey, she may wonder where that man went. But in our Sue story, all of this is much more likely if, as in this case, 
the woman has sidestepped the involvement of her family who could have helped her escape such a horror, or at least on the basis of their experience, warned her of its possibility. She's repelled by her husband by the time they reach his teepee, but her self-possession is back. She's once again alert, not being swept off her feet by novelty and charm. The spider web that she makes of her husband's hair in tying him to the tent poles might remind the listeners of Iktomi the spider, the Sioux trickster, since she's here using something from his bag of tricks. It's something a trickster would do to get out of a jam. She escapes to the lake, and here she realizes that every person's individual resourcefulness has its limits. It's why in a village like hers, everyone depends on everyone else. But she's not entirely on her own. She has with her her pet beaver, who's a symbol of hard work and planning and domestic faithfulness. Here he also represents her returning consciousness of the need for interdependence, the need for other people. She makes her way across the deep lake of emotion and back to the kinship relations that define a Sioux life. The bridge the beaver makes for her takes her back to it. Doubleface falls in trying to cross the same bridge since the trip from self-indulgence to community is one that he can't make. And since the girl isn't attracted to him anymore, he can no longer swim and he drowns. He sinks because she recognizes him now for what he is and is happy to return to those she can rely on. Her valuation of him, wrong as it may have been initially, was all that kept him afloat. The story has a happy ending. She gets the young man she met at the festival anyway. Young women who made mistakes like this before marriage in most Native American cultures could be treated severely, but they weren't ever ruined in the Victorian sense of that word. She's learned her lesson, she's part of her community again, and she can live happily ever after. Even the beaver gets a happy ending in this story. Rice says this is a nice touch, since the beaver was likely the alter ego for children hearing this story. Like the beaver, children are maintained by their parents, kept like pets, but they're being raised to be useful to contribute to community life. When they prove that they are, they go from being children to being grown-ups. The girl carries the beaver until he can carry her, which is a splendid metaphor for the relationship between parents and children. What's wrong with Doubleface in this story is, in part, what's wrong with the trickster with whom he shares some characteristics. Both are motivated by self-interest, not concern for others in the community. Iktomi and other tricksters are amusing, sometimes charming, but they're also powerful beings who can cause a lot of harm, as Doubleface almost does in this story. Humans, as Rice points out, have to spend a lot of time cleaning up after both tricksters and Doublefaces. To survive, Plains Native Americans, like most other peoples in most other regions in North America, had to suppress the self on behalf of the group. Gerald Ramsey, in his book Reading the Fire, says that if Indian communities had found a way to achieve solidarity without affronting individuality, we'd have a lot fewer myths, since many of them deal precisely with the issues treated in Double Face Tricks the Girl. The story of Double Face Tricks the Girl also highlights another important function of myth for Native Americans, to remind themselves 
each other and their children why they had to do things the way they did. It was so that the community could survive. They had to tread carefully in this world. This lecture is titled, Amerindian Tales from the Northwest. The Native Americans of the Northwest Coast were in many ways unusual, different from the peoples in other regions of the Americas. For one thing, they depended on the sea and rivers for much of their food, supplemented by caribou and deer from the cedar and Douglas fir forests, along with roots and berries and mushrooms. Their resources were so plentiful that they never bothered with agriculture. They lived in large villages of houses made of cedar planks. They became skilled woodworkers. They had a more complex governing system than most other peoples and an economic hierarchy that ranged from the very wealthy down to slaves who had been taken from other clans in warfare. The wealthiest vied with each other in potlatches in which a man showed off how well he was doing by giving away extravagant gifts to his neighbors or destroying valuable items in front of them. Anyone invited to a potlatch had to give one of his own later and to give away things exceeding in value what he had been given. In this way, wooden chests, blankets, personal ornaments, tools, and a lot of other stuff circulated around the village. The richest men could also be identified by the size of their homes, the value of their goods, the number of wives and slaves that they possessed. Like virtually all other Native Americans, these peoples had a slightly vague sense of a supreme deity, someone like the chief of the sky people, or perhaps an old woman under the sea, neither of whom was featured in myths or cult. The powers they dealt with were similar to those of other peoples, sun, moon, wind, thunder, the like. Their religion, like that of most Native Americans, was animistic. The whole world was full of powers which could appear either as human or as some non-human agent, usually an animal. Everyone sought out these spirit powers beginning at puberty and then continuing until late in life. An individual tried to create as many bonds with these spirits as possible, since each one gave an additional power or skill or knowledge. Those who accumulated a great number of these could become heroes. How these extraordinary powers work in someone's life can be seen in a Wishram story from a Chinook people who lived in the Columbia River Valley in Oregon. A boy grows up so much despised by his village that everyone considers him to be mean and nasty and someone you simply can't live with. Eventually, the entire village, including his parents, take him across the river and abandon him there. His two grandmothers feel sorry for him and leave behind for him to find a live coal from which he can build a fire, a few Indian potatoes, and a piece of string from which he can make a fish line. He proves very industrious with his few tools and manages to make a lonely but otherwise satisfactory life for himself. One morning he wakes up beside a beautiful maiden, the daughter of a sea merman who has secretly been helping him. She becomes his wife, and they and their two sons live in plenty on their side of the river. She's a projection of his acquisition of a spirit power. This is a 
much longer and more complex story, but eventually his home village on the other side of the river is hit with famine. And they all come over to his side to try to take advantage of the good life he and his family are living. He winds up avenging himself on all of them, except for the two grandmothers who had helped him initially. He wipes out the entire village. His wife helps him in all of this, but she's distressed at what he's done, and she leaves him, turning him and their two sons into mountain animals. The point is that one needs to be careful about how one uses such powers when one acquires them. The tale also shows how easy it is for humans and animals to change places, another feature of Northwest stories. In the mythic age, Northwest peoples, like many other Native Americans, believed that animals and humans were even more alike than they are now, and all creatures could change their shapes at will. Many clans were formed by animals who had arrived, taken off their animal skins to reveal human form underneath, and become that clan's ancestors. Most clans claimed some special relationship with one animal, and the totem poles, inside and outside of their houses, announced this special relationship. The bear people, the killer whale people, the beaver people. These kinds of transformations show up in a large number of bear woman stories about a young woman who wanders away from her own country and winds up in a bear's den under the impression that she's in a human household. She loses her sense of time so that when she's rescued by relatives, after what seems to her a very short time, she's already given birth to several animal cubs. In a Haida version of the story, from islands off the coast of what's now British Columbia and Alaska, a young woman marries a bear prince and has two cubs, who later take off their bear clothing and become great human hunters for a while, and then go back to the bear world. Among the animal stories of the Northwest are those featuring tricksters. The trickster most closely associated with this region is Raven, but Coyote gets a lot of stories too, including one amazing one about how as both trickster and culture hero, he brings death into the world. This one comes from the Nez Perce people, who are really marginal to the Northwest fishing peoples. They live mostly on the Columbia River Plateau in eastern Washington and Oregon, but in their annual migrations, they move from what is now Montana all the way to the Pacific coast. They shared with other Northwestern peoples a dependence on salmon that came from the Snake, Salmon, and Clearwater Rivers. This coyote story of theirs has a plains ambience rather than a coast one, but it's the most superb story of its kind that I know of, and it's very similar to a Clackamas story from Oregon. In fact, it belongs to a genre critics sometimes call the Orpheus story because of its parallels with the classical Greek story about Orpheus trying to rescue his wife from Hades and, of course, failing. The Orpheus story is so widespread among Native Americans that we could have chosen a version from almost anywhere. I've chosen this one because it's the best one I know of and because it's close enough to the Northwest folk we're dealing with to be able to be appropriate. Anyway, in this Nez Perce story, which occurs in the mythic age, there were no people on Earth. Coyote's wife dies. Coyote is devastated and spends day after day weeping for her. Then one day, the death spirit comes to Coyote 
and offers to take him to where his wife is gone. Coyote leaps at the chance, but the death spirit says that he will need to be disciplined and precise and do only exactly what the spirit tells him to do. They start out across a great plain. It's hard going for Coyote because he can just barely even see the spirit. He seems only a vague shadow. Partway across the plain, the death spirit points out what he says is a large group of horses. He says there must be some kind of roundup. Coyote can't see the horses at all, but he remembers that he's supposed to do exactly what he's told, so he agrees that the many horses do suggest some kind of roundup. Later, the spirit stops and says that he's eating berries. Coyote can't see them either, but he mimics pulling down branches, picking berries, and eating them. Eventually, they come to what the spirit says is a great lodge, which Coyote, of course, can't see either. The spirit holds open an invisible to Coyote tent flap and tells Coyote to sit down next to his wife, who, of course, he can't see either. As far as he can tell, he's sitting by himself on an open prairie. Coyote is told that his wife has prepared food for him and is sitting beside him, so he mimes eating. But as it gets dark, he starts to think that he can hear a kind of whispering all around him. By the time it's completely dark, he can see that the lodge is full of fires, and he can see his wife beside him. He also sees many of his friends who have died, and he spends a joyous night with all of them. As the dawn comes, everything begins to fade until he's sitting alone again on the prairie. He sits there all day, parched and hungry, waiting for nightfall when everything and everyone will appear again. This happens for several days and nights. But then the death spirit says that it's time for Coyote to return home. This, by the way, is probably a fairly accurate picture of the afterlife as it was imagined by Native Americans. There aren't very many myths that deal directly with it, but in the ones that do, we usually get something like this, a quiet place in which things are reversed from what they are in life. It isn't unpleasant, but it lacks the immediacy and texture and sweetness of mortal life. At best, it's a kind of happy hunting ground, to use a familiar cliche, where in some ways things are easier than they are on Earth. There's plenty of game, the weather is always good, but it doesn't have the poignancy, the vividness of earthly life. Coyote is told that he can take his wife back with him, but once again he must do only what the Spirit tells him to do and do it exactly. He's told that to get back home he must cross five mountains. On the way he can talk to his wife, but he cannot touch her until they come down from the fifth mountain. And so they set off, and Coyote is amazed and delighted when his wife grows a little more visible each day. Each night they camp by a fire, and Coyote is careful to stay on his own side of the fire. Then it's the last night, and by now Coyote's wife looks like a real living person. When they start their fire and he looks at her, he's overwhelmed by happiness. Without thinking, he rushes to her to embrace her. She screams not to touch her, just as he's touching her, and just as she disappears. The death spirit returns to say that what Coyote was supposed to be doing was establishing the practice of returning from the dead. The human race will soon appear on earth, he says, and because of what Coyote has done, death without return will be the lot of all of them. 
Then the death spirit is gone, and Coyote is left alone, weeping. The next day, Coyote starts back for the land of the dead, this time alone. He does everything he did the first time, pretending to see the horses, pretending to eat the berries, even saying the lines the spirit had spoken the first time. He goes through the invisible tent flap and waits and waits. Darkness falls and nothing happens. He sits all night alone on the empty prairie and he's still sitting there alone when the sun comes up. We get to see both sides of Coyote's character in the story. He's both a culture hero and a trickster. Gerald Ramsey, whose reading of the story I'm following, says in his book, Reading the Fire, that part of Coyote is capable of behaving well. He shows real sorrow for his wife, and for a good while he manages to live up to the part that he's asked to play. But we're reminded that he's a trickster by how often the death spirit warns him not to do anything foolish, because, of course, that's what a trickster would do. The rituals of the horses and the berries and the tent flap are tests of Coyote's imagination, and he's rewarded for his good behavior by seeing his wife and his dead friends. On his way home, his growing, the growing visibility of his wife shows that he's succeeding, but at the same time, it's bringing him closer to the forbidden but irresistible embrace that spoils everything. By the fifth night, he's been seeing his wife for some time, but now, when she's virtually back, seeing isn't enough anymore. And we do understand, I think. Coyote wouldn't violate such an important instruction if he didn't love her so much. Watching him, we think that he should have taken the long view and restrained himself. But if he had, wouldn't we think that his feelings for his wife were perhaps a little suspect? Anyway, Ramsey said, do we think that we could have done better? In any case, the point of the story is surely a complex one and a touching one. People die, and we can't bring them back, because Coyote was imperfect, short-sighted, and alive mostly in the present moment. He's like us. Coyote, of course, takes this step in ignorance of the great human precedent he's establishing, but he's a trickster, which means that he's always self-centered and fallible, so Maybe it wouldn't have made any difference if he had known. In most Native American Orpheus stories, the one who brings death into the world is the first one to suffer loss from it. That's partly true here in that Coyote loses his wife for the second time, this time forever. But it's again, I think, really touching that having been assured that death is now an irrevocable law, he still goes back over the plane again, just in case, just in case there's a loophole that the death spirit didn't mention. But there is no loophole, and there's a stunning resonance in the way this story ends with Coyote sitting all alone in the middle of a vast prairie, waiting. One of the things that's wonderful about Native American stories is that they manage to run the gamut from very large creation stories when a god divides himself into male and female, and then they generate earth, all the way to stories so delicate that they're nearly drawing room or domestic tales about everyday life and its tensions and frustrations and its joys. All people have some such of the latter kind of stories, but the Northwest people seem, to me anyway, to have more of them than anyone else. 
and each one is good enough to be considered a short story that might appear in an anthology of short stories. That's anyway the case with the two I want to look at next. The first is from the Clackamas Chinook, who lived on the Clackamas River in Oregon. In one of his books, Melville Jacobs calls it All in Her Son's Son. That's the name of the story. In it, a man lives alone and spends all his time hunting. One day he stays home to patch his moccasins, and while he's at it, he breaks his awl, a, a pointed spike used for poking holes in leather. He flings it under his bed, groaning that he wishes it would become a person. A few days later, when he comes home from hunting, he finds a fire lit, the house cleaned, and small footprints on the floor. He doesn't know who's been in the house, so the next day he sets a bow and arrows by the fire, thinking that if it's a boy, he'll want to use them, and he'll be able to tell that they've been moved. But when he returns the next day, the house is tidy, and the fire is lit, but the bow and arrows are exactly as he left them. He tries the same thing the next day with a root digger. This time he can tell that it's been moved, so he decides that it must be a woman. With each day that passes, the mysterious somebody does a bit more work in the house, and the hunter gets increasingly curious. So one day, he only pretends to leave home in the morning. He sneaks back and climbs on the roof, where he can peer down through the smoke hole. He sees a woman saying to herself that her son's son has gone for the day. He climbs down and asks her who she is. She says that she's the answer to what was in his heart, when he wished that the all would become a real person. She calls him her son's son, making her his grandmother. She says that she can't eat because the hunter had broken off the tip of the all, but she does everything else a woman can do in the house. And with her help, the hunter is even more successful than he had been before. He is soon a wealthy man and a good catch for some maiden. One day, such a maiden shows up, dressed in her best clothes and carrying her valuables. But on her way to the hunter's house, she passes a blackberry patch and stops to pick some berries. There's no way that she can know that all grandmother considers this her private preserve. While the maiden is picking berries, a huge storm arises, and she runs into the woods for shelter. There she hears a voice asking who's been picking from her berry patch and she sees an old woman stabbing away with an awl. The girl calls out to the old woman who stops her stabbing motion, calls the young woman her son's son's wife, and invites her home. There she seats the maiden on the hunter's bed, feeds her, and tells her to wash her hair and pull it down over her eyes. When the maiden does, the old woman stabs her to the heart, drags her out to the back of the house, piles her stuff on top of her, and leaves her. What we have here, Melville Jacob says, is a myth-age story in which a fantasy can generate reality. The hunter is so lonely that he anthropomorphizes a valuable all. The woman generated by his desire can function like an all for domestic chores and can use an all herself. Jacobs also reminds us that this is the way paranoia works. Frustration and loneliness can lead to fantastic wishes, which are then fulfilled in the hallucination of an apparent reality. As the woman says to him, you were lonely, you wished for me, I am here. 
The maiden who was killed has four sisters, each of whom duplicates the experience of the first, none of them knowing what happened to the others. Each of the next three sisters is drawn into the house the same way, fed and prepared as for a marriage, and then killed and dumped beside the house. But as the fifth sister makes her way to the house, she accidentally breaks the leg of Meadowlark Woman, who is one of those creatures who can slip back and forth from bird to woman, and who turns out to be the gift of a spirit power for the fifth sister. When the girl stops to tend to the leg of, of Meadowlark Woman, Meadowlark Woman tells her what's happened to her sisters. She offers to accompany the maiden to prevent it from happening again. For the young girl, Meadowlark Woman is some kind of power of discernment. Everything happens as it did before, except that Meadowlark Woman has told the girl not to cover her face with her hair. She manages to see the all coming and to dodge it. The old woman's thrust carries her into the wall where she gets stuck and becomes again just a broken awl sunk into the wood. When the hunter comes home, he finds the maiden, not all woman. The maiden says that she killed the old woman and shows him the awl stuck in the wall. Then they find the bodies of the older sisters and bury them. Jacobs thinks that this is a story primarily about all woman who has enough spirit power to be able to respond to the hunter's wish and also to kill the first four young women. Ironically, her power is what helped the hunter to become wealthy enough to attract the women in the first place. Jacob says that she's a grandmother who's reared children and grandchildren and who's been up to now central to their lives. Her life now consists in taking care of a grandson. When she sees the maiden coming, she sees her own displacement. And to make everything more bitter, she sees the maiden attracted by the very wealth that she's helped the hunter to generate. What we get to see here is the wrath of an older woman on the verge of being set aside. There may even be an oblique look at the feelings of an older wife when her husband takes a younger one. She gets a last chance to control a younger woman by putting her through what seems like marriage preparations. Every woman who heard this story, Jacob suggests, would probably find herself in it, either as the older woman about to relinquish some part of her place in a man's life and heart to a younger woman, or as a younger one about to make that replacement, who would have to be horrified at the hatred expressed by the old woman. The resolution comes via that spirit power acquired by the fifth sister from Meadowlark Woman. The old woman's hatred is so fierce that when she misses the maiden, she drives herself into the wall, now just as an awl. She can't pull herself out to become a woman again. The young woman, helped by her spirit power, has allowed the old woman's hatred to penetrate something that can't feel it, has rendered it harmless. Jacobs thinks that tensions like this must have been present all the time in those northwestern cedar plank houses, especially in situations in which a wealthy man could have many wives and sexual access to slaves besides. The overall pattern is comic insofar as it sets aside an older generation to make way for the marriage of two young people, but it presents enough of what it feels like to be the older woman being displaced to make it all so sad as well as horrible. 
The last story we'll look at is one of the most famous in all Native American stories. It's been reprinted and analyzed many times, and if it hasn't already wound up in an anthology of literature, it soon will. It's another Clackamas Chinook story, usually called Seal and Her Brother. Like the last one, it focuses on tensions within a household. Seal is a woman who lives with her younger brother and her young daughter. A woman one day comes into the house as the younger brother's wife. We're not told how this happens or who she is. We know that the Clackamas Chinook didn't get married that way. Marriages were arranged by families. A, a woman whom no one knew wouldn't be brought home by a man and installed as his wife. What happened in our last story, the one about all and her son's son, is thus pretty irregular too. In Clackamas society, women didn't just put on their best clothes and gather up their possessions and go off to claim a husband. That the five sisters did just that is a reminder that the story was set in the mythic age, not the present. Anyway, the young daughter in this story notices that when the new wife goes outside to urinate, it's just, she says, like a man when she goes out. Her mother shushes her since she's speaking about Seal's brother's wife. The little girl keeps noticing, however, that there's something different, something maybe not quite right about the new wife, but over and over she's told to keep quiet. One night, the little girl sleeping in bed underneath the one in which the brother and his wife sleep feels something drip onto her face. She runs to tell her mother. But again, her mother says not to notice because it's not polite to pay attention to a pair when they're sexually intimate. But this time, the little girl lights a pitch pine and looks at them. Her uncle's neck has been severed. He's dead. The girl again runs to her mother and she says, for from the start, she had noticed something different about the wife, but every time she was shushed, now the mother weeps, making the strange comment that the posts in her brother's house were valuable. The little girl weeps too, saying over and over what amounts to, I told you and you wouldn't listen. The story raises a lot of questions. We need to remember that these stories were heard, not read, and that means that there may have been a good deal of expressive gesture and voice tone and facial expression that accompanied the words we have in the text to help the audience understand the story's meaning. Also, whether because the stories were shared orally or because when they were told, everyone who heard them would have known how to take them and what to make of them, or for some other reason, states of mind are seldom or never given in Native American stories. We hear what people say and we see what they do, but we aren't told how they feel or why they do what they do. It makes these stories very open-ended in ways that seem quite modern. In terms of structure, this one might have been written by Chekhov. Maybe it's one reason why a story like this has attracted so much attention. We have a lot of work to do filling in the things the storyteller leaves out. And we're never sure that we know how to do this, since there are so many things about the cultures in which these kinds of stories are told that we don't know. Gerald Ramsey quotes a native singer who told him the song is so short because we understand so much. Maybe that's the case with this story, too. We don't know, for example, where the wife comes from or who she is. She moves into the house abruptly, without preparation, the way Bear Woman does in some stories. 
We know that bear woman never means well by entering that way, and we suspect that this new wife doesn't either. It may be the story about a homosexual, but we can't know that for sure. Or we can't know for sure that the brother or the wife is homosexual, or whether the wife really is a man or not, or whether the, why the brother's throat gets cut. The story may be a story about a bear dash. A bear dash was a transvestite, a Native American, who dressed as a woman and took a woman's role. We know that there were some, but we don't know if any of them were homosexual. They were accepted by their fellow villagers on the basis that they had been guided to behave this way by their spirit powers. And as everyone knew, if you didn't do what your spirit powers wanted, you would die. All we know for sure is that there were cases in which men married other men, and the Berdash took a wife's role in cooking, basket-making, and fetching water. So, is there some Berdash in the story? Jacob says we know too little about the Berdash phenomenon in the culture, to be sure. Why does he kill his husband? Does he, assuming that it really is a he, feel insulted by the family, or at least by the daughter who keeps pointing out that he urinates like a man? What do we make of this story? And at least as interesting, what did the original audience make of it? Some critics see the central figure as the little girl, whose perceptions are ignored to everyone's loss. He says that the story warns us about the need for mediation between social norms on the one hand and our awareness of a particular situation on the other. Seal is all propriety. She's so polite and correct that she ignores what's happening right in front of her. The little girl reports what she sees, not what she thinks she should see, so she's a little like the child of the emperor's new clothes. She finds herself caught between her own awareness, which no one seems to trust, and adult stock responses, which don't answer to her experience. At the end, Seal is still saying conventional things, when she says that her brother's house has fine doorposts, she means that he was wealthy and hence an influential man, which sounds to us anyway strangely unlike personal grief. The point is that sometimes one has to let social decorum go in order to see what's really happening. It's also, in a way, a story about a failure to listen to someone who is paying attention. Carl Krober, in his book Native American Storytelling, says about this story that as far as we can tell, Seal, her brother, and Seal's daughter accommodated each other in a one-room house without separate bedrooms and only one central fire. But when a new wife appears, doubtful in gender, in person, and in role, all kinds of adjustments are needed. In shushing her daughter, Seal shows a tolerance which isn't a real tolerance but merely a refusal to notice what's going on. What you don't see or pretend that you don't see can't hurt you, she thinks, but it can. And here, that kind of tolerance leads to murder. For us, whatever we can make of this story, we can use it to learn one more thing about reading Native American stories. A lot is left out, which we have to supply for ourselves. As we've seen, in some ways, that's a grand thing since it allows us all kinds of spaces in a story into which we can fit ourselves. Where do we find ourselves in these stories? It's one more way in which they add up to a rich and provocative treasure house of narratives, 
a veritable 1,000 and one nights Native American style. This lecture is titled, The Navajo Emergence Myth. The two most frequently occurring creation myths in North America, as I've mentioned, are the earth diver and emergence types. In the earth diver story, some creature, usually an animal or bird, dives to the bottom of the primal sea to bring up a bit of mud from which the earth is created. You'll recall that Nanabushu uses this method to recreate the world after a great flood in the Ojibwa story. In a Huron myth, birds and animals save a woman who falls from the sky and then create a place for her to live by diving down to recover some bits of sky dirt still clinging to the tree that falls with her. And in the crow story, Coyote sends down two ducks to find some mud and then expands it into the world. The emergence-type story occurs most often in the southwest part of what's now the United States. In that one, people emerge into this world from one or more worlds below it. In ascending, they evolve from a lower state of being to full humanity. The emergence-type does occur in other parts of North America. A creek, for example, said that they emerged from a hole in the ground somewhere near a great mountain in the west, presumably some part of the Rockies, and then migrated across the continent to the Atlantic coast. And some Plains Native Americans had emergent stories too, but most of those that come from other places emphasize the migration rather than the emergence part of the story. The Creeks simply say that they emerged from the ground and then tell in great detail their journey to their new home thousands of miles away. The Navajo emergence myth, which we'll look at in this lecture on the other hand, spends three quarters of its narration on the emergence itself. It has a migration story attached, but its emphasis is on the long, slow climb into this, the fifth world. It's the richest and most complex version of the type we have from North America, which is why I'm going to concentrate on it as our example of the emergence type creation story. The homology for this kind of creation story is the birth of a child from the womb, moving from darkness to light. Quite often, the helper figure in emergent stories, the one who helps the creatures move upward toward the final world, is female. She's a kind of midwife, bringing humans out of the dark caves and into the light. Because of the clear parallels with birth, some mythographers think this must be the oldest of creation myths, dating back to the Neolithic or even the Paleolithic ages, the ages that created the drawings and carvings of females with huge breasts and buttocks, we guess that they may have been among the oldest of all religious images and possessed great power. The gradual development of creatures from their insect-like beginnings to their emergence as full humans, then, corresponds to the period of gestation, the time of growth of the fetus in the womb, and the emergence is itself a miraculous birth, like the emergence of an infant from the cave of the womb into the world of light. The Navajo were latecomers to the Southwest. Their language is related to that of peoples in Canada and Alaska, and they must have migrated from those regions, arriving in the Southwest at least by 1541, where they were when the Spaniards arrived. They seem to have come down as nomadic hunters, 
But by the time that we know them, the name Navajo, which comes from a Spanish phrase that means Apaches of the cultivated fields, by the time the Spanish arrived, they had learned agriculture from their Pueblo neighbors who also influenced their religion and myths and rituals. The Navajo emergence myth that we'll be following in this lecture is the one collected and published by Paul G. Zolbrod under the title of Diné Bahane, the Navajo creation story. Diné in Navajo means the people, so a literal translation of the title would be something like story of the people. It starts with insect-like creatures living in a chamber deep underground. Like some insects, they can fly, so they're called air spirit people. Things are very nasty in their underground chamber. It's dark and crowded and dirty, and there's a lot of arguing and fighting and adultery, so the story says. Their underground world is oriented by the four cardinal directions, each with its own color, white for east, blue for south, yellow for west, and black for north. Each direction has its own chief. These chiefs aren't defined or described for us, but we can assume that they're holy people living down under with the air spirit people. Those four chiefs strongly disapprove of the people's behavior and expel the insect people with a flood that brings water from all four directions at once. Fortunately, the air spirit people can fly, so they soar up until they come to the hard shell of the sky. Then they're trapped, with the waters rising below them and the impervious sky above. The underground worlds are stacked like inverted bowls, so that the sky of a lower world is the floor of the one above it, and so on up. But a member of another race of beings, the Swallow People, suddenly appears to show these trapped creatures a slit in the sky, and he leads them through it to the floor of the second world. This world is entirely blue, and it's inhabited by the Blue Swallow People. The last world, the first one, had been red. The air spirit people ask the blue swallow people for permission to stay, and they promise to live in peace with their new neighbors. They're given permission and welcomed, and things go well for a while, until one of the air spirit people makes too free with the wife of the swallow chief. Then the blue swallow people, like the four chiefs in the first world, send the air spirit people packing again. So it's off into the air once more, up to another impervious dome, where a deity white wind comes to their rescue and leads them through a slit in the sky into a yellow world. Here, the same sequence of events happens, and once again they're forced to fly up to the hard shell of another sky, where this time another divine being, red wind, leads them through a slit into the fourth world. This world is the largest one they've been in so far. There's no sun or moon, but there's enough light for the air spirit people to send out reconnaissance missions in all four directions, each of which is marked by a mountain peak. In three directions, they find nothing, but to the north, they find a people who cut their hair square in front, who live in upright houses, and who know agriculture. The next day, two of these people come to visit the air spirit people, bringing corn and pumpkins to feed them. Mythographers think this is a mythical way of remembering the Navajos' first meeting with the Pueblo people who had been in the area before the Navajo arrived. The two peoples make an effort to get along. 
The square-haired people teach the air spirit people how to cultivate and irrigate their crops, and the air spirit people hold meetings to try to figure out how to avoid getting kicked out of this world, the best one they've been in so far. They clean up their act enough that they don't get kicked out, and they're helped in their efforts by two holy people who come to tell them to try to become more godlike and to reproduce. Then, a bit later, the holy people show up again with two buckskins and two ears of corn, one white and one yellow. They lay the two ears of corn on one of the two buckskins and cover it with the other. Then they place eagle feathers beneath the ears of corn and ask the east and west winds to blow into the buckskin while the holy people walk four times around it. When the top buckskin is lifted, the two ears of corn are gone, and in their places are a man and a woman. These are first man and first woman. They're not yet human beings. Rather, they're some of those second-tier deities sent by the creator gods to finish the work of creation and prepare the world for people, for humans. First man and first woman have five sets of twins who grow up very fast. This is still the mythic age when growth is much faster than it is now. The holy people take the twins to the eastern mountains to teach them about rain and agriculture and ceremonies and rituals. The sets of twins had intermarried, but in the mountains they learn that brothers and sisters shouldn't marry, so when they get back, they all divorce each other and marry descendants of the air spirit people or the Pueblo or some of the holy people. First woman understands why they have to divorce, but she's disturbed at how easily they split up, suggesting that the bond between them wasn't very strong to begin with. So she makes some improvements on human sexual equipment to make sexual congress pleasurable for both men and women. Her hope is that because men and women will now sexually desire each other, they will over time come to care for each other. And then something momentous happens. One day, the sky of the fourth world comes down and touches the earth, and when it retreats, there stand coyote and badger. These are divine figures created by heaven, not just a coyote and a badger. Badger immediately tunnels down into the earth, but for better or for worse, coyote is here to stay. Coyote is going to create a lot of problems for everyone on the earth when he arrives and for humans who will come later. The air spirit people have spent a long time trying to control themselves, to get along with their neighbors, and they're definitely getting better at it. And then Coyote shows up. And Coyote never behaves or tries to get along with his neighbors or subordinates his own impulses for the good of the group. He just does whatever he wants whenever he wants to do it. And he's divine, a creature of the sky, which means that he's smart and powerful and he can't be killed. He has a way of secreting his life principle into his nose or the tip of his tail or even into a nearby tree so that when he seems to be dead, he isn't. He always revives and shows up again. Everything he does has his paw prints all over it, and it almost always replaces order with disorder and confusion. Here's an example. First man has placed all of the stars on the desert floor. On another part of the desert, he's drawn an elaborate map of where he wants each individual star to go, 
and he picks them up one at a time and places it carefully according to his master drawing. His intention is to make patterns in the night sky so that people will be able to use them for travel or for telling the seasons and for telling time. Coyote watches this for a while and then he gets bored. It's taking such a long time. So he takes all the stars still lying on the desert floor and flings them up into the sky. The stars that the first man had put in place remained where they were, but the random order of the rest of them, that's the work of Coyote. Coyote is one way of accounting for the fact that while the world is a good place, it's also demanding and uncomfortable and sometimes dangerous. This shows up over and over again in Native American stories. Someone is always releasing the captive game animals to make hunting difficult, as in the Cherokee story about the origin of maize. Many people had stories about culture heroes who were twins, the one good, the other evil, like those in a Huron creation myth. The one spends his time smoothing things out for humans, while the other deliberately makes them more difficult and demanding. The Iroquois Federation myth has a cooking pot containing the face of a cannibal and the face of a visionary, and it's the same face. The whole point of the Iroquois Federation was to try to co-opt evil or absorb it or neutralize it since it couldn't be eliminated. It always has to be reckoned with. Again and again, we see that the good and the bad are like two sides of the same coin or like a set of identical twins. Almost every people also had a trickster who in some ways puts the set of opposed twins into one character. Coyote is the Navajo trickster, and he's always close to the center of things, responsible for much of the way the world turned out, making life on the earth more difficult than it would have to be. The Navajo creation story breaks off from its story of the emergence of humans at this point to insert a whole cycle of coyote stories, which take up about a seventh of the entire book. The cycle ends at almost the exact middle of the Diné Bahané, and literally that makes sense, because that's the way the trickster is embedded in the middle of everything. The coyote cycle in the Navajo creation myth is a complex one in which Coyote wins a maiden by killing a monster for her and allowing her to kill him four times. Each time, of course, he puts himself back together and comes back for more. He seduces her and in the process shares with her some of his power so that when Coyote disappears for a time, the woman uses that power to turn herself into a bear and take a terrible revenge on those she thinks are responsible for his disappearance. She winds up killing 11 of her brothers who are unsympathetic to and have never liked Coyote as a brother-in-law. And then she's killed by a 12th brother who turns her into a real bear, the animal. She started out as a maiden so perfect that suitors built temporary houses near hers so they could be near her and court her. But thanks to Coyote, she ends up wiping out her family and then being turned into a bear. As Paul Zolbrod puts it in a footnote to this cycle, we get to see Coyote indulge himself, behave impulsively, make a mockery of the male-female relationship, practice witchcraft, and teach it to a woman he seduces and tricks into marrying him. It's true that at the end of the Coyote cycle, two holy people come down 
to resuscitate the 11 brothers so they could get on with their lives. But by then, their once-beloved sister is a bear shuffling through the forest. Well, that's a good summary of one side of the trickster's character. He's at the heart of things, doing precisely what he wants to, and in the process, frequently messing things up for humans who have to work around and through the disorder he's created. Julian Rice describes the Sioux vision of the world as haphazard and contradictory because Iktomi, their trickster, is always in it. Coyote, from this point on, is always in the Navajo story, too. The emergent story isn't, of course, finished. It was just interrupted by the coyote cycle. The next big thing that happens is a quarrel between first man and first woman. It's precisely the kind of quarrel lovers or husbands and wives have, when one of them says something that the other takes amiss and responds in kind. And then things escalate way beyond the scope of the initial subject. That's what happens here. It starts when first woman says that first man goes out hunting every day in exchange for the sex he gets from her, and she says sort of in passing that maybe it's not him but her vagina that deserves the praise. He says that's nonsense, and the argument is off and running. They get to the point where she says that men are unnecessary to women, and then he goes off to tell the men that the women think they can get by without men, and he takes all of the men across a river. Men and women live apart on opposite sides of the river for four years. Both sides suffer and both resort to what the text discreetly refers to as unnatural sexual practices. After four years, both sides are willing to lay down their grievances, and the men send across the river to bring the women and children to their side for a night of reunion and delight. But... In getting the women and children across the river, two little girls have disappeared, and it turns out that they were seized by a water monster. A delegation into which Coyote insinuates himself goes to rescue the daughters, but while they're all busy with the rescue, Coyote steals two of the water monster's babies and sneaks them out hidden in his clothing. The next day, there's a great flood. It's clearly the revenge of the water monster for his stolen babies. Everyone is saved by the whole two holy people who create a reed large enough for everyone and the animals to get inside it and climb up into the fifth and final world, into our world. But the water down in the fourth world keeps rising until it starts pouring out of the hole made by the reed in the floor of this world. It looks like this world will be flooded too. But first man fingers Coyote, who's made to show what he's hiding in his clothes. They take away the water babies and put them back into the hole from which all the water is rushing and the flood stops. Now that everyone from the fourth world has finally made it to the fifth, first man and first woman become its culture heroes, creating mountains and trees and more birds and animals and the sun and moon. But there are more troubles. An argument with the Pueblo people over corn gets more violent when Coyote interferes in it, and the two people wind up going their separate ways. And then, even worse, when the people migrate to look for places to settle permanently, some of the women start giving birth to monsters. We're told that they're the result of sexual self-abuse during the four-year separation of the genders.
Everyone tries to destroy the monsters, but they can't. And then the monsters themselves multiply until they menace the entire population. The monsters are powerful, almost impossible to kill, and they feed on human flesh. The little group is forced to move again and again, and their numbers get smaller as they get picked off by the monsters. This is at least the third time that sexual conflict has led to trouble. Zolbrod suggests that the destructive side of sexuality has been the core of the problem all along, or at very least a good symbol of it. The goal of Navajo life was hojo, a word that combines the concept of beauty and balance and harmony. Once these are lost, individual and community life gets sick and needs to be cured. All of the curing ceremonies of the Navajo, including shamans and sand paintings and dances and chants, were designed to restore hojo once it had been lost. David Leeming in the Oxford Companion to World Mythology says that the most important Navajo ritual, the Blessing Way, incorporated a version of the creation story, the one that we're in the middle of, as a way of restoring harmony with all of the spirits of the world. He said that when the creation story was sung at such a ceremony, it was a way of getting back to the beginning so that a new start could be made. Hojo seems to have been achieved in the fourth world, but it keeps getting lost thanks to male-female issues. Remember that adultery was one of the things that made life so messy and ugly way down in the first world? The air spirit people get kicked out of the second and third worlds for sex-related issues. In an alternate version of the story, they get booted out of one of the lower worlds when sun mates with first woman. And balance gets lost again when first man and first woman quarrel, and first man takes all the men across the impassable river with him. Now, as a result of that separation, the world is full of monsters. Things get very bad this time. Monsters kill so many that eventually there are only six beings left. First man and first woman, one old man and his wife, and their two children, a boy and a girl. The first four are too old to procreate, and the brother and sister can't marry each other, so it looks like the end of pre-human and then human life on Earth. They do the only thing that's left to do. They ask the holy people for help. First man travels to a cloud-covered mountain where he discovers a turquoise figure the size of a baby but with the shape of a grown woman. He takes it home, and then one of the holy people sends the whole group back to the same mountain. There they discover another figure, like the turquoise one, but made of white shell. The holy people then reenact the creation of first man and first woman, this time with the two figures, who come to life as changing woman and white shell woman. They are the help the holy people send in answer to prayers for deliverance from the monsters. Both women grow up fast on the mountain, and both become pregnant in extraordinary ways. Changing woman is penetrated by a ray of the sun, and white shell woman by mist from a waterfall, or by a ray of sun shining through the mist, which would make the sun the father of both children. Both bear sons, and the holy people come to wash the babies at birth, and then to train them to be physically and mentally strong. They will grow up to be the monster slayers, 
though neither they nor their, mo- nor their mothers know this until later. When the boys grow up, they become aware of their destinies and eventually decide to seek out their father, the son, for help and guidance. They meet a character named Spider-Woman who gives them talismans and weapons and songs and tells them how to find their father. After a series of harrowing adventures, they make it to the House of the Sun where they are given additional weapons and powers with which to fight the monsters. Then they're sent home to start their work. A large portion of the Diné Bahane is devoted to those battles against the monsters. The fights are imaginatively told and the monsters are of various kinds, but there's never much doubt as to who will win since the boys are heroes with divine parents who have been especially trained and armed for this task. The monsters really don't have much of a chance against them. In the end, the earth is cleared of monsters, and once their work is done, the boys go to live in a mountain cave near the junction of two rivers, where the people say that once in a while they could still see the reflections of the boys in the water. On their way to their new home, the monster slayers are given a vision of the future of the lands inhabited by the Navajo, whose numbers will increase, who will learn how to plant and reap and husband livestock, and how to manage the rituals and ceremonies that will maintain harmony and order and beauty in the world. After all of this is accomplished, the son begs Changing Woman to become his wife in the West so that he could return to her each night after his journey across the sky. She resists for quite a while, giving in at last only if the son will build her a splendid house and allow her to surround the house and herself with animals. On her way west to move into the house of the sun, accompanied by holy people and animals, she pauses to celebrate her betrothal. At that event, her hips widen, her breasts fill out, and she comes into full and perfect womanhood. This event becomes the basis for a ceremony performed for Navajo girls at puberty designed to mold their bodies into the perfect form of changing woman. Changing woman became the most revered deity of the Navajo. She's something like our Mother Nature, goddess of the changing year. She's old and bent and gray in winter, but each spring she becomes again a beautiful maiden. She's also a food provider by bringing rain and assuring food crops for her children. She's also the spirit of some of the Navajo curing chants, all of which are designed to help regain strength after an illness or injury or loss, thus maintaining hojo for the individual and the community. And she also helps maintain the balance between male and female, which was lost several times during the emergence and always with serious consequences. The point is that harmony and balance depends on both men and women. When she leaves the community, she says that people will never see her in her bodily form again, but she will still be with them, especially in the form of female rain, the kind of rain that falls gently, in contrast with the kind that comes with lightning and thunder and wind, which the Navajo called male rain. The Navajo believed that when the holy people who had walked on the earth in the early days departed, they stayed behind in various ways to help and guide the people. It was in the female rain that nourishes the crops that changing woman would be forever with her children. Zolbrod calls the last section of his version of the Dine Bahane 
the gathering of the clans. It's the part of the work where myth intersects with history. It accounts for the formation of the Navajo people, the Diné as a distinct nation. There is one more creation of man and woman from two ears of corn and a pair of buckskins, and then a little group starts out to find its home. Along the way, they join up with other peoples, descendants of the air spirit people and the Pueblo, and some special new creations of the holy people. Zolbrod suggests that this account of various clans and people and their relationships to each other may mythically recall some very ancient history of the people and the ways it was organized. The last sentence of Zolbrod's translation says that the existence of the people was now secure and they continue to flourish in the fifth world to this very day, which, in fact, they do. So the emergence of the Navajo is a story of a people and their growth and development and how they came to deserve the world they were given. In a way, the story is almost the opposite of the Genesis story in the Old Testament, in which Adam and Eve are kicked out of the Garden of Eden for disobedience so that living in the world is a kind of punishment. In the Navajo story, each time the air spirit people master themselves a bit more, learn to get along with each other, learn to respect their customs and institutions, learn to appreciate sex while controlling it, and learn how men and women should and can live together in harmony and beauty, each time they learn something, they're rewarded with a better place. They're helped by the holy people over the rough spots, and they wind up in this one. It's not a perfect place, since the trickster is still deeply involved in it, and there are many temptations and pitfalls along the way, but it's also splendid and beautiful. In a myth about the origin of one of the Navajo curing chants, the mountain chant, a young man out hunting looks back from a hilltop to where his people are. It's so beautiful that he feels sad and lonely and homesick and happy all at once, and he stops to sing a song of love for it. The world is a place where energies have to be balanced and rebalanced, and one has to stay alert for the changes and movement in an environment permeated by spirits. But it's also amazingly beautiful. The moment, as Carl Krober says in his book, Native American Storytelling, captures vividly the Navajo feeling for the extraordinary beauty, danger, and wonder of living well in the fifth world. This lecture is titled, Stories of the Pueblo. The people who shared the North American Southwest with the Navajo and Apache were collectively known as the Pueblo. They weren't a single people culturally or linguistically, and they came from different places at different times. But they managed to forge a common tradition and a way of life, perhaps because they all had to survive in a rugged, unforgiving, semi-arid location. They included the prehistoric cliff dwellers known as the Anasazi, or the Ancient Ones, and they included the peoples who later built villages of stone or adobe on high rocky tablelands called mesas, the Acoma, the Laguna, the Hopi, and the Zuni, among others. Pueblo creation stories are mostly of the emergence type, perhaps originating in Mesoamerica, where the Maya have similar stories. 
They are similar also to the Navajo emergence myths, which isn't too surprising since the Navajo were relative latecomers to the region and adopted and adapted much from the peoples already there. The Navajo, in fact, memorialized their coming to this land in their own story. In the fourth world, they said, that is, the world just below ours, their ancestors met a people who cut their hair square in front and lived in upright houses. They were probably the Pueblo, who were already established when the other peoples arrived. A good example of an emergence myth of the Pueblo peoples is that of the Zuni, who were themselves relative latecomers to the region, but whose myth is a kind of model of the rest of them. The Zuni emergence myth begins when Awanawalona, the All-Father who contains everything within himself, made himself into the sun and impregnated the primeval waters, generating Earth Mother and Sky Father, who then shaped the world. But the first creatures deep within that world were unfinished, dark, horrible, writhing things who lived in darkness and squalor. The sun looked down on the earth and saw that it was a grand place, but it was empty. Most especially there was no one to give him prayer sticks to honor him. Prayer sticks are sticks carved and painted and decorated with feathers used to make offerings and prayers to the spirit world. So the sun created two boys who went down into the lowest world and told the creatures there that they had come to deliver them into a world of light. They made a very large prayer stick on which the creatures climbed up into the second world. After a time, they climbed another prayer stick into the third world. Each world was a little brighter than the last. By the time they got to the third one, they could actually see each other, and they were thoroughly disgusted with what they saw. Creatures covered with spit and dirt and urine and slime, creatures with webbed hands and feet, tails and horns, and no mouths. After more time had passed, they moved yet again, this time into the real daylight world, which so dazzled them that their eyes watered as though they were weeping. Then the twin boys of the sun spent some time making the creatures more human-like. They provided them with corn, but the creatures had no mouths. So one night when they were asleep, the boys cut openings in their faces. Now they could eat, but they couldn't eliminate, so another night was spent cutting openings at the other end. Then there were still more more nocturnal surgeries, first to get rid of the webbings on the hands and feet, and next to cut off the tails and horns. Then they were ready to begin looking for a place to settle down, just as the Navajo emergence myth adds with the formation of clans and the migration of peoples to where they found their homes. The Hopi story, which I want to discuss next, is rich in details of a vast and prolonged migration. The emergence part of its story is similar to that of the Zumi. The Hopi were a Pueblo people who have lived in the North American Southwest since prehistoric times. Their name means the peaceful ones or the kind ones or the truthful ones. They've been able to maintain and preserve a great deal of their heritage and to live up to their name in part because they were the westernmost of the Pueblo peoples, the furthest from the Spanish seats of power, and hence were able to avoid for a longer time incursions into their world from outside and the inevitable warfare that came with it. In the days before the coming of the Europeans, their villages were scattered from the plains of what's now Texas to the deserts of Nevada and south as far as northern Mexico. 
Their towns were one large complex of solid building with several multi-storied houses arranged around a courtyard, so single-room dwellings were clustered like cells in a multi-tiered beehive. The upper stories could be reached by ladders, which could be drawn up in times of danger. Beneath the courtyards were underground chambers known as kivas, which could be entered by a hole in the floor. These were used by religious societies for ceremonies, meditation, and discussion. In the Hopi creation story, the sun spirit, Tewa, gathers together the elements of endless space, puts some of his own substance into it, and then makes insect-like creatures and places them deep in the earth. Tewa is disappointed with his creature effort, so he sends spider grandmother to the, the creatures to see what she can do with them. She tells him that their problem is that they don't understand the meaning of life. Spider Grandmother is one of those culture heroes who help people whenever they need her. Like so many other figures in Native American myths, she can be either a woman or a spider. As a woman, she's grandmotherly, she's good, kind, just, and she has a certain tolerance for, or at least an understanding of, human frailty. As a spider, she lives in the earth and is associated with the virtues of the earth. She's a kind of a living good medicine. On the Hopi migration, she shows up again and again, often with her grandsons, to save villages from fire or to save an individual in trouble or to help a virtuous man or woman achieve some difficult task. She's always on the side of compassion and justice, and she's also a kind of conscience for the people, reminding them over and over to remember why they are here and what their purpose is in life. She herself leads them into the next upper world, and as they moved, Tewa changes them, so when they arrive, they look like dogs, coyotes, and bears. All of them have fur, tails, and webbed fingers. The creatures are happy for a time in this world, but since they lack understanding, they fight with each other and even eat each other. So Tewa sends Spider-Grandmother back again, and she leads them into the third world. As they move, Tewa changes them again. They lose their tails, fur, and webbed fingers. It's a kind of evolution. This third world is brighter than the lower two, and there's water here for their fields. So they build villages, plant corn, and live in harmony and are grateful to Tewa. Since it's still not very light or warm, Spider-Grandmother teaches them to make blankets and clothing and teaches the women how to make pots for storing food and water. Spider-Grandmother also keeps reminding them that they must grow morally and intellectually as they progress physically. Life isn't bad in this third world. The pots break easily because there's no fire to cure them, and the crops don't grow too well because there isn't enough light and heat, but it's by far the best place these creatures have been in so far. And Spider-Grandmother keeps reminding them to be grateful and to understand the meaning of things, which they try to do. And then one day, a hummingbird arrives as a messenger from Masawa, ruler of the upper world, caretaker of the place of the dead, owner of fire, and, oddly enough, given this combination, a trickster. He frequently appears as skeleton man. He offers the creatures fire, which with which they can warm their fields, cook their foods, stay warm, and one day when they inadvertently burn down a house with some pots in it, 
used to fire their vessels. Things should have been better now, but suddenly there are Powakas in their midst. Powakas are bad sorcerers who make medicine to injure those they envy or dislike. And once this kind of corruption appears, it spreads in ways that are depressingly predictable. Younger people stop respecting their elders, adultery becomes rampant, and people spend their time in the kivas not on religious ceremonies, but gambling. Tewa sees again what's happening and sends down Spider Grandmother once more. She says that all people of good heart, or one-hearted people, since Powakas are called two hearts, should leave immediately. They don't know what's in the next world above, so a catbird is sent to investigate. What he finds when he makes it to the fourth world are fields of squash, melons, and corn, and a single simple house made of stone. Sitting in front of it is the ghastly-looking Masawa. The catbird asks for permission for the people to come up and join him, and Masawa says yes, if they're willing to live simply. The people don't know how to reach the fourth world since they can't fly the way the catbird did, so Spider Grandmother sends for her two grandsons, who after several tries gets a bamboo plant to grow high enough to reach the sky of the third world, the floor of the fourth. Before they start their climb, Spider Grandmother tells the people that they must learn to distinguish between good and evil. The Powakas must be left behind in the third world, and when the people reach the fourth one, they must learn to be really and fully human. After a hard climb, the people make it, and a mockingbird sorts the people out as they emerge from the slit, or sipapuni, as they called it, into the new world, into separate peoples the Hopi, the Navajo, the Apache, the Paiutes, the Zuni, and so on. Later additions to the story include the Sioux and even white people. Spider Grandmother helps them make a moon and sun and get them into the air. At this point, the choice of Spider Grandmother as a people's helper becomes clear, since as a spider, she lives below the ground in a chamber like a kiva, from which she emerges from a slit like a sepapuni. She's thus the perfect guide for people experiencing a similar journey. At this point, a more conventional trickster than Masawa comes by. It's Coyote, who's of course hungry. He finds the stuff people have been using to make the sun and moon, none of which is edible. So in disgust, he throws it up into the sky and it scatters to become the stars. He finds a group of paint pots, which he also throws about, since he can't eat them either, thus coloring the rocks and buttes of the desert, which becomes the painted desert. Not long after emerging from the Sipapuni, the Hopi chief's son dies. Suspecting sorcery, the chief makes a ball of cornmeal, throws it in the air, and it lands on a young woman, identifying her as the Poaka. The people prepare to throw her back down into the third world, but she invites the chief to look down into the slit where he sees his son playing with other children. She tells him that that's the way it will be from now on. When anyone dies, he or she will go down into the underworld among the other dead. About the Powaka herself, the people decide that since the fourth world has already been contaminated by her presence, that evil will always be in it, whatever they do now, that she can stay. 
but when the group scattered to find places to live, she's forbidden to go with any of them. After they are all gone, she could decide what she wants to do. Before all the separate people separate, they hold a great feast. At the feast, various kinds of corn are laid out for each people to take with them when they start their migrations. When they find a place where their corn will grow, they'll know that they've arrived. Whether by choice or chance, the Navajos, Utes, and Apaches get the longest ears, leaving only the short blue ones for the Hopi. They understand that the blue corn means a lot of hard work, but it also promises a long and a harmonious life. That's how they became the people of the blue corn. Before the Hopi leave, Grandmother Spider covers up the Sipapuni with water, so they will never find it again. Then she tells them that they'll have a long time of wandering before them. They will build many villages and grow their crops, but they will also move on, leaving marks on the rocks so that other people will know that they've been there. She reminds them that they are living in the land of Masawa, so that they will always live in the presence of death. She sums up for them by telling them that they must always remember that they came from a lower world with a purpose. They must put a small sip of puni in the floor of each kiva to remind themselves of where they came from. She also teaches them songs to sing so they remember how the sun and moon were made and how the peoples parted from each other. She ends with a warning. If they forget why they came into the world, they will lose their way, disappear into the wilderness, and be forgotten. The story of the migration or the migration part of the Hopi story is a long and complex one with many twists and turns and setbacks. Over and over again, one clan settles in a location where they could grow their short blue corn and build their villages. But they have brought evil with them from the third world in the person of the Powaka, and again and again, evil undermines the harmony of a place. The people grow corrupt, the rain stops, and then they have to move on again. There is archaeological evidence for a vast pattern of migrations, with clans on the move almost all the time, their roots crossing and crisscrossing each other. Sometimes a village lasted for many years, sometimes only for a few, despite the efforts of the people in creating their fields and building their towns. There were probably many reasons for all this movement. Some of it, at least toward the end of the 13th century, probably had to do with the long and terrible drought that happened then and sent many peoples off in a southward movement. But in the stories that they tell about themselves, the cause is always what Harold Courlander in his book, Hopi Voices, calls the flight from evil and the search for harmony. It's the theme already of their emergence myth in which people have to leave the third world because of the Powakas, who use medicine for evil purposes. When they climb through the Sipapuni to the fourth world, Grandmother Spider tells them that they must leave behind the evil ones lest they contaminate the new world above. But when they arrive, they discover too late that a Powaka has come up with them anyway, so the people will always be plagued by loss of respect for the elders, dissension, and adultery, by what Grandmother Spider calls forgetting the meaning of things. And it's this, in the stories at any rate, that causes the abandonment of villages and emigration to a new place where people can start over with a fresh awareness of the need to live decently and properly. The other value that 
keeps coming up again and again in the migration stories is the need for hard work in a hard land. The Hopi knew from their choice of the small blue corn that theirs would always be a life of hard work. But they also believed that there were crucial virtues associated with such a life. For one, by choosing land that was full of rugged cliffs, sand, and little water, no one else would covet what they had, and they would be safe from human predators. But even more importantly, hard work would prevent the kind of moral deterioration that came with easy living. One example from their migration myths can illustrate this point. Once several clans combined forces to build a village called Palatkopi. It was a good place. The rains were predictable, the rivers never ran dry, and there was plenty of game. Just because of all this goodness, however, the elders got worried. Slowly, as life got better, the people forgot the big question. Why are we here? What are we supposed to be doing? And as the elders had feared, evil slowly began to take over the place, and there were the usual symptoms. Adultery, gambling in the kivas, neglecting prayer sticks. When things had gotten pretty much out of hand, the chief chose his nephew, disguised him, had him attach a deer horn to his head, and had him run around the village four times, and then climb to the highest roof where he managed to breathe fire, looking very like Masau, the god of death. But instead of taking this warning seriously, the people ambushed him and killed him. He went willingly to his death, asking only that they bury him with a spike from a deer horn still attached to his head and to leave one hand unburied. They killed him and buried him as he asked. The unburied hand had the thumb folded into his palms and four fingers pointing upward. The next morning, there were only three fingers pointing upward. The next morning, there were two. The next morning, one. The fourth morning, there were none. By now, even the most profligate and debauched person in the village knew that something serious was happening. But what? Then the earth began to shake, the walls of the buildings came crashing down, and the sky released torrents of rain. As the waters rose from the grave of the chief's nephew came the head of a great water serpent. On the back of its head was a single horn. Everyone ran for higher ground and frantically started making prayer sticks, which they gave to two children to take to the water monster as a peace offering. The water monster greeted the two children kindly. He told them that he was their uncle and took them to a kiva beneath the water. There he took off his monster skin in a move that we're used to by now, and he hung it up, revealing that underneath he was a human man. He kept them with him for several days, teaching them songs and ceremonies and how to make special prayer sticks so that the water monster would bring the rains. But he told them that these ceremonies wouldn't by themselves be enough. The people also have to be good, hospitable to strangers, and they should do no injury to each other. They should live together in peace, as all creatures ought to do. They should take care of and respect the elderly defend the village when they must, but never seek out war. That, he told them, is the true Hopi way and a large part of what Grandmother Spider had been saying about the people's true purpose all along. On the fourth day, he took the children back to the now deserted village 
and had them take a piece of skin from the water monster's neck. He had become the monster again, which should be used to rub the prayer sticks at the winter ceremonies. The children then left to catch up with their parents and the other other villagers and reported what they had been told. Because by now, convinced that they had lost the way, all the people, clan by clan, were on the road again, looking for a place where they could start over and this time try to remember all that Grandmother Spider had taught them. Part of the meaning of life that the Hopi worked hard to remember was the pervasiveness of death. It's a brilliant idea, I think, that in their emergence story, the figure who sits at the sip of puni between the third world and this one, ours, the fourth, is the Lord of Death, who owns everything in the fourth world and must be asked for permission for the people to come to his land. Death isn't a punishment for the Hopi. It's more like a condition of life in this fourth world. But it's also connected in some way with witchcraft with the first Powaka who came with them into this world. She seems in some way to have caused the death and to have saved herself from being thrown back into the third world by pointing out to the chief that his son lived on down in that third world where all people would go after they died. The Hopi, in fact, did believe in a life after death, and they also believe that if death is a part of life, it's also a part that nourishes life itself. That part of their story is expressed in the figures known as the Kachinas, who were both rain deities and the spirits of their departed ancestors, and hence connected with the creation of death itself. In one of their own stories, the Hopi discover the Kachinas when they notice strange beings moving around the foot of the San Francisco peaks in Arizona. They send a young warrior with prayer sticks to the mountain. There he discovers a sip of puni that leads to a kiva. From inside it, a voice invites him to enter. There he encounters a figure who says that he's an immortal spirit who lives under the mountains. But then, a frightening figure with a long black face, a long snout, and dangerous-looking teeth enters. He says that he's a kachina, and the warrior recognizes him as one of the figures they've seen prowling around the mountain. The young warrior gives him prayer sticks, which please him, and then they sit to talk, the kind of thing one does in a kiva. They come to an agreement that if the people pray to them and offer them prayer sticks, the kachina would form rain clouds on the top of the mountains. The Hopi expressed their beliefs about kachinas in important rituals each year. They believed that kachinas lived in the underworld beneath the San Francisco peaks. Then, no longer in bodily form, the Hopi gave them temporary bodies in the form of masked dancers who performed the rites and ceremonies honoring them. At the winter solstice, the Kachinas left their underground homes and moved to the mesas, where they occupied the bodies of the elders and dancers. When they arrived, they brought the rains. The Hopi knew when they were coming because they formed rain clouds on top of the mountains and then came marching down the slopes to join the annual ceremonies. They remained in spirit until July. Just before the summer solstice, they returned to the mountains, carrying messages from the living to their dead ancestors. The last part of the annual ceremonies was a grand going-home dance. Edwin Birnbaum, in his book Sacred Mountains of the World, gives first-hand accounts of the dancers who wear the elaborate masks of the Kachina 
and who for half of each year get to be the bodies of their ancestors. Each dancer admits to being taken over in some way by the kachina when the mask is put on and feeling a part of some power greater than himself. He becomes someone else. During the time of the year when the kachinas were thought to be inside the mountain, the Hopi went on pilgrimages to these mountains to make offerings at shrines along the way. The elders and priests went all the way to the top where they communed with their ancestors and prayed to the kachinas. So in one way, the kachina part of the Hopi story ties together their awareness of death, their belief that life continues after death, their belief that death contributes to ongoing life, and the comfort of being able still to communicate with ancestors who have died. Whenever we talk about the Hopi, someone always asks about Coco Pelli, so let me say one or two things about him here. He's not a Kachina, but he was and is a fertility figure taken over by the Hopi. He's the hunchback flute player who by now has become a symbol for the Southwest generally, gracing an amazing array of places and products from baseball caps to shopping centers, from, from tires to jewelry. He's older than the Hopi. He dates back to the time of the Anasazi, and he's found on rock drawings from 2,000 years ago. His origins are obscure, and there are many stories about him, some of which feature him as a trickster figure. The lump on his back may be a peddler's pack, suggesting that he may have been a trader carrying goods and news from village to village. But in some stories, it's also really a hunched back, and there are stories of him seducing village maidens into sex, despite his deformity. The hump on his back, in some stories, becomes a baby, which he delivers to a woman, and in that role, unmarried girls were warned to stay clear of him. His flute, in other stories, is the announcement of the coming of spring, and thus his associations with the annual rains. He originally was ithophallic, that is, portrayed with a very large sex organ, which enhanced his status as a fertility figure, not just for humans, but for animals as well. In some places, it's his figure that people see in the moon, where others see a rabbit or a face. Today, stripped of many of his older attributes, he's probably most often associated with dance and song, and with pizzas. I actually had a pizza once in Arizona in a restaurant called the Coco Pelli. The humpback figure has come a long way from delivering babies or rain or the spring to schlepping pizzas. For the Hopi, as for most other Native Americans, everything is related to everything else. The cosmos is a giant gestalt, and everything flows in multiple directions. So when people grow evil, the rains stop. Prayer sticks and remembering where we came from and what we're here for, and rain, and the hard work of raising blue corn are all intimately connected. And maybe because of the challenges their environment set before them, the Hopi were, like virtually all Native Americans, intensely aware that individualism has to be set aside for the life-giving security of the community, a subject addressed by Sigmund Freud in his Civilization and its Discontents. Powakas are always rampant individualists who see life in private, subjective ways. When they manage to corrupt a village, horrid antisocial crimes take over, and then a village has to be abandoned and life has to be started all over again to bring it back to its communal roots. 
But the Hopi vision is also an optimistic one. For they and all of us, whatever clan we belong to, emerge together from the same sepapuni. And if, as it happened, a Powaka came with us, we're all called upon by Grandmother Spider to work together to combat the evil we accidentally brought with us. And we have on our side the Sun Spirit himself, who felt compassion for us when we were living like beasts in a grimy underworld and sent Grandmother Spider and her grandsons to help us. And we also have on our side our ancestors, who every year come down from the mountains to be with us, to bring us the rains, and to help us make sure that our hardworking and simple lives are lived in harmony with each other, with all of nature, and with the powers that lie beyond us. This lecture is titled, Native American Tricksters. The Okanagan people from what is now the United States Northwest tell a story about Coyote. Once when Coyote was totally out of food, he went to visit Kingfisher and said, I'm hungry, what's to eat? Kingfisher didn't really want to feed Coyote, especially after such an abrupt greeting, but he had his son get three willow sticks and heat them in the fire. Then he bent them and tied them to his belt. He flew to the top of his lodge and from there swooped down to the river. It was frozen over, but he dived into a hole in the ice. When he came back up out of the hole, there was a fish on each willow stick. After eating, Coyote said that Kingfisher must come and eat with him the next day. Kingfisher tried to turn down the invitation, but when Coyote insisted, he agreed to come. So the next day, Kingfisher showed up, and Coyote asked his son to get three willow sticks and heat them in the fire. Then he bent them and put them on his belt and climbed to the roof of his lodge. His wife asked him what in the world he was doing, but Coyote said he'd often done this before. He was just getting food for Kingfisher. He jumped off the roof of the lodge down toward the river, but he missed the hole in the ice. He broke his neck and was killed instantly. Kingfisher had been watching all this, and now he walked over to Coyote, took the three hooks from his belt, and jumped into the hole. A few moments later, he came up with fish. Then he stepped over Coyote four times, and Coyote came back to life. Coyote took the fish home to his wife and told her that he had caught them the way Kingfisher did. He added that Kingfisher was afraid of Coyote's power and had told him never to try fishing that way again, since Kingfisher was worried about how strong Coyote's medicine or power or magic was. The Coyote family had a good dinner that night. That's a trickster story that has many sides of Coyote in it. He tries to show off by doing something he can't do, and he gets killed. But then he recovers, and he gets the food, which is what he was really after in the first place, and he gets it without having to work for it. Then he brags to his wife about his strong medicine. The trickster is the most popular character in Native American myths. There are likely more stories about him than about anyone else. He isn't, of course, exclusive to North American tales. Many of us may have encountered him in characters like Till Eulenspiegel from German folk tales, or Reynard the Fox, a medieval European trickster, or even Mr. Toad of Toad Hall from Wind in the Willows. He also occurs in the myths of other cultures. He's Loki in Norse tales, 
Hermes in Greek myths, Anansi in West Africa, Susa Noo in Japan, Maui in Hawaii. But in most of these myths, he's a secondary character in a story about someone and something else. In North America, he frequently gets top billing. In most other parts of the world, with the partial exception of Africa, he's also more or less human, while in North America, he's either an animal or can take an animal form at will. He's rabbit in the southeast and some parts of the northeast. He's coyote on the plains and in the southwest. He's Iktomi the spider in parts of the plains. And in the northwest, he's raven, blue jay, or mink. Whatever shape he takes, he's always a lively character. Richard Erdos and Alfonso Ortiz, in their book, American Indian Trickster Tales, say this about him, quote, Of all the characters in myths and legends told round the world through the centuries, courageous heroes, scary monsters, rapturous virgins, it's the trickster who provides the real spark in the action. Always hungry for another meal, swiped from someone else's kitchen, always ready to lure someone else's wife into bed, always trying to get something for nothing, shifting shapes and even sex, getting caught in the act, ever scheming, never remorseful, end quote. Gerald Ramsey, in his book, Reading the Fire, adds that the trickster is always also full of energy, is impossible to kill, and is the perpetual enemy of domesticity, of growing up, of good citizenship, of modesty and faithfulness. Some of these qualities are on display in the Okanagan story we just looked at. But what's really striking about the trickster in Native American myths is that he's also a culture hero, one of those who helps to finish off the work of creation and helps to establish the skills and materials and institutions and ceremonies and traditions that allow a people to survive. He always has special powers or strong medicine, as it's often called. He steals fire and gives it to people. He tames the sun into its 24-hour circuit. He creates rivers and streams and stocks them with fish. And he kills monsters. And all of this is managed by a buffoon, a clown, someone who half the time winds up dead or in a pile of manure because he was too clever by half. It's this combination of seemingly incompatible qualities that makes the trickster such an interesting and intriguing character. Prometheus steals fire in Greek myths, but he's certainly not a clown, at least not in Aeschylus' play, Prometheus Bound. But in Native American stories, the same character who steals fire and gives it to humans eats too many of the wrong kind of berries then passes wind so violently that he has to hang on to something to keep from getting blown up into the sky, who then defecates so abundantly that he has to climb a tree to keep above the growing pile, who then of course loses his hold on the tree and falls into it, and next, blinded by his own dung, he bangs into trees all the way to the river into which he jumps in to try to wash himself clean. It's an amazing combination. Quite a few of the culture heroes we've already met are, in fact, also tricksters. Raven's brother, the one who gets himself reborn as Raven's son and then puts the sun back in the sky, is such a figure for the Inuit. Nanabushu of the Ojibwa is as much a trickster as a culture hero. For the Crow people, Coyote is a full-scale trickster, but he also creates much of the world. 
And Iktomi, the Sioux trickster, is responsible both for good and for ill for the way the world turned out. The Nez Perce coyote brings death into the world by being his usual impulsive self. And the Navajo coyote messes up what would have been an orderly pattern of the stars, and he changes the world a lot in his pursuit of bear woman. Even the Hopi had a, a trickster, although he was a fairly grim one. Masawa, like the other tricksters, can change shape and switch back and forth from human to animal. And like the others, he's eager to find a way to get a maiden into his blanket. What makes Masawa seem a little less like a trickster in relation to those of other peoples is that he lives so austerely and is also the lord of death. But there are enough stories of him as lecher, thief, and liar that he is a member of the club, even though he may be its most solemn member. One explanation for this odd combination of culture hero and rogue and fool is that whatever the trickster accomplishes as a culture hero, whether for good or ill, isn't a result of wanting to help or harm humans. What he does, he does for personal reasons, because that's who he is. That's the kind of thing he would do. He never has any great overarching plan or any kind of blueprint to guide him. He just does what comes to mind, what strikes him as interesting or fun or useful for his purposes at that moment. Claude Lévi-Strauss, the French anthropologist, calls him a bricoleur, that is, a fix-it person, a tinker, who takes whatever materials are available and patches them together in whatever ways strike him at that moment. His motives are always personal and his plans ad hoc. Sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. Sometimes others benefit from what he does and sometimes they're harmed. His stories can be and often are funny, but the fun is partly serious because much of what he does has consequences for us and consequences at that that weren't planned out or anticipated by the trickster when he did whatever it was that he did. Most often, his actions are motivated by his two great hungers for food and sex. More than one trickster appears with a penis so large that it has to be carried in a box and intestines so big that they have to be wrapped around his body, great symbols for his two great appetites. As to why Native American tricksters should so often be animals or appear as animals when they wish, we've noticed that Native American attitudes about the relationship between animals and humans were very different from those of the old world. The same is true of attitudes in Africa, the other place where the trickster is most often associated with an animal. Native Americans thought that animals are a lot more like us than we do, that they have binds and wills and counsels, that they have to be dealt with in more or less the same ways we deal with each other. The gap between humans and animals for them wasn't such a large one. And it's why in so many stories characters can slide back and forth from human to animal or vice versa. Also, most trickster tales occur in mythic times, before there were people or just after people have arrived. And most Native Americans believed that back then there was even less difference between animals and humans than there is now, so they could change their appearance at will. Levi Strauss has argued that the trickster occupies a mediating position between extremes or mutually incompatible positions. One of the ways that works is in seeing the trickster as a mediator between animal and human, finding 
a way easily to fit into either role and moving back and forth between them. We might also ask why particular animals turn up as tricksters in Native American stories. Coyote, raven, rabbit, mink, blue jay, spider. All trickster animals, according to Michael P. Carroll, in an article about tricksters entitled The Trickster as Selfish Buffoon and Culture Hero, are loners, he says, the opposite of gregarious. This is especially true of the coyote and the spider. A spider spends only two brief times in its lifetime in the company of other spiders, at birth and in mating. Zoologists tell us that coyotes used to run in packs like wolves, but they adapted by becoming solitary hunters who are much more successful working alone than together. The coyote is also swift and crafty and eats almost anything. One of its tricks is to pretend to be dead in order to lure scavengers, which it then kills and eats. There are, in fact, a lot of stories about coyote as trickster in which he uses just this ploy to get something he wants. In one Navajo story, Coyote pretends to have drowned in a flash flood and washed up in the middle of a prairie dog colony. He even uses seeds to make it look like he's covered with maggots. The prairie dogs invite ground squirrels and rabbits and other small prey animals to hold a great dance over his body, at which point he jumps up and kills enough of them for a good meal. We can understand why a trickster needs cunning. It's his stock in trade, his way of surviving in the world. But he also needs to be a loner because the trickster is never really a part of a community, even if it sometimes happens that he marries and has children and lives in a village. He's always an outsider on the road, living outside the laws and rules and structures that bind the rest of us. Lewis Hyde, in his excellent book on tricksters called Trickster Makes This World, describes the trickster this way, quote, All tricksters are on the road. They are lords of in-between. A trickster does not live near the hearth. He does not live in the halls of justice, the soldier's tent, the shaman's hut, the monastery. He passes through each of these when there is a moment of silence, and he enlivens each with mischief, but he is not their guiding spirit. He is the spirit of the doorway leading out and of the crossroad at the edge of town, the one where a little market springs up. He is the spirit of the road at dusk, the one that runs from one town to another and belongs to neither. End quote. Physically, the trickster lives outside community, outside the village, the family, the clan, the nation. But he also lives outside the moral and ethical boundaries that define a culture. He gets around eventually to defying every rule, breaking every taboo, challenging every customary way of doing things. He sleeps with his daughters and his mother and his mother-in-law. He kills his relatives. He chooses his bride from out of the menstrual lodge where women are supposed to be absolutely sequestered, a huge taboo. He commits adultery whenever he can. He steals, he lies, he cheats. And when it's time for a reckoning, he's already on the road again, out of town, he never stays around to take responsibility for anything he does. But still, in spite of all this, he's sacred. He's semi-divine. He's a culture hero. And Native Americans told his stories to each other and to their children with obvious relish. 
We've been talking mostly about coyote, but what's true for coyote is true for other tricksters as well. Raven was the trickster of the Inuit and the Northwestern peoples. For agricultural peoples, ravens can be nuisances, pests, but neither the Inuit nor the Northwestern fisherfolk were farmers, so they could appreciate the bird's intelligence, its seeming sense of humor, and fun, and its look of wisdom. Rabbit, with his busy, busy sexual life, made good trickster material, and the spider could trap its prey in complicated webs spun from its own body. All of them seem capable of devious behavior, which is a great asset for a trickster. A lot of trickster stories are told just for fun, like the one about Rabbit told by the Hachidi, who lived in what's now Georgia in southeast United States. In this one, Rabbit has his eye on two pretty daughters of an old man who raises pigs. The old man complains that his pigs are disappearing. One day, Rabbit calls the old man, who finds Rabbit holding on to a pig's tail, the rest of the pig seemingly having disappeared into the ground. The old man says he'll hold the tail while Rabbit goes to get a hoe and a shovel to dig out the pig. Instead, Rabbit goes to the house and tells the young girls that their father had told him to make love to both of them. They say they aren't sure they could believe him, so he calls out to the farmer, who's still holding on to that pig's tail, Did you say both? The old man hollers back, Yes, I said both. Of course, he's talking about the hoe and shovel, not his daughters, but the daughters are convinced and do the obedient thing. After a while, the old man gets bored holding on to the pig's tail, so he gives it a tug to see what will happen. He winds up with a pig's tail in his hand, since that's all there ever was of that pig, its tail buried just enough to make it look as though the pig were making its way into the ground. By the time he gets to the house, Rabbit has finished with the daughters and is long gone. The old man is angry, and he promises serious punishment if he can ever catch Rabbit. Now, that story's provenance may be European. The pigs seem unusual for a Native American story, but Southeastern peoples did try to emulate European farming techniques, so maybe they tried some pig raising, too. Anyway, even if the story came from somewhere else, the Hichidi told it, and it was collected from them, and it nicely illustrates the trickster's character and mode of operation. In many stories like this, he winds up being not quite clever enough, or sometimes he overcomplicates his trick and winds up getting hoist with his own patar. But in this one, he gets the better of the old farmer and his daughters and gets what he wants without going about it in the usual way. But if some trickster stories were told just for fun, others negotiate that tricky combination of trickster and culture hero. A very famous one is about Raven stealing the sun. This one is from the Haida, who live on islands off the coast of British Columbia and Alaska. In the mythic age, Raven blundered around in the total darkness of Earth. It was so dark that it was hard to get around, let alone find food, since all the light in the world was held by a man who lived in a house by a river with his daughter. Where exactly the house was, or what kind of being he was, the story doesn't say. Eventually, Raven stumbled upon the house where the man and his daughter lived, and he decided to try to steal the light. The first difficulty was that he couldn't find the house's door. There didn't seem to be one, and whenever Raven waited on one side of the house for the people to come out, they'd exit out the other side. 
So he'd wait on that side the next time, and then they'd emerge from another door on some other side. Remember that this all happened in total darkness. So he watched to see where the daughter went when she left the house, and he discovered that every day she went to the river for water. So he waited for her there. One day he decided what to do. He changed himself into a tiny hemlock needle. He put himself in the water, and he floated into the waterproof basket she was filling. Next, he had to make sure that she was the one who swallowed the needle. He managed that, and after a time, the daughter inexplicably found herself pregnant. It was totally dark inside the house, too, so the father wasn't aware of his daughter's pregnancy until there was suddenly a baby in the house, his grandchild. The baby, we're told, was kind of odd-looking, with a long nose that looked a lot like a beak and the occasional feather here and there. But, of course, it was still dark, so no one could see the baby anyway. The grandfather became very fond of the child, and he indulged him in every way except for letting him play with a series of boxes in which the light was kept. But once the baby found out that he couldn't have that, that stack of boxes was the only thing he wanted. He cried all day, his voice sounding, we're told, like a combination of all the noises of a spoiled child and that of an angry raven. The outermost in the series of boxes was the largest, and the innermost one was very small, but only the innermost one contained the light. So after putting up with the baby's complaints for a long time, the grandfather finally consented to let him play with the outermost box. Then, after a time, he let the baby play with the next one and the next one, until there were only a few small boxes left, at which point a strange radiance began to fill the house. Then the baby begged to be able to play with the light itself. Again, after a time, the grandfather gave in. He took a shining ball from the smallest box and tossed it to his grandson. At once, the baby changed into a raven and flew out through the smoke hole, holding in his beak the brilliant light. The world was instantly transformed as light poured over it for the first time. In one ending to this story, Raven was attacked while he was flying by by an eagle, an eagle who for the first time could actually see what he was hunting. In dodging the eagle, Raven dropped half of the light he was carrying, and when it hit the ground, it shattered into one large piece and many small ones. They bounced up into the sky to become the moon and stars. When Raven let go of the last piece, out beyond the rim of the world, it floated up into the sky to become our sun. In a different version of the story, a Tlingit one from the northwest coast of northern British Columbia, Alaska, and the Yukon Territory, Raven brought the light still in its box to a river where people were fishing in the dark. There he was annoyed by all the noise they were making, and he wanted them to be less noisy, or, he said, he would release the light. He let some of it fall on them, and they made still more noise, partly from astonishment and partly because they were afraid of the light. So Raven released all of it, and the terrified people ran helter-skelter to try to get away from it. As they ran, they turned into various kinds of animals, seals, bears, and birds. Raven then sent Chicken Hawk out to sea to fetch fire and bring it back to the remaining people. He also told them that some animals would always be their friends, especially since quite a few of the animals had formerly been human. Raven is clearly a culture hero in these stories. 
He brings both light and fire to the people, and along the way, he helps to create some useful animals. But it's important to notice that he doesn't do any of this as a favor to people. He does it because he's tired of bumping around in the dark, and he's annoyed by all the noise people make when he brings the light. His motives are purely personal. There are consequences, some of which are useful to people, but Raven isn't working from any kind of plan or grand scheme. He just does stuff, and then other stuff happens, some good and some bad. Frequently, the trickster is the one who brings death into the world. We've seen how Nanabushu and Coyote and Masawa have done this for the Ojibwa, the Nez Perce, and the Hopi, and there are many other such stories. But if the trickster sometimes does good things for people without actually intending it, so he sometimes does bad things too. The tricksters who bring death to humans mostly don't really intend to. It just happens as a result of something the trickster has done on a whim or for some personal reason. So, what can we make of this amazing and complicated character? I've already mentioned Claude Lévy-Strauss, who sees the trickster as a mediator, occupying a place between two poles, making him necessarily an ambiguous character. What he does is to hold together extreme or even mutually incompatible positions to keep them from flying apart or canceling each other out. In a way, he allows us to have our cake and to eat it too. He, in fact, mediates many things. The trickster always stands halfway between culture and nature in that he can play roles in a village, father, husband, chief, medicine man, but then he could leave the village and revert to being a natural creature in a natural environment. He can do this in part because he's an animal or can switch back and forth between being human and being animal and thus has two entirely different kinds of behavior available. We still don't find it comfortable all the time to live simultaneously in society and in nature, but for Native Americans the issue was even more complicated than it is for us because they still live so much closer to the natural world than we do. Insofar as the trickster is partly childlike, he can mediate between the way we were and the way we are now. When we were children, we were fixated at oral and anal stages, as the trickster still is. And we behaved in ways that from a grown-up point of view were primitive and uncouth. Both as individuals and as a society, we've grown up since then. And we can now measure how far we've come in watching children and in telling trickster tales. The trickster is also a mediator between the demands of the community and the demands of the self. As we've noticed, virtually all Native American cultures were group-oriented. Their ethical and behavioral rules always favored the group over the individual. The individual's impulses had to be suppressed for the good of the clan. This wasn't an arbitrary choice. Survival frequently depended on the group sticking together and caring more for the corporate body than the individual one. When Native Americans listened to the trickster tales, they could see that his irresponsibility and selfishness usually gets him into trouble, and his humiliation and embarrassment reaffirmed the rules by which they lived. In laughing at what happens to him for breaking the rules, the importance of those rules can be reinforced. And to some extent, this is true of all cultures in all times and places. Society always works for the greatest good of the greatest number, 
But it can do this only if individuals restrain some of their impulses for the good of others. We'd perhaps like to cheat or steal or commit adultery or lie or do whatever we want. But we know that to do these things would tear the social fabric apart. Trickster stories reminded Native Americans of these truths, too. Because tricksters are characters who don't obey the rules, who violate all the taboos from incest to cannibalism, who never put the social order ahead of their own needs and desires. Insofar as they're like that, their stories remind us how important our prohibitions are, why we have to have them. But at the same time, they also give us a temporary vacation from them, if only a vicarious one. The embarrassments and punishments earned by tricksters in the stories make us feel better about the way we have to live. But we can also, for a few minutes, until the boom gets lowered on coyote or rabbit or raven, feel what it must be like to do what we want, not what we have to. It's a temporary release from our normal duties and selves. That's what Sigmund Freud concluded in his work on the discontents of civilization. Civilization, he said, always demands the curtailment of our primitive and infantile energies. We learn to curb them to make it possible for us to live together. Freud was thinking primarily of sexual energy, but sex can be a metaphor for all the things we want to have and do. And it works particularly well with the trickster, since sex is one of the things he always wants and he's willing to break all the rules to get what he's after. The trickster can mediate between our infantile impulses and the restraints civilization imposes on them because he's both childlike in his pursuit of his own pleasure and a culture hero, one who makes civilization possible, a bringer of culture and civilization. It's another way in which trickster stories allowed Native Americans to have their cake and eat it too. The other thing that I think the trickster did for Native Americans was to remind them that the world isn't perfect. Sometimes the trickster gets punished for his misdeeds, but sometimes he doesn't. And he pretty much always enjoys what he gets with his tricks, whether it's a good meal or a night in bed with someone else's wife. He enjoys it whether he gets caught or not. Trickster stories aren't always moral. Sometimes he can outwit a giant or a monster, giving us hope that sometimes the weak can overcome the strong, but it doesn't always happen that way. Sometimes the giant kills the trickster, because that happens in the world too. For Native Americans, the world was a good place, but it wasn't perfect. How could it be, cobbled together as it was, at least in part, by a trickster? And that this is so was another reminder to stay disciplined to maintain loyalty to the clan, to do the right thing. The trickster was seen at the heart of everything so that it made sense that the world in which Native Americans lived was sometimes imperfect, sometimes illogical, sometimes unfair. As Gerald Ramsey put it, puts it in his book, Reading the Fire, whose comments on the trickster I've been following here, Native Americans knew all of this about their world and still found it pretty good, considering... Good enough, anyway. It's a world. Our world. The trickster taught people a lot and gave people a lot, but he didn't finish things properly. Much of what he did was foolish, and he was selfish, vain, boastful. Native Americans always knew that trickster was out there, on the road somewhere, going somewhere, getting away with something, 
not getting away with something, getting humiliated, getting killed, while at the same time always partly defining, actually creating the world in which they lived. In all of these ways, the trickster did a lot of work in Native American myths, and he allowed Native Americans to embrace the world with all of its faults as well as all of its opportunities. This lecture is titled, The Maya and the Popol Vuh. With this lecture, we move from North to Central and South America, and despite their common origins and many shared stories, the peoples in these parts of the world, at least those we know the most about, the Maya, the Aztecs, and the Incas, seem different from their cousins to the North. There were, and still are, peoples living in parts of Brazil, say, whose lives weren't that much different from those of the natives of North America. But the three great cultures of Mesoamerica and South America were different. They were city-based. They had monumental architecture. They farmed and terraced and irrigated and waged war and collected and dominated subject peoples in a way that seems to us more like the early empires of the old world than it does like the cultures of the buffalo hunters or the Pueblo dwellers of the Southwest. And they were much wealthier than those cultures, too, with gold being what made their cities gleam and attracted Europeans for several centuries in search of imaginary cities like El Dorado. One of the most impressive of the series of civilizations in Mesoamerica before the coming of the Spanish was that of the Maya, who reached a particularly high level of achievement between 300 and 900 of the Common Era in what is now southern Mexico and Central America. They weren't the first to do so, nor were they the last before 1523 when the conquistador Pedro de Alvarado showed up, but their achievements were remarkable enough that along with the Aztecs, they're usually considered one of the two most important cultures of the region. Mesoamerica is a varied place running from deserts in the north to the rainforests of the south. It was also a slightly precarious place in terms of rainfall, sometimes getting way too much so that dry riverbeds became torrents and floods, and sometimes getting nothing, leaving everything parched and stricken with drought. There were also volcanoes and earthquakes. All of this instability no doubt contributed something to the myths of the people who lived here. But the Aztecs and the Maya, for example, saw creation not as a once-and-for-all event, but a series of trials and errors, each ended with some cataclysm. Both were also convinced that there would not be another one, so that the preservation of this earth and cosmos became an all-consuming effort. The peoples who lived in Mesoamerica were likely descendants of the Siberian immigrants who came across the Bering Strait during the last Ice Age and settled North America, although there have been theories about possible different peoples coming to the region from the Pacific. They seem to have reached Mexico and Central America by about 10,000 years ago, the date for the earliest archaeological sites that have so far been discovered. For a long while, they seem to have lived as hunter-gatherers in landscapes that would have been cooler and wetter than they have been since. They had domesticated at least the dog by that point. But around 7,000 BCE, Everything warmed up 
and grasslands that had been home to grazing animals changed either to desert or tropical jungle. Hunting in both cases became much more difficult. In response, peoples began developing farming skills and domesticating and cultivating plants that they had formerly harvested from the wild. The primary plant was maize or corn, but they also grew chili peppers and squash and other things. This happened about the same time that it did in the old world, but here it had to be done without such domesticated animals as pigs, cows, and sheep, and without any pack or draft animals, or the wheel for that matter. Without animals to pull them, Mesoamericans didn't invent wheeled carts, although interestingly there are miniature wheeled carts that look to us like toys, sometimes found in graves. But along with agriculture came other related skills, cotton and cloth weaving, baskets and pottery. And by about 1500 to 1200 BCE, the first large-scale and impressive civilization appeared in the jungles of Mexico's southern Gulf Coast, that of the Olmecs. After them, there was a series of others who spoke different languages and made their art in different ways, but all of them took up parts of the Olmec tradition, so that there's a surprising continuity of culture and religion. Many of the subsequent civilizations used a 260-day sacred calendar interconnected with a 365-day solar one. Many kept detailed and accurate astronomical charts and tables. Some used a hieroglyphic writing system. Most played a ball game resembling basketball, played with a solid rubber ball on a special court. There were gods and goddesses who made their way from one culture to another by changing their names. The big civilizations all had monumental architecture and ceremonial centers. Most shared the idea of the jaguar as the supreme predator and a feared deity. A tradition of warfare among individual cities and human sacrifice and bloodletting. They also shared many of their myths, which used the same or similar motifs, themes, and features. The Maya are of special interest to us because, in addition to the other artifacts they left behind, they gave us one of the most complete myth cycles in the Americas, a work called the Popol Vuh, which has an interesting story of its own. After the conquest of Mexico in 1521, the Spaniards moved next to what is now Guatemala, in 1524, Quiche, a city in the southern highlands that was populated by a powerful branch of the Mayan people, fell to the conquistadors. Many of the records kept there by the Maya were lost or destroyed. But by the 1530s, Spanish missionaries were learning the Quiche language and teaching the Latin alphabet to Mayan scribes. The purposes of this two-way language highway were political administration and an effort to convert the local people to Christianity. Somewhere between 1554 and 1558, some or several of these scribes wrote the Popol Vuh, which means something like council book. They wrote it in Quiche, but in Western alphabetic writing. The writer or writers suggest at the beginning of the book that their source was an older council book, a long piece of paper folded like a fan or a screen to make a book. The book would open up like an accordion. It contained pictures, pictographs, and some phonetic writing, and it would probably have served as a prompt book for the recitation of its contents. Whatever it was, that original book has never been found. 
The text that was written by the anonymous scribe or scribes in the middle of the 16th century has been lost too. But before it disappeared, it was copied by a Dominican priest, Francisco Jimenez, who made a book with two columns on each page, with the quiche text on the left column and a Spanish translation in the right. He made this copy early in the 18th century. That book survived for a long while in a monastery library and then a university library until it was discovered by two scholars. By now, it has been translated into more than 30 languages. It's been called the American Bible. In translation, it's usually divided into four or five parts. The first part deals with creation, or rather creations, since it tells of three attempts to make humans which don't work out, so that the creatures need to be destroyed or deflected into other life forms. The next two parts deal with the adventures of a pair of twins, culture heroes who rid the surface of the world of demons and monsters in part two, and then take on the powers of the underworld and the kingdom of the dead in part three. Part four gets us back to the creation of humans. The fourth try is successful, and so the new creatures get to witness the first dawn in history. All of the peoples of the world are present at this first rising of the new sun, but then in the last part of part four, it's called part five in some translations, that last part deals specifically with the Quiche people down to about 1550. The creation account at the beginning of the book opens with an empty sky and a still sea. At some point, the gods of the sea and gods of the sky start a dialogue about bringing the earth out of the water. They make what happens happen by saying the words. They first think of what they want, and then they say it. Suddenly, there are lands with mountains and rivers and streams, all floating like a platform on the primal sea, and the gods are pleased at the way it turned out. The gods have been planning for humans at the same time they were dreaming up the world. They want creatures who can work, talk, walk, go on pilgrimages to shrines, and make offerings. And they must be able to do all these things according to the calendar in due season. So the gods set out to make these new creatures. Their first attempt produces only animals who can make noise and move around, but who can't really talk, and they have no arms to do work or to feed the gods with sacrifices. So the gods send these creatures off into the canyons and forests to become food for the humans the gods now make a second attempt to create. The second time they produce a creature made of mud, it looks more like what they have in mind, but it's so soft that it keeps losing its shape and it can't make any articulate sounds. So they let this one dissolve and set out for the third time. This time they go to some older gods to get advice, and what they come up with are creatures made of wood. They can talk and multiply and do most of the things the gods have in mind, but they're also dry and bloodless. Even worse, they have no emotion, no soul, so they immediately forget about their creators and go their own way. There is no hope of getting praise and sacrifice out of them, so the gods decide to scrap this effort as well. This destruction turns out to be more difficult since the wooden people have been busy multiplying, so there are a lot of them around. The gods can't this time just send them off into the woods or let them dissolve. So they create a great flood. What falls from the sky is described as something like glue, 
to make doubly sure they're destroyed, the gods send demons to finish them off. And then in a kind of semi-comic nightmare, the entire earth and everything on it rises up to attack these dry, bloodless things. Their dogs attack them. So do their water jugs and tortilla pans and plates and cooking utensils and grindstones, getting even for how badly mistreated and misused they had been by these wooden people. Almost all of the people are wiped out. The few who survive are left behind as monkeys, so that when people see monkeys, they'll be reminded of what these wooden people fail to do and hence be reminded of what they need to do. At very least, the new people will have to have heart in all the meanings of that word. There are some interesting parallels here with one element in the Hopi emergence myth, and that's the idea that humans are created for specific reasons and purposes and tasks. Throughout their long migrations, Grandmother Spider kept reminding the Hopi that they had been created to be happy, yes, but also to honor and serve the gods. Over and over again in their travels, they get into trouble when they forget that, which also leads to all the kinds of misbehavior that ruins the harmony in which they're supposed to live. In the Maya story, the gods are very clear about wanting creatures who can talk, can learn, can repeat the names of the gods, who can work, who can feed the gods with praise and sacrifices, and keep the sacred calendar. Monkeys remind them of what they are or become when they forget this. In the next two parts of the Popol Vuh, we are concerned with the exploits of the trickster twins. They're more or less the equivalents of the monster-slaying brothers in the Navajo Dine Bahane, or the twin grandsons of Grandmother Spider in the Hopi emergence myth. They are two of the great culture heroes of the Maya, and partly tricksters too, since they win a lot of their contests with trickster kinds of deceptions. The Popol Vuh is organized topically rather than chronologically. All of the twins' above-ground exploits are in Part 2, and their underworld ones in Part 3. And what we have to do is to interleave these events with those in Part 1 in order to get them into proper chronological sequence. We'll see in a moment how to do that. Their first above-ground exploit is the defeat of a fabulously arrogant creature who claims to be the creator and source of all light, who claims, in fact, to be both the sun and the moon. This annoys the real creator gods, and so the boys set out to do something about it. They find the creature in the tree where he lives and shoot him with their blowgun, breaking his jaw. He falls from the tree, and the twins rush up to grab him. But the creature, who isn't dead, grabs one of the boy's arms and pulls it off the boy's body. That doesn't kill the boy. He and his brother are, after all, both divine and partly tricksters, the boys find an elderly couple and pretend to be their grandsons. Then they all go to visit the creature. The old couple tells him that they're doctors who can fix his jaw and tighten his loose teeth, which are troubling him a great deal. He agrees, but when they go to work on his jaw, they start by pulling all his teeth and replacing them with teeth made of corn. The creature dies of his injuries, and the boys retrieve the missing arm and reattach it. Dennis Tedlock, one of the world's authorities on the Popol Vuh, says that the original audience for this episode would have understood it in some specific ways. The creature's name was Seven Macaw, and the tale explains why the macaw, a kind of parrot, looks the way it does, 
with its seemingly broken, toothless jaw and white cheeks that turn red when excited. But the original council book from which the Popovu is drawn was also a star book, which would have tracked the movements of the heavenly bodies and been used to regulate the agricultural cycle as well as to determine astrological matters such as auspicious or inauspicious days. Here, Seven Makaw becomes, after his death, the seven stars of what we call the Big Dipper. In mid-July, his constellation is descending in the sky when night begins, and his descent marks the beginning of the hurricane season. That's woven into the plot of the story, since this would have happened just before the great flood that destroyed the wood people. So his fall out of the tree, or in star terms, his descent toward the horizon, marked the coming of the great flood. By mid-October, Seven Macaw is almost back up in the sky by morning, that is, back up in his tree in the story, and that means that the hurricane season is over. Thematically, it all fits together, since Seven Macaw pretended to be the sun and the moon, just as the wooden people pretended to be human. Both are wrong and arrogant, and both get their comeuppance in terms that incorporate the movement of the stars into ordinary life. There are more terrestrial adventures in Part 2. Then Part 3 takes the boys to do battle with the lords of death and the underworld. The story again requires some chronological adjusting from us, since it starts back a generation before the twins with the twins' fathers, who are themselves a pair of twins. All of this happens, remember, before there are any humans. Three efforts at making people so far have yielded only animals, a dissolving mud person, and the wooden people. The twins' fathers spend their time playing ball on a court that happens to be the roof of the underworld, and the noise of it, all the running and thumping and shouting, annoys the lords of the underworld, a place called Shabalba, until they invite the twins down to play a game with them on their court. This begins the most famous part of the book, whose episodes appear in all manner of Mayan art. The father twins travel to Jabalba, and for a while they do all right, but then they're put to a series of tests which they fail, and the lord of the underworld puts them both to death. One of the brothers is beheaded, and his head is hung as a trophy in a tree. The tree bears fruit for the first time, becoming a calabash tree whose fruit looks like a dried and hollowed-out human skull. Blood Moon, the maiden daughter of the Lord of the Underworld, goes to look at the strange tree. When she does, the skull of the beheaded brother spits in her hand, making her pregnant. We are led to understand that in some way both brothers are the father here. When Blood Moon's father discovers her pregnancy, he orders her killed, but she escapes to the upper world and convinces the slain twin's mother that she is really pregnant by the twins. In time, she gives birth to the twins, who killed seven Makaw. They will make the next journey to the underworld. As the boys grow up, they come to understand their destiny, and when they do, they retrieve their father's ball-playing equipment and, in time, become as adept at the game as their fathers were. Again, they annoy the underworld lords, and they too are summoned for a game down under. They follow in their father's steps, but they're trickier than their fathers were, and they also have a better sense of what they're in for. They manage actually to play a ball game with the lords of death. Their fathers never made it that far. 
But their challenges aren't yet over. A succession of harrowing tests culminates with having to spend a night in a dark house full of shrieking giant bats with knives for claws and teeth. The twins hide by making themselves small enough to fit inside their blowgun. But then one of the twins sticks his head out to see what's going on, and he gets it cut off by the bats. The head ends up on the ball court, and the underworld lords demand to play their game with it instead of the ball. The other twin manages to put a squash on his brother's shoulders as a replacement head, so the game goes on. But the twins have also recruited a rabbit to help them. So when one twin knocks the head into a pile of balls, the rabbit, who is hidden in the pile, runs out, and the Dark Lords chase it, thinking that it's the head. Meanwhile, the beheaded twin gets his head back, and the squash is put into play with some comic consequences. The boys finish off this contest with the Dark Lords by allowing themselves to be killed. The Death Lords grind up their bones and throw them into a river. But five days later, the boys are back to life as catfish, and the next day they have their own forms back again. They come to the Lords disguised as entertainers, whose big show climaxes when the one twin kills the other and then brings him back to life. The Lords are amazed and demand that the trick be played again, this time with some of them as the victims. The final big finish of the boys' entertainment this time happens when they kill some of the Lords and then don't bring them back to life. They announce to the remaining Lords that their power is broken. From henceforth, the offerings they receive will be very modest, and they will have to restrict their attacks on humans to those who are weak or sick or guilty of some terrible sin. What's clear in this story is that, in some important way, the Mayan culture heroes have won a victory over death and the kingdom of the dead. At very least, the power of the underworld is limited from here on, and offerings to its lords will be ordinary, commonplace, routine. For example, when Blood Moon, the daughter of the Lord of the Dead, makes her escape from Jabalba while pregnant with the twins, her father sends owls to kill her and bring back her heart. She talks the owls into bringing back a ball of sap instead. From now on, thanks to the twins, that will be the sacrificial gift to the gods of the dead, not a real human heart, but a heart-shaped ball of tree sap. But the victory may even mean more. The, fa the father twins are flummoxed by the lords of the dead, fall into their traps, and wind up dead, with one of their skulls hanging on the new calabash tree. But their sons survive all the tests and emerge victorious from the land of the dead. It's been suggested that the council book, which is the source of our Popol Vuh, functioned, among other things, as a kind of Mayan version of the Egyptian Book of the Dead, as a guide to getting through the pitfalls of the journey to the afterlife. At least that would be the case for the rulers, who would know from the story of the twins' tricks and victories what to expect, how to evade the traps laid for them, and how to defeat the powers of death. Well, the next part of the Popol Vuh takes us back to the creation of humans, that story that was broken off after the first part. The gods are still trying to decide what material to use when they hear from the fox, the coyote, and the parrot, and the crow about a mountain filled with yellow and white corn. An elderly goddess, who's also the younger twin's grandmother, grinds some of this corn and mixes it with water. That mixture becomes the substance of human flesh. 
Four men are created, and they turn out to be all that the gods had hoped for when they dreamed up creation and human beings. In fact, these four turn out to be a little too good. The newly created men are able, the gods notice, to see all the way to infinity. That is, they can see as far as the gods can. The gods are concerned. They had wanted creatures like themselves, but they also intended some distance between themselves and their creation. So they cloud the vision of their new creatures a little bit. The metaphor used is that after the limitation of their vision, humans now see the way we see in a mirror that's been clouded by fog. They can still do all the things the gods want them to do, but there's now a suitable distance between gods and humans. The gods go on to create four wives for the four men, and human history begins at that point. Everything is now ready except for the creation of the sun and moon. The real ones this time, not the phony ones of the braggart seven macaw. And the characters who become these supreme celestial bodies are the twin boys. As the sun and moon, they achieve the apotheosis of their adventures in the underworld, their hero's reward, their gift for helping to make Earth suitable for human habitation. The first sunrise is a dawning for all humans. The Popol Vuh traces the movements of peoples after the first creation until the time when there are many of them and they are scattered far and wide across the world. But as the Quiche, the Mayan people whose history is traced in the last part of the book, stand to watch the sun come up for the first time, they think of all of the other people of the world for whom this is the first sunrise too. Then the story changes from one about the gods to one about humans specifically about the Quiche up to 1550, about the time the Popol Vuh was written. There are migrations from place to place. There are dealings with other people. And one interesting account of how they came to practice human sacrifice. In mythic terms, the Quiche in their migrations have three particular tribal gods that they carry with them from place to place. The first sunrise, however, turns these figures into stone with its initial intense heat, the same heat that finally dried out the earth and made it solid rather than soft. And from then on, people make offerings of bark, flowers, and blood, which they've drawn from their own bodies, to these petrified forms. The gods can still speak to them, but only in spirit form. One of these gods is Tohil, god of fire. And he at some point tells the Quiche that they should supplement their own blood with that of deer and birds. This goes on for a while, but the people are now eyeing the other peoples of the region. Eventually, they start to capture them and to cut them open before their three gods. So Heel assures them that this isn't just okay, but these other peoples had actually contracted for this. Years ago, Tohil explains in another place a hailstorm had put out all the fires in the city. Tohil turned himself into a fire drill by pivoting on one leg, and he had provided new fires for his own people. When other tribes came to him for fire, he said that he would provide fire only if they promised one day to embrace him and be suckled by him. Now he reminds the Quiche that using tricks of language, he had really told them that in exchange for fire, he would have their hearts in sacrifice. When the other people 
figure out that their peoples are disappearing, not because of wild animals, but because they're being taken for sacrifice, they go to war with the quiche. With divine help, the quiche win, and the other peoples become permanent payers of tribute. The practice of human sacrifice, although the Maya here credit it to one of their gods, was in Mesoamerica well before the Maya. It was one of those cultural traditions that seems to have been passed from culture to culture as far back as we can reach. Roberta and Peter Markman, in their book, The Flayed God, tell us that archaeological evidence puts the practice back to at least 6,000 BCE. Its theory, which seems to have been passed down from one people to the next also, was that the gifts of the world of the spirit or of the gods had to be reciprocated with gifts from the world of nature. The Markmans suggest that the practice seemed plausible and even natural to architectural uh, agricultural people who saw death as the cause of life, since it must precede regeneration in the cyclical process through which the earth produced food that nourished humanity. The sacrifice of blood and life was an effort to assure that the process continued. Everyone in Mesoamerica seems to have done it, the story about Tohil is just the Mayan mythic explanation for why they did it. The Popol Vuh, in one way, is a story of a people, beginning with gods and then merging into history with the first sunrise. But for the Maya, it was much more than that. It was a kind of everything book filled with astronomy and notations on the transit of Venus and calendar lore about that amazing double tracking of time of the Mesoamericans. There is a 360-day solar year with five nameless days tacked on at the end, interlocking with the 260-day sacred calendar, like a larger and smaller wheel that mesh in such a way that a complete cycle of all possible combinations happens once every 52 years. The book tells about how things came to be and gives directions for how to do things and when to plant and harvest based on signs in the stars. The original screenfold book may have been full of the kinds of technical information that only a trained expert could interpret. What we have in our Popol Vuh is likely a transcription of a recitation by someone using the screen book as a guide and memory device. So ours is a series of good stories, many of which contain within them some of the technical data that pictographs and writing and pictures would have had in the council book. Toward the end of the book, the scribes tell us that the great kings of the people knew if and when there would be war, and everything was clear before their eyes. They knew if there would be death and hunger, or if there would be strife. They knew all of this and much more because it was all contained in a book called the Popol Vuh. As Dennis Tedlock says in his translation, the gods had dimmed the sight of the first four humans, so they could only see what was obvious and nearby. But the rulers had in their possession a seeing instrument that allowed them to see both far into the past and into the future. The instrument was this book. For us, it can't quite do all of these things, but it can give us a glimpse into the world of the Maya and help us to understand some of why they were the way they were, why they did things the way they did, and what their world looked like to them. So for us, it's a splendid seeing instrument, too.
This lecture is titled, Aztec Myth Meets Hernan Cortez. Like the Navajo in the Southwest, the Aztecs were latecomers to the Valley of Mexico. There had been a succession of civilizations in what is now Mexico and Guatemala and Honduras and the Yucatan Peninsula. But one by one, for reasons that still aren't entirely clear, a series of impressive cities in that region were abandoned or destroyed. Some of them, Teotihuacan and Tula, for example, still contain such imposing monuments that when the Aztecs arrived, they incorporated them into their own stories. Tula, or Talan, its original name, was the city of the Toltecs, a people who flourished from the 10th to the 12th century, about 50 miles north of what would become Tenochtitlan, now Mexico City. When the Aztecs arrived from the north, beginning in the 12th century, Tolan had already been destroyed, but the achievements of that destroyed city became legendary in Mexico, and competing peoples, including the Aztecs, married their sons to Toltec women who could still trace descent from the old ruling house as a way of enhancing their own status, and, as we'll see, these marriages were also an attempt to make a connection with the god Coatzalcoatl. We don't know very much about the origin of the Aztecs. In their myths, they said that they came from the north, from an island town named Aztlan, from which we get their name. They called themselves Mexica, Kalua, named after the god Mexitali, and a city, Caluacan, which was close to where they first settled in the Mexican basin. The modern state of Mexico still carries the name of that god. It took them several hundred years to learn agriculture and irrigation and warfare from their new neighbors. But by 1323, they moved into the marshes of Lake Texacoco and founded what would become their great city, Tenochtitlan. In their own migration myths, they said that their tribal god, Huitzilopochtli, had led them from the north and had told them that they'd know they'd arrived when they came on an eagle on a prickly cactus, eating a writhing snake. That happened, they said, in the swamps of Lake Texacoco, so that's where they stopped moving. The image of the cactus, eagle, and snake is on the Mexican flag. It's been said that despite the number of city-states that rose up, flourished, and then sank back into the jungle in Mesoamerica, there was an amazing cultural continuity from each one of them to the next. Each people, as it came to prominence, absorbed a lot from previous peoples and cities. The resulting syncretism or blending of beliefs and traditions makes it more complicated for us to separate out the stories of any one people. What happened was that an earlier people might have a god or goddess similar in some ways to a god later people had. The tendency was for the later people to take over the god or goddess maybe giving him or her a new name, and then to combine features of the two so that as time went by, the characters of the gods and goddesses became increasingly complicated. Mesoamericans were, of course, the first or only people to do this. In ancient Egypt, for example, Ammon might be the chief god of an important city. But if a different city came to prominence and its inhabitants worshipped Ra, the two gods might be combined into Amun-Ra, and the two gods' features combined as well. So, 
In the Aztec stories, there are gods who have several manifestations or aspects, that is, different ways they appear. Each different manifestation will have a different appearance, different powers, and be responsible for different things. For example, in a story that's older than the Aztec presence in the Mexican basin, an original creator god contained within himself both male and female and then manifested itself as a pair of beings, male and female, who produced five gods who became the real creators. One of these creators was named Texcatlipoca, the god of the north, of the color black, and the night sky. He was associated with jaguars and crossroads and warfare. His name meant smoking mirror, which was a mirror made of obsidian, which had a really cloudy surface. That mirror was used in divination, with which Tetzcatlipoca was also involved. He also had a lot of functions and myths by the time the Aztecs arrived. They had a tribal god new to the region. His name was Huitzilopochtli. When they got to the Valley of Mexico, they found out about Tetzcatlipoca and saw in him some features similar to those of Huitzilopochtli. They wanted their own god to have the status of a creator god, which Tetzcatlipoca already had, so Huitzilopochtli became a manifestation or aspect of Tetzcatlipoca. He's a manifestation not exactly the same god because he's similar to but not exactly the same as Tetzcatlipoca. Their attributes couldn't simply be combined without winding up in contradiction. Tetzcatlipoca, for example, was a god of war who relished discord and conflict. He liked to see warriors fight, but he didn't much care who won or lost. Huitzilopochtli, on the other hand, was also a god of war, but since he was the Aztec special god, he cared very much who won and lost. He always wanted the Aztecs to win. Huitzilopochtli was also associated with the sun, and Tetzcatlipoca was the god of the night sky. So they are related to each other, but they have entirely different values and meanings. The same is true of another important god in the Aztec story, Quetzalcoatl, the plumed serpent. His icon was a snake wearing the feathers of a beautiful and now nearly extinct Quetzal bird. He's one of the oldest gods in Mesoamerica. Virtually every culture in the region had him in one form or another. But when the Aztecs fitted him into their stories, they focused on the characteristics that worked in those stories, and of course de-emphasized those that didn't. Whenever they ran into a place where some of his accumulated characteristics didn't work for their own stories, they split them off to make one more a manifestation or an aspect of the other. This sounds cynical and manipulative, as though priests and scholars were very deliberate in the way they went about these revisions, shaping the god to match their nationalistic and personal needs. But we have to remember that they believed in the reality of these gods and in the functions they performed in the world around them. What they were trying to do was to match the stories to the reality of their world, which is what we all do with the stories we tell about how things came to be or how they work now. There may very well have been, there probably was, some propaganda in the Aztec myths since they believed that they were destined to rule over other people. But that can be said about the stories of any people or nation that finds itself in a dominant position over other peoples 
including our own and our own stories. The reason why I've chosen Tetzcatlipoca and Quetzalcoatl as examples is that both of them are important in the Aztec creation story, and the conflict between them that starts with creation runs all the way through the Aztec myths in a way that tells us a lot about the Aztecs themselves. The Mayans, you may recall, had a story about how the gods had to create humans four times in order to make us the way they wanted. The Aztecs had the same kind of story about the cosmos itself. There have been, the Aztecs believed, four worlds before this one. The first was made by Tezcatlipoca, who became the world's first sun. In that age, the earth was peopled by giants so huge and strong that they could rip up trees with their bare hands. Each age in the Aztec creation was called a sun. This first one was known as Jaguar Sun. It lasted 676 years. It ended when Quetzalcoatl got angry at the vision of Tezcatlipoca high in the sky and knocked him down into the sea at the edge of the earth. Tezcatlipoca rose up out of the sea and in an apparent fit of rage became a giant jaguar and hunted down and killed all the giants he himself had created. The next stage was that of the wind sun and Quetzalcoatl made a sun for that one. The inhabitants of this earth were more like we are today. That age lasted for 364 years. It ended when Tetzcatlipoca got revenge on Quetzalcoatl by sending a great hurricane that took the sun out of the sky and blew the people off the earth. The few survivors managed to climb into trees, no longer human, but monkeys. You may be hearing echoes of the Mayan creation story in the Popol Vuh in which the wooden people in the third attempt at creation became the ancestors of forest monkeys. The third creation in the Aztec myth was managed by Tlaloc, the rain god. This was the rain sun or the fire sun. A race of creatures lived 312 years until Quetzalcoatl once again destroyed it, this time with a rain of fire. The sun was once again swept from the sky while the earth burned. The few survivors became, oddly, dogs, butterflies, and turkeys. Then the goddess of streams, rivers, lakes, and oceans created a new sun. Her era lasted 676 years. This time, the goddess herself ended the age by releasing the waters from above the sky and creating a great flood. The survivors this time adapted by becoming fish and whales. This was called the water sun. The flood lasted 52 years, at the end of which even the mountains had been washed away. There was only a vast, still sea. So, for the fifth time, creation had to be started all over again. This time, Quetzalcoatl and Tetzcatlipoca worked together. They killed a great and hungry monster in the primal sea and tore her in half. From the two parts, they fashioned the sky and the earth. In the fight, the monster tore off one of Tetzcatlipoca's feet, so he's frequently shown in art, either with a stump or a foot made of an obsidian mirror. This is a type of creation story that's fairly frequent in the old world, but rare in the new one. It's called the dismembered god or monster type. In it, the body of a god or goddess or monster is taken apart to make the world. Then part of that new world, usually some clay or mud, is used to make human beings. 
we revert to earth when we die. So this is a type of creation story that asserts the reciprocity of matter, which keeps being recycled back and forth between the cosmos and human beings. In this story, the emphasis is a little bit different, however. Even in her changed state, the Aztec monster is still ravenously hungry, especially for blood. In order to guarantee her blessings on the humans who are to live on her, the gods promise her a steady diet of sacrifice. We know what she looks like in her goddess manifestation. One of the most terrifying statues in the world is that of Coatlicue, the Aztec Mother Earth. It was excavated from under Cathedral Square in Mexico City. Her head is made of two enormous rattlesnakes, and her skirt is made of writhing snakes, too. She wears a necklace made of hearts, hands, and a skull. She also has hanging around her neck a vase into which sacrificed hearts are tossed. Some scholars have argued that Aztecs may not have seen her as terrifying, just powerful, but she certainly reminds us of the high price of staying on good terms with Mother Earth, and the myth of how the Earth was created out of her torn body helps to explain that price. This gets the cosmos going for the Aztecs. This is the fifth world and the last one. According to the accounts that we know of, if something happens to this one, if it, like the first four, gets destroyed, the story is over. So continued effort is required, both auto-sacrifice, in which one gives one's own blood to the gods, and the sacrifice of whole human beings on the altar of the Great Pyramid at Tenochtitlan. There was danger to the cosmos all the time, but sometimes were even more dangerous than others. One of these was the last five days of the solar year. Another was the date on which the two interlocking calendars, the same ones used by the Mayan, the one with 365 days, the other with 260, when these two together completed an entire cycle of all possible number combinations, which took 52 years. That night, the priest stood on a hill and waited for certain stars to appear to assure them that the cosmos would survive for one more cycle. And to assure that it would, on that night, there were special human sacrifices, including those of children. The gods and the cosmos of the Aztecs needed constant care and feeding. And all of the Aztec myths reinforce this view of the way things are. For example, the one recounting the story of the birth of Huitzilopochtli, the Aztec tribal god, tells us that he was born to Coatlicue, the earth mother we were just talking about. She was a priestess at a shrine. One day she was sweeping it out when a ball of bright feathers floated down and landed on her breast. She was struck by its beauty and put it in her belt. Later, when she looked for it, it was gone and she soon discovered that it had made her pregnant. She already had given birth to the moon goddess and 400 suns, usually taken to be the southern stars. When her children discovered their mother's pregnancy, they were mortified at her apparent promiscuity and refused to believe that the conception was a miracle. They decided they had to kill her to restore the family's honor. Huitzilopochtli spoke to his mother from within her womb to assure her that he would take care of her. No harm would come to her. When his sister and brothers approached, 
he leaped fully armed from his mother's womb and cut his sister, the moon goddess, to pieces. Her dismembered body tumbled down a hill. Then he went after his brothers, allowing only a few of them to escape. In astronomical terms, this is what happens at dawn. Huitzilopochtli, in his function as an aspect of the sun, rises from his mother Earth and scatters the moon and the stars of the night sky. But the event was also memorialized in a sculpture found at the foot of the Great Pyramid and Tenochtitlan, where the victims landed after they had been killed and their hearts removed, rolling down the steps just as Huitzilopochtli's sister had fallen down her hill, leaving her brother in possession of her head, the pale face of the moon. At Tenochtitlan, these sacrifices were to keep the earth and the sun and the rain nourished with blood. The details of the rest of the creation story show how fragile the cosmos seemed to the Aztecs, and hence the need for sacrifice, especially for hearts and blood, to keep it nourished. Quetzalcoatl goes to the underworld to recover bones left from previous creations in order to create human beings. He gets them from the Lord of the Dead and then brings these bones to Mother Earth, who grinds them into powder, and then Quetzalcoatl inseminates them with his own blood. The story also accounts for the coming of death into the world, while in the underworld, Quetzalcoatl falls down and drops the bones, which are then nibbled on by underworld spirits. That's what prevents humans from being immortal. Quetzalcoatl also discovers maize, but he can't bring it out himself from inside the mountain where it's stored, so the god of lightning has to split the mountain open. But as soon as the maize and all other foodstuffs are laid open by the lightning, the rain gods steal all the food. As John Beerhorst says in his book, Four Masterworks of American Indian Literature, even the Aztec creation story itself is full of reminders of how fragile everything is. The creation of the sun and moon for the Aztecs happened at the ancient city of Teotihuacan, a place so grand, even in ruins, that the Aztecs considered it a sacred place. In the myth, the gods all gather there to decide which of them will become the new sun. One haughty and arrogant god volunteers, but the others encourage a humble and deformed god who accepts the charge. This detail of the story was remembered whenever there was a total eclipse of the sun. When it happened, hunchbacks in the city were rounded up and sacrificed. The sun would presumably be pleased with such a sacrifice since he had been one of them himself before his ascension into the sky. Anyway, the arrogant god persists in his self-nomination as the new sun, so the other gods prepare two sacrificial pyres. After four days of penance, the two candidates present themselves on the pyramids of the sun and moon at Teotihuacan. Both are invited to leap into the flames, but only the humble, misshapen god goes through with it. The arrogant one has to try four times before, shamed now before the assembly of gods, he manages to immolate himself. Then the gods wait to see where they will rise. The sky slowly reddens, and then the sun, formerly the deformed god, rises in the east. Just behind him comes the moon, the proud god, almost as fiercely hot and bright. Worrying that the world will too, be too bright and hot, 
one of the gods throws a rabbit into the face of the moon, dimming it and putting in it the seated rabbit that Mesoamericans saw in the face of the full moon. But, although the sun and moon are now in the sky, neither of them moves. So the gods decide that they have to sacrifice themselves to feed the sun's desperate thirst to help it move. Quetzalcoatl, one by one, cuts out the hearts of the other gods and offers them to the sun, which then begins to move. The message is clear. As the gods themselves had to sacrifice themselves to get the cosmos going, so humans must supply hearts and blood to ensure that the fifth sun will continue each morning to rise in the east, making all of life possible. It's easy to imagine the fear that such practices must have spread among the Aztecs' neighbors, since they were usually the ones who were to experience the business end of the ceremonial flint and obsidian knives. All of these myths tell us something about the Aztecs themselves, but to see how all of this wove itself into the final destiny of the Aztec Empire, we have to take a look at the ways they adapted stories they inherited from the people's who had been in the Valley of Mexico before them. The Toltecs, who had built Tolan, were the heroes of the Aztecs. They had built a great city, they had been fierce fighters, and they had ruled, according to their own myths, by a divine mandate. Toltec myths said that Quetzalcoatl had been the only god ever to be incarnated as a human being, and that in that incarnation, he had come to rule Tolan as a priest or king or priest-king overseeing an age of cultural grandeur. As I mentioned earlier, the Aztecs married their ruling class men to women from the ruling house of the Toltecs. The reason is that since the Toltec rulers were descended from Quetzalcoatl and therefore had a divine right to rule by marrying into the line, the Aztecs sought to acquire some of that right for themselves. They knew that a string of rulers in Talan had included the name Quetzalcoatl in their titles. The ruler was called Tolpitzin Quetzalcoatl, and the age of those rulers had been a golden one. According to the story, food was abundant. Cotton was said to grow already colored from different colored seeds, so it didn't need to be dyed. Craftsmen of all sort were encouraged and rewarded, and the city was full of beautiful trees, which in turn were filled with magnificent birds which sang amazing songs. Most stunning of all is that according to the story, the original Tolpitzin Quetzalcoatl, who, remember, was an incarnation of Quetzalcoatl himself, had forbidden all human sacrifice. One could offer one's own blood, which everyone already did anyway, but there were to be no more victims led up the steps to have their hearts cut out and their bodies flung down the steps. Sacrifices were to be made with birds and flowers and butterflies, but not with human hearts. Again, Tolan had fallen by the time the Aztecs arrived, and their explanation of how that happened involved Quetzalcoatl's archenemy, Tezcatlipoca. In the story, Tezcatlipoca came to Tolan and destroyed Quetzalcoatl's power. There are many versions of how he did this. In one of the best known, he comes as a wise old man and healer and tempts Tolpitzin Quetzalcoatl into drinking pulque, the Aztec alcoholic beverage. Until then, the priest or priest king had lived a life of extreme austerity, 
But the pool key makes him drunk, his inhibitions and self-discipline fly away, and he winds up inviting his sister to share his pool key and before morning his bed. He wakes up the next morning knowing that his reign and the golden age of Tolan is over. He lies in a stone casket for four days, and then he and his retinue march toward the eastern sea. He orders a funeral pyre built, and then, dressed in his feathered robes, he throws himself onto it and is instantly consumed. Flocks of birds rise from the pyre, carrying his heart, which becomes the morning star, whose task it is to clear the sky of the powers of darkness and night to make way for the dawn. He immediately generates a dark twin, since an Aztec thought everything is doubled, and the dark twin becomes the evening star who tries each night to defeat the sun by overwhelming it with the powers of night and then thrusting it into the underworld. The sun each night has to fight his way through to the east so he can rise in the morning, and to do this he needs, as we've seen, a daily supply of hearts and blood. In another version of what happens after he leaves Talon, Tolpitzin Quetzalcoatl makes his way to the sea and then builds a raft of snakes or snakeskins, gets on it, and sails off to the east. In that story, he promises to return and to restore the glory of his priestly kingly reign. He becomes messianic, like King Arthur, sailing away but destined to return at some future time to restore his kingdom. The date of his expected return was known by its name in the Aztec calendar, and by the sheerest luck, the Spanish conquistador Hernán Cortés arrived at Tenochtitlan on the precise date of the expected return. Montezuma II, the Aztec ruler, when Cortés arrived, knew the calendar and the prophecies and all the lore surrounding them, so instead of greeting Cortés with force, he welcomed him with a grand speech thinking that he was the returning Quetzalcoatl. That turned out to be a pivotal moment in Mesoamerican history. After two years of intermittent fighting and negotiation, the Aztec Empire was no more. It's difficult to say exactly what happened in Tolan. Scholars who read mythic stories like this as history that has been glorified into myth have tried to figure out what actually happened. This is one plausible version. Somewhere about halfway through the Toltec period of dominance, say somewhere in the 11th century, a priest showed up in Tolan with a new revealed religion. The god he served didn't want human blood except for the little that came from auto-sacrifice, and the priest seemed to have preached the need of a new and different kind of holiness. From the way the stories get told later, he must have been successful at winning converts in the city, quite a lot of them. But... His religion would also have flown in the face of the way of life of the entire ruling and warrior classes. They perhaps turned to the priesthood of the god Tetzcatlipoca, and the two groups warded out. The Tetzcatlipoca faction won after a protracted struggle, and the Tolpitzin faction was exiled. In the myth, the battle is said to have taken place between Tetzcatlipoca, disguised as an old sorcerer, and Tolpitzin Quetzalcoatl, an incarnation of the god himself. The end result is the same. I'm reminded of a parallel series of events in Egypt involving Akhenaten, Nefertiti, and King Tut. In the 14th century BCE, Akhenaten and Nefertiti attempted radically to change Egyptian religion. That effort wound up flying in the face of many vested interests 
including that of the priests of various gods and goddesses and many of the ruling class, and Akhenaten simply disappeared from history. His mummy was never found, and his name was scratched out of all the temples and stelae and palaces and documents. The boy Tut was elevated to replace him. The stories sound very much alike, except that Akhenaten could present himself as a son of his god, Aten, or even as a god himself, but that wasn't enough to make him messianic. When he was gone, he was gone for good, rubbed out, vanished. But Tolpitsin Quetzalcoatl in the mythic version of the story is Quetzalcoatl, and that means that when he's defeated by Tetzcatlipoca and sails away to the east, he can promise to return to finish the work he had started in Tolan. The importance of all this for our understanding of the Aztecs is that their fate was already written in the fall of Tolan and the victory of Tetzlatotlicopa over Quetzalcoatl. In their emergence myth, the Aztecs said that they were the last people to emerge from the earth, but that Huitzilopochtli, who became a manifestation of Tetzcatlipoca, had given them a destiny of military might and rule over other peoples. He would help them, but in exchange, their military victories would provide them with the prisoners they needed to sacrifice to keep Huitzilopochtli strong and the cosmos working. So, the great experiment in Tolan, whether it has a basis in history or whether it's purely a mythological event, was in fact a face-off between Tetzcatlipoca and Quetzalcoatl for the soul of the Aztecs, and Tetzcatlipoca won. Tezcatlipoca was the patron of war, which was necessary to guarantee a supply of nourishment for the sun and the entire cosmos. A steady supply of hearts and blood was essential, not only for the Aztecs themselves, but for all the people of the earth and the earth itself and the gods beyond the earth. The purpose of war was the feeding of the gods. DCA Berland and Werner Foreman, in their book Feathered Serpent and Smoking Mirror, say that at least in mythic terms, the destiny of the Aztecs was written in the fall of Tolan when Tezcatlipoca ousted Tolpitzin Quetzalcoatl. Tezcatlipoca offered war to the Aztecs, the means by which their strength grew and the means for capturing the human sacrifices needed to keep everything moving. And the gift depended on reciprocal relations. If the people failed the proper sacrifices, Tezcatlipoca would no longer help them win their victories. The sun would stop moving and time would stop. But the Aztecs must have had some uneasiness about this, since they knew that Quetzalcoatl would one day return and reestablish the golden kingdom of Tolan. What did they think it meant that when Quetzalcoatl would return, the morning star would become the ruling lord? What would become of Tetzcatlipoca? of their own empire and its basis in military conquest and sacrifice. Montezuma II was a student of the calendar and of Aztec religion and was said to have often visited the priests of Quetzalcoatl to consult with him. When the Spaniards arrived, he was absolute ruler of all of ancient Mexico, and his control had come on the shoulders of his vast armies and the thousands of captive victims who had been taken up the steps of the Great Pyramids to altars where their hearts were cut out and their bodies flung back down the steps. But Montezuma also ruled by divine right, and that right came in part from the Toltecs, 
whose priest king had been an incarnation of Quetzalcoatl. He also knew that the year beginning a new 52-year cycle was the year when the prophecies said that Quetzalcoatl would return. When Cortez showed up on that auspicious day, Montezuma and his priests and scholars knew that the world would either be renewed or it would end. And if it were renewed, perhaps it would be the beginning of the reign of Quetzalcoatl. But what exactly could that mean? Many of the Aztec soldiers knew some of this, too. The Spanish would later say that when the morning star, that is Quetzalcoatl, wasn't in the sky, the Aztecs would attack and fight. But when he was in the sky, the soldiers would attack and fight only defensively or retreat. So unsure were they of what was coming and what was expected of them. The last defeat of Tetzcatlipoca and of the Aztecs might also have been written in the fact that so many of their subject peoples not only didn't resist the Spanish, but actually joined them as allies. They didn't so much love the Spanish as they hated the Aztecs. Whoever came to challenge them was a friend of the subject peoples who had grown so long under the yoke of Tetzcatlipoca. As Berland and Foreman put it, the history of the conquest of Mexico is very largely an enactment of the myth of Quetzalcoatl and Tetzcatlipoca. This lecture is titled, Inca Myth as Imperial Mandate. The Incas had the largest empire in the Americas when the Spaniards arrived. By 1532, it contained 6 million people, and it stretched along the western edge of South America from what is now southern Colombia through Ecuador and Peru into southern Chile, east across parts of Bolivia, and the northwestern part of what is now Argentina. It included many peoples and languages all held together from the Inca capital city of Cusco. It's in some ways comparable to the Roman Empire in that it had been achieved by a military conquest, it was efficiently administered, and it was to some extent tolerant of the religions and practices of the peoples it conquered. It allowed them to live at least in part the way they had before the coming of the Incas, as long as they paid their tribute of goods and labors and worshipped the chief Inca sun god alongside their own. The Incas were also, like the Romans, good engineers and builders, creating terraces for farming and irrigation canals, as well as building the great monuments we can still see in ruins today. In terms of the stories they told about themselves, there's another striking similarity with the Romans. When the Romans conquered all the peoples that eventually made up their empire, they absorbed and consolidated their stories about themselves into what became the great Roman story. Virgil's Aeneid was built on Homer's two Greek epics, the Iliad and the Odyssey, and Virgil incorporated them into the Roman story. Likewise, the Latin peoples, who were to become allies, enemies, and subjects of the Romans, had their own stories which Virgil wove into his own epic, an epic that made Rome the culmination of all other stories, the point of all of them, the promised end of so much history, which, according to Virgil, the gods had been working out to bring to this very conclusion. The Incas did much the same with the stories of the peoples they took into their empire. 
All of them had their own stories of their creation, their coming to the lands they inhabited, their history, and the gods who would help them. The Incas took these stories and wove them together into the Inca story about how they had been chosen by the gods to come to these peoples in just this way to absorb them and to rule over them for mutual benefit. That's the story that we'll trace in this lecture. As Gary Erton puts it in his book, Inca Myths, the story of the Incas legitimized their rule and validated the way they organized society. To do this, they drew on the knowledge, beliefs, and practices of the earlier cultures as they conquered them. It's likely, in fact, that the reason the Incas were able so quickly to unify all their subject peoples was that they were building on the institutions and practices of earlier peoples who had done the same things, only not on such a grand scale. In this way, too, the Incas might remind us of the Romans. One very large difference between the two cultures, however, is that the Incas had no Virgil. In fact, they had no writing at all. So the creation of their grand myth of rulership and its nature had to be of a different order. They recorded their stories with a device called the kipu, which was a bundle of knotted strings of different colors, the same device that they used for mathematics. These bundles were kept by experts called knot makers or keepers, who could use them in remembering and narrating events and stories from the past. According to the Spanish chroniclers who saw them in use, they allowed the keeper to tell of something that happened 500 years ago as though it had happened yesterday. And the knowledge of reading the colors and strings and different kind of knots was passed on from generation to generation so that there would always be people who could do it. We've never figured out how to do this, so the Inca stories we know were all recorded by Spanish chroniclers or scribes or by natives who had been trained by the Spanish to read and write. So most of them are written in Spanish. Many of them were recited by people who either could read a quipu or by court poets who put the deeds of kings and queens into songs as their way of remembering them. They would originally have been told or sung in the Quechua language, the language spoken by the Incas and still used in parts of South America today. The songs would then have been translated by Spanish writers who had learned Quechua. Readers and historians and mythographers have always been aware of the many places in such a transmission that distortions or errors could creep in. For example, since most of our sources were Spanish Catholic Christians, some of them were even monks or priests, it's possible that the Incas who told the stories to chroniclers told them in such a way as to be pleasing to the recorder, or that the recorder would understand something he heard in a way consistent with his own grasp of religious truth. Quite a few mythographers have found what they take to be Christian influences that have made their way into the native myths in one way or another. At any rate, anyone who works with this body of material tries hard to read between the lines in order to separate the native from the imported material, and beyond that to try to discover what parts of a story come from earlier traditions and which were reinterpretations or additions of the Incas made in order to justify their empire. The question is important since, and this is again from Gary Erton's book, 
There were so many peoples in the Inca Empire that there had to be some explanation for all the different clothing, languages, and cultures. How did all of that come about? Did each people have its own origin, or did we all start from a single stock somewhere? There are enough myths of individual peoples for anyone to see that most of them wanted to assert their uniqueness as well as that of their origins and gods. But at the same time, there are enough Inca myths that posit a single origin for all peoples for us to understand their need for people to think as part of a single society. That is, to think as though they shared a common past and were working toward a common future, one in which the Incas were divinely ordained to rule. The common element connecting these two kinds of myth, it turns out, is Lake Titicaca in the Andes Mountains between modern-day Peru and Bolivia. It's there that, according to these myths, that the cosmos and the ancestors of all human beings were created. All of these themes will appear and reappear in the myths we'll look at in this lecture. We'll start with a myth of the Colas, uh, people who lived northeast of Lake Titicaca when they were absorbed by the Incas. They spoke their own language and had their own stories of who they were and how they got there. Veronica Sias Reese, in her book From Viracocha to the Virgin of Copacabana, Representations of the Sacred at Lake Titicaca, uses 16 different sources to make what she calls a master narrative of these people. In brief, it goes like this. The creator god, Viracocha, appeared first near Lake Titicaca. His first creation included both giants and animals. He set down rules for all creatures. But when these rules were ignored, Viracocha sent a flood to destroy everything. He turned the giants into stone. Then he started again, this time making all the peoples of the world out of clay. He sent them then to mountaintops and into rivers and springs and into caves. Then he traveled through the world calling the different peoples out of hiding and giving each one its own customs, costumes, and foods. When he had finished, he disappeared into the sea. The 16 sources that make up this synthetic account of the Kola creation story contain some interesting details and variations. One of them mentions that the stones into which the giants were turned when the first creation was destroyed could still be seen at a site called Tiahuanaco, where a massive, where massive, much larger than life statues had been left from an earlier civilization that we don't know very much about. An island in the middle of Lake Titicaca was later called the Island of the Sun because it was understood that here was Viracocha called the sun, moon, and stars into being. One account reports that when he created human beings, he started out with stone models and painted each one with that people's distinctive clothing and hairstyles so that each would have a separate identity. At the same time, he gave each people its own language and songs and the foods they would need to survive. A different version has Viracocha making his new people out of clay before painting on their hairstyles and dress. Then he sent them away underground. He kept with him two men, either his sons or two of the people he had just created. They were at any rate culture heroes. In still other accounts, there are more than two companions, a whole host of subordinate deities. In these accounts, most of the assistants went south, while Viracocha and his two companions went north, 
And as they went north, they called forth the people who had been planted in springs and caves and mountaintops. Each people emerged and moved into the place that had been prepared for it. Viracocha and his two companions stayed long enough to instruct each people in the skills it needed for survival. The place from which each people had emerged was remembered by the people, and it became a sacred place, a huaka, or place of pilgrimage. When Viracocha or Viracocha and his two companions reached the seacoast in what is now Ecuador, they walked away over the water and were never seen again. The Colas, thus, like other peoples in the Inca Empire, had their own stories of who they were and where their neighbors came from. They also had detailed accounts of what happened when Viracocha passed through their land, calling the planted people to emerge. A long time after this happened, another man passed through, looking so much like Viracocha that it might have been he. In fact, in some versions, he's identified as the passing traveler. As he passed according to the story, he healed the sick and gave sight to the blind. When he came to a certain district, which was inhabited by a very warlike people, they came out and threatened to stone him. He sank to his knees and raised his hands, and suddenly fire fell from the sky. The people immediately begged for forgiveness, and he struck at the flames with his staff, which extinguished them. He continued on his way until he came to the sea and then walked into it. According to one version, the people who saw him walk into the sea gave him his name, which means Seafoam. The story has some obvious parallels with other stories from other religions. Particularly, there's something Christ-like about the Viracocha of this one. It's another reminder that given the way these myths have come to us and the various hands they have passed through on the way, that there are undoubtedly some Christian elements that have seeped into some of them. The story records, by the way, that the very stones in the place where the warriors had confronted Viracocha had been consumed by fire and became as light as cork, so light that the great boulders could be lifted by hand. As an interesting footnote, these rocks, the story says, can still be seen in that place, and that they can be seen validates the truth of the story itself. One more Cola story is interesting because in it, Viracocha is something of a trickster. In this one, he traveled all over the earth wearing a dirty and ragged tunic. Everywhere he went, people despised and mistreated him for his grubby poverty, despite the fact that he was creating as he moved, terracing hills and creating fields and making rivers. But one day he saw a young woman so beautiful that all the men in the region and all the gods as well wanted her. So did Viracocha. He went to her and asked if he could accompany her on her way. She looked at his rags and said, of course not. He didn't give up. He followed her at a distance to see what opportunities might present themselves. One day he saw her sitting under a tree working at her loom. He changed himself into a bird and flew into the tree. He pierced one of the fruits with his beak and inserted his seed into it. Then he let it drop into her lap. She picked it up and ate it. A few months later, she discovered that she was pregnant, and later she gave birth to a boy. She was, of course, still a virgin. She knew that this had to be the work of some god, so she called all the gods together. 
They all showed up, looking their best, since they all wanted her. She then asked which of them was the father of her child. No one spoke. So she placed the boy, who could by this time walk on the ground, and told him to pick out his father. He passed by all the magnificent lords in their finery until he came to the end of the row where the raggedy tramp whose advances she had deflected was sitting. The boy jumped into the tramp's arms and called him Daddy. Horrified, the woman grabbed her son and ran off to the seashore, where, eventually later in the story, she and her son were turned into stone. Viracocha, meanwhile, continued to search for her, asking directions of various animals along the way. He rewarded those who encouraged him or gave him hopeful news, and to those who didn't, he gave undesirable characteristics, as he did to the skunk. When he reached the shore, he seduced one of the woman's younger sisters and then escaped her irate mother by excusing himself to urinate and not coming back. That's a standard trickster escape. John Beerhorst, who tells this story in his book, The Mythology of South America, says that there are so many analogs of this story all over South America that it has to be indigenous to the region. But he also says that the helpful and unhelpful animals part, which doesn't occur in the South American versions, probably comes from a medieval European legend of Jesus being chased by enemies. In that one, he too blesses the animals that help him and curses those who don't. But our real point here is that using the cola body of myths, we can tell that there was a fully developed mythology in the Andes Highlands before the Incas came to power. Gary Urton says that we can generalize that there was a pre-existing belief that all humans had been created at Lake Titicaca by a creator most commonly called Viracocha. Each people, however, identified a specific location as its place of origin. It was this body of myth that the Incas were to absorb, adapt, and co-opt into their own stories as a way of validating their right to create and rule an empire. As we turn to the Inca's stories, we need to remember that they were at one time only one people among many in the region that became their empire. They weren't any larger or more civilized or greater warriors or administrators than any other people. In fact, they stood in awe of some of the achievements of the past in the same way that the Aztecs had when they came into the Valley of Mexico. So, as they rose to power, it was important for them to claim some right or mandate that gave them supremacy over all those other nations. That's part of the work that their myths did for them. Veronica Sias Reese, whose master narrative of the Colas we considered a few minutes ago, relates the Inca master narrative in this way. On an island in the middle of Lake Titicaca, the son called the Incas and adopted them as his children. He also gave them a sacred mission. He said that since all of the rest of the peoples were living in barbarism, he was sending the Incas to bring peace and plenty and civilization to them. He sent them north to a cave near Cuzco, from which they emerged, four brothers and four sisters, or one brother and one sister, depending on the version, wearing rich garments covered with gold and carrying corn seeds. They also carried slings and household utensils. One brother, Manco Capac, 
also carried a golden rod that would sink all the way into the ground in the precise spot the sun had chosen for them. Three of the original four brothers in the version that has four were turned into stones and became huacas, places of pilgrimage. Manco Capac had a son with one of his sisters founding the Inca dynasty. As with the narratives of earlier peoples, there are interesting details and variations in the many sources that make up this grand story. The most frequently recurring variant tells us that the Incas were created or adopted at Lake Titicaca and then, like all peoples in other Andes creation myths, they were sent underground to emerge from a mountain in which there were three caves or windows. When the time came for them to emerge, the Incas came out of the center or middle window, the other peoples from the side windows. The name of the place where the cave is located was Pacaritambo, 20 miles or so south of Cusco. In the most common version, the four brothers and four sisters emerged, paired up, so that each brother is married to one sister. They made alliances with the people who emerged from the other windows and later with the peoples who had already been called forth by Viracocha. Then they set off to find the place their golden rod would tell them to settle down. They tested the soil with the rod along the way, looking for the place where it would sink into the ground. Along the way, they made stops. At the first, the eldest brother and sister conceived a child who was then born at the next stop. At another stop, they lost one of their brothers. Ayarkachi was his name, and he was a difficult person, rowdy, cruel, and destructive, always endangering the alliances his brothers and sisters were making with other peoples. So Manco Kapak, the oldest, tricked Ayarkachi into returning to the cave from which they had emerged by asking him to go back to retrieve some important things left behind. When Ayarkachi agreed and returned to the cave, a servant sealed him up inside it. The site was already a Hawaka as the place of emergence, but now it was doubly sacred with one of the brothers forever sealed up in it. Soon afterwards, they arrived at the valley of Cusco, where their golden rod sank completely into the ground and a rainbow seconded their welcome. They were home. But before they got properly settled, they lost another brother. From the mountain overlooking the valley, he flew up into the sky. When he returned, he said he had visited the sun, who promised a great destiny for the family in Cusco. Then he was turned to stone, and the site became another important huaca. After a few more delays, the remaining brothers and sisters moved into Cusco, where they were welcomed by the ruler who turned the city over to them when he was convinced that the sun had so decreed it. They planted the corn they had brought with them from their emergence cave. Yet another brother was turned into a stone pillar where the central plaza of the new city would be built, and there was another Hawaka. And then there are variations on the variations. In one, the sun looked down on the earth and pitied the barbarism of the people on it, who didn't know weaving or pottery or agriculture, and who lived as badly as most animals. So he sent two of his children, a man and a woman, into Lake Titicaca. He told them that when they emerged, they should travel in whatever direction they wished, but they should keep testing the ground with their golden rod until it found the right place for them to settle. The point of this golden rod is probably that in the Andes highlands, the soil can be very thin. 
If you can find a place where the topsoil is deep enough to bury the goldenrod, agriculture should be possible. The son, however, had more instructions for the pair. He told them that when people had become their subjects, they must deal with them with mercy and justice, the way a father does with his child, the way, in fact, he told them, precisely the way the son takes care of the earth. So that they could carry out this good work, he told them that he had made them rulers over all races, all of whom would benefit from their instruction, good works, and competent administration. Then they emerged from the lake and traveled north to the valley of Cusco, where their golden rod could be buried. From there, they took on the work of civilizing the ignorant barbarians, and they were so helpful and gentle that they were worshipped as children of the sun, as indeed they were in this story. In many of these versions, the sense of superiority felt by the Incas vis-a-vis their neighbors is written into the story as a recognition of that superiority by those other peoples. The peoples they encounter, including even the ruler of Cusco, at once see that these people are gifted, wonderful, with great powers and great compassion, and they immediately and happily submit to Manco Capac and the rest of his family. In these versions, there's no need for war since those destined to become subject peoples know right away that the Inca rule will be as good for them as it is for the Incas. And so the great design of the sun for his children unfolded in the Andes highlands. One unfortunate consequence of this version of the story, however, is that it suppressed the memory of earlier cultures in the Andes highlands by representing those cultures as barbaric and uncivilized. They became what they became in this story because of the ministrations of their overlords, the Incas. There's one final version of this tale, a very different one, that John Beerhorse says reveals the cynicism and manipulation that lies beneath all of this stuff about gentle rulers and beneficent kings and happy subjects. This one tells us that the brothers and sisters who emerged from the cave and came to the valley of Cusco tricked the locals into accepting them as children of the sun. They first spread rumors that the sun was about to send one of his own children as a ruler. Then they fashioned a dazzling suit of gold for Manco Capac and then had him emerge from a cave on top of the mountain overlooking Cusco. In the sunrise, he looked to the yokels like a god. They were awed and overwhelmed, and Manco Capac came down the mountain as lord of Cusco. Beerhorse thinks that this is the version that the Incas themselves believed. The other versions were simply put out for public consumption, put together by spin doctors. Gary Urton, however, worries about this version of the story. How can we tell, he asks, whose story this is? Is this a slant of the Christians who are writing all of this down, for whom all of the myths of the pagans are works of the devil anyway, designed to deceive people? Or is this a story from within the empire, from people who wanted to call into question the legitimacy of Inca rule? Or is it an authentic story from the Incas themselves, who knew all along that they were manipulating other people's stories to make their own come out this way? Or finally, is it something like Virgil's Aeneid, which explains a situation which everyone knew and worked out, which worked out in the long run to be good for the people, but as Virgil did, writing a fiction to explain how it all came about, how the Romans or the Incas wound up on top of the heap 
since it's easier to speak some things in a fiction than it is in a drier historical narrative? These are all hard questions. Whatever their motives, the Incas wound up using myth to justify their empire. That may seem like a departure from the other uses of myth that we've considered in this course, but in a sense, it makes an effective capstone to our discussions and a good place to end our survey of Native American myths. Kay Reed and Jason Gonzalez, in their book, Mesoamerican Mythology, say that myths are true because they describe either literally or metaphorically the way people who own them think the world actually is. First, they describe the tangible world. Second, they explain that tangible world in human terms that make sense to the people telling the stories. Third, they interpret that tangible world in humanly meaningful ways, offering justification and guides for action in the world. Fourth, by causing real action, myths act back on the tangible world in ways that sometimes confirm the way they believe it to be and sometimes force people to create new mythic models. The new models, in turn, stimulate new myths and new action. The Inca myths we've been looking at do all of these things. As do all of the other myths we've looked at, some explain why the world is so harsh and difficult. Some tell us why we need shamans. Some allow us to kill animals who are otherwise our brothers and sisters. Some of them explain how divided between good and evil humans are and encourage us to construct an order that encourages the good and co-opts the evil. There are myths that help us understand where we came from and how we got here. Some remind us that our world is a good one, but not a perfect one, and we have to spend our energies helping to hold it together. Others explain to us the intricacies of human psychology and the need to recognize the complexity and hazards, as well as the benefits of living together in a one-room and a one-fire house. Some remind us of our relations with the greater powers of the cosmos and the need to relate to them in some way. Some remind us that tricksters are written into everything so that nothing is as simple or easy as it might be. Some remind us that our cosmos itself is fragile and of the need to nourish it, to keep it alive. There are myths that explain why we do things the way we do and what can happen if we forget or fail to do them properly. And some explain why one people winds up ruling over other people. We've run across all of these and more in the myths we've looked at. All of them were true for the people who told them. And many of them still hold truths for us, even though we live in cultures and worlds far removed from those of the people who created them. Myths are the human way of understanding the world we live in and explaining to us how we must live in it. Humans have tried to understand these things as long as we've been around, and we explain them to ourselves, to each other, and to our children by telling stories to each other, as we've done since some unknown man or woman told the first one to his or her companions around a cave fire. Native Americans have given us a vast treasure of such stories based on their understanding of their world, which is still at least partly our world too, and which can still speak to us across the years. We do ourselves a favor every time in spirit we sit down around one of their longhouse fires to listen to them. 
We hope you have enjoyed these lectures from the great courses. Our courses are available online or via the free The Great Courses app for smartphones and tablets, available on the App Store or Google Play. View our full library at thegreatcourses.com, or as always, you can call our customer care representatives at one eight hundred eight three two two four one two.